Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to us all as we celebrate this sacred month of February with all of its twos. And, of course, the special day of Valentine's Day, our day of love. So let us open our hearts here today and take this opportunity to assist the planet in downloading more love. Please take this time to go into your heart center, going into the sacred portal to all that is. As we do, we call forth individually to merge with our own I am presence, our soul, our higher self, our monad, our muddy I am. And we ask to merge with all of our multidimensional being. See a beautiful pink and platinum light of Divine Mother come through your pillar. Imagine that pillar around you is always there. We need to just please bring our attention to it. But you can see it, you can feel it, you sense it, you know that it's there. And you see it reaching all the way from source directly into the heart and mind of our Mother, Father, God anchored fully into the heart of Mother Gaia. Heart to heart as we recommit to being that bridge between heaven and earth. The anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. Feel yourself, breathe in these magnificent frequencies of Divine Mother Love. And let us affirm for one and all, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that. And allow your heart to open further. Allow it to expand. Allow it to open to receive the planet and all upon her. And see every man, woman, and child joining us. Joining us in consciousness, joining us and working with us on this ascension work as we are a planet of love, it is our mission to be a planet of love and to anchor this love to ascend all together 
as one. And so as we work with these ascension frequencies, we ask every man, woman, and child to join us in this work. And thus, for one and all, we welcome all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, We welcome all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. Take a nice deep breath. As we welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fury kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome all of the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all of their healing teams. We welcome our sacred friends from the Galactic Federation of Light especially those that we work most closely with and their healing teams. We welcome Lord and Lady Arcturus, the Arcturians, the Arcturian healing teams and healing technologies. We welcome Lord and Lady Sirius, the Syrian Archangelic League of the Light, and their healing teams, including Dr. Lorfin and his healers. We welcome Lord and Lady Pleiades, the Pleiadian Emissaries of Light and their healing teams. Lord and Lady Chiron and the Chiron Healers. Lord and Lady Andromeda and the Andromedan Healing Teams. Lord and Lady Venus and the Venusian Healing Teams. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. And we welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven and ask that Mother, Father, God overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine order for our being, individually and collectively, the maximum that we can receive through our mighty I Am Presence. We ask at this time... For all of this work to be magnified 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. And we call forth all of the rays, 
all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level in divine order for each being. And through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field multidimensionally, we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for Mother Gaia as well. We also invite the entire circle of support to receive the benefits of all that we receive. This includes from the very first person that that created it to each and every individual, every family member and loved one, every pet, every group, every organization, every event, every meeting, every summit, every government, every nation, all governmental leaders, the Olympics, and every weather pattern, every situation that we have in the circle of support from its initiation. And we ask for all of the attention toward world events, including the Olympics, including the Super Bowl tomorrow. We ask to include all of that energy, the energy around Valentine's Day, all of that energy we ask to be placed in our collective cup of consciousness to be utilized to raise consciousness, to be transforming individually and collectively for the planet, to lift us vibrationally and to create heaven on earth right here and right now. We ask that Gaia join us in receiving all that we receive. Every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, every energy. And to her cells and chakras and meridians and layers of her auric field multidimensionally. Through all the ley lines and song lines. Through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. And through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As Gaia takes her rightful place and we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution and she takes her rightful place as freedom star. We give thanks for this opportunity to be here at this time and to serve in this way. And we ask to magnify this group service here. As we say, in the name of all that is sacred, 
we invoke the vast awareness of our greater self, the group consciousness blazing within each of our hearts. May our activities today be fully empowered by this enlightened inner presence. We call forth again the assistance of the subtle spiritual realms along with our beloved earth allies, the minerals, the plants, the animals, and the spiritual intelligence of the earth itself. Come and join with us now. We ask that this group be unfolded in a brilliant sphere of universal light. We invite this light to enter the deepest regions of our bodies, minds, and hearts activating the greatest levels of coherence within our collective field. We invoke and give thanks for the shifts in consciousness, which bring our thoughts, words, actions, and feelings into right divine order, raising us into the most virtuous expressions of our true self. We offer sincere gratitude to our source of life for bringing us together for empowering our mission, and for illuminating our group presence. May the work we do together be a bright blessing upon the earth, supporting the highest good of all. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Can we call in and focus upon the energies of divine love? Feel the energy of the transfiguring divine love in through and around you. That is a beautiful rose pink flame with the aquamarine aura and the blazing sun of obolescence coming from the center. We call forth all of the divine mother emissaries we call forth all beings of divine love as we say in the name of my beloved I am presence I call the power of divine love to be magnified within my heart and world daily please affirm with me I am love joyous love radiating love unconditional love God consumes my shadows, transmuting them into pure love. This day, I am a focus of divine love, flowing through every cell of my being. I am a living stream of pure divine love that can never be requalified by fear, anger, hatred, dislikes, greed. All negative thoughts and feelings are now dissolved and consumed by the power of divine love, which I am. And we say, I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I am, I am, I am love. I live in the consciousness of love. I am love in its fullest expression, blessing all humankind with divine love. I radiate love. I am love in action. 
I radiate love. I am love in action. I radiate love. I am love in action. Blessing, uplifting, and healing all on earth. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We ask this love to magnify. We ask the transfiguring divine love of our Mother God to fill and surround the planet. And we affirm, I am aware of my presence in the world. And I know I am one with all life. I gently remove my attention from the outer world and reverently enter the divinity of my heart. I breathe in deeply and on the holy breath I ascend in consciousness into the heart of my mother, father, God. Instantly I am enveloped in the embrace of my mother, God's unfathomable, transfiguring divine love. I hear the melodious tones and I absorb the lush fragrance of my mother's divine love. Suddenly I feel myself soaring into higher frequencies of love than I have ever known. I pierce into the core of purity within the flame of transfiguring divine love. And the splendor of this sacred fire permeates my being. I'm experiencing a love and reverence for life beyond anything I ever dreamed possible. Divine wisdom is awakening within my heart. And in a flash of enlightenment, I know and fully understand how I am to convey this reverence for all life to the mass consciousness of humanity. This realization is seared into my conscious mind and will now be tangibly available to me whenever I need to recall this sacred knowledge in my service to humanity and all life. In deep humility and gratitude, I accept the opportunities that are being presented to me within the heart of God, and I volunteer to be an instrument of God, Goddess, for this transfiguring divine love. Take a nice deep breath. Through my presence, I constitute my life to be the open door through which the full spectrum of the flame of figuring divine love will now to bless all life on earth. For a moment, I assimilate the experience as I began slowly and rhythmically. With each breath, I ascend higher and higher into the multifaceted celestial frequencies of my mother transfiguring divine love. And with every breath, I breathe the sacred fire forth 
to consecrate all life thing on earth as each being evolving on earth is consecrated with the full potential of the flame of transfiguring divine love their I am presence activates specific genetic coding within their RNA DNA structures these codings contain the immaculate concept of each person's divine plan. This activity empowers every beloved son and daughter of God Goddess to fulfill his or her divine purpose and reason for being. Through this activation, the mind and emotions of every person are purified and realigned with the harmony of their true being. This purification paves the way for the conscious mind and the superconscious mind within each individual to merge and become one. In this state of at one each person's I am presence comes to the forefront and takes dominion of his or her life. As this occurs, the life, body, mind, and soul of each person are quickened and lifted into a state of enlightenment that clears the way for the fulfillment of the divine plan and the manifestation of the new earth. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as you see the entire planet filled with and surrounded by this divine flame of love raising higher and higher in frequency with each and every breath that each person takes. With that, we call forth the divine love to be used to create peace throughout the planet. In the name of the all-pervading presence, we call forth all benevolent fields of consciousness forth from the realms of light to launch into immediate action. Great Spirit, empty the vaults of heaven in support of this mighty endeavor to restore love and goodness as the primary governing principles in each and every country of the world. Thank you for empowering us to assist in this important task. Please assist us, Holy Spirit, in inaugurating the era of the right use of power in accordance with the divine plan. Let the power of love guide every thought, action, word, and feeling of all people on earth. Almighty Creator, we invoke the full commanding action of the universal lightning bolt of divine will to blaze through our group body and the entire planet, each and every nation, individually, and all of the world collectively. Help us all to realign with our true source of power, the living spark of your loving presence beating in our hearts. 
thy will be done. We command the light of wisdom to saturate the whole of humanity with increased focus within the nations that are threatened by violence, war, or conflict of any kind. With great equanimity, assist us to acknowledge our responsibility for our individual and collective contributions to the illusion of separation and world conflict. May we truly learn from our conflicted past and move forward to build a new present in the spirit of harmony and pure love. Dear angels of mercy and compassion, blaze the light of forgiveness in through and around every electron of precious life energy, especially at this time in Ukraine and all in Russia and all the surrounding areas, all of Eastern Europe, and each and every nation across the planet. Facilitate true healing and forgiveness between all perpetrators and all victims of violence. Bring peace, understanding, and comfort to all parties. May right human relations be realized throughout the planet. We call forth the mightiest dreams of universal cosmic light to effect a relentless and thorough psychological cleansing of the subconsciousness of every man, woman, and child upon this planet. Through the law of grace, purge and redeem all humanity from the programs of violent conflict and separation in perfect accordance with the greater will. Holy Ones, we invoke your assistance in opening the doors to even greater international cooperation. Keep pouring the light of universal will into every world leader every governmental body, military faction, NGO, societal agency, global think tank, and peacemaker to support the greatest humanitarian outpouring of goodwill the world has ever seen. Let love prevail in every nation. Let all people love. In the name of unity consciousness, We command the light of illumined understanding and unconditional love to penetrate the hearts and minds of all individuals, groups, and leaders currently assisting in the peaceful rehabilitation of any war-torn nations around the planet. May these selfless efforts be sustained through a constant stream of divine intervention until harmony is irrevocably uh, is irrevocably restored. Divine Presence, please provide the necessary ongoing care and support for all refugees and displaced people across the planet. Surge the light of love through all of these brave souls. Inspire new and innovative solutions that aim to permanently resolve all humanitarian crises. In the name of all that is sacred, we command the light of truth 
to flame in exquisite brilliance throughout every form of medium. Permanently dispel all glamorization of war and violence in movies, video games, social media, newspapers, books, TV shows, news programs, and any other channels of media currently used on Earth. Expose all those who have used the media to enslave and manipulate the minds of the masses with endless demonstrations of war and violence. Let the truth be revealed. We call forth and invoke the new Earth societal templates for education and technology to be anchored into the unity grid now. Great presence of all life, please assist us in sparking an even greater holistic resolution in all current educational systems to focus on bringing about the highest potential in every human soul. Simultaneously bring forth the most beneficial advancements in technology that will support our smooth transition into living in absolute harmony with the earth and with each other. Beloved Mother, Father, God, please continue to saturate the land, atmosphere, water, oil, and all expressions of life in and around each and every nation with the light of divine love. Prepare all the land and its beautiful peoples for the imminent return of the law of one. Thank you for helping us to celebrate our cultural differences and to humbly acknowledge the truth of our inherent unity as one family of humanity. We seal this activity in cosmic love, cosmic peace, and cosmic power. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so we focus on the creation of the new earth. Through the divinity pulsating in my heart, I consecrate my life now to the reestablishment my covenant with God, Goddess. I clearly know and understand with my new level of consciousness that whatever I am thinking, feeling, seeing, or doing, I am empowering, co-creating, and magnetizing into my life. From this moment forth, I dedicate my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings to empowering and co-creating the patterns of perfection for the new earth. I begin with me, and I know that I am simultaneously, I am a surrogate serving on behalf of all humanity, for we are all one. As I am lifted up, all life is lifted up with me. I now invoke the entire company of heaven once again to come forth now. Blessed ones, please assist me in this holy endeavor and empower these activities of light a thousand times a thousandfold. 
and we say as one voice, one heart, one being. Beloved Mother, Father God, I am enveloped in the invincible protection of God's light and divine love as I sojourn through my earthly experiences. I am manifesting physical perfection in my earthly bodies. I am co-creating loving relationships in my life. I am fulfilling my divine purpose. And I am financially and creatively rewarded in my work. I am an example of divine family life, including my place in the family of humanity. I am fulfilling my divine potential as a son or daughter, a wife or husband, mother or father, a grandmother or grandfather, a woman or man, as a friend, a relative, a co-worker, a steward of the earth, a teacher, way shower, a light worker, and co-creator of the new earth. I am a living example of divine love, trust, integrity, honesty, tolerance, acceptance, and reverence for all life. I am able to listen, understand, and communicate openly and honestly with every evolving soul. I am effortlessly ascending into the divine heart mind of God with every holy breath I take. Within the causal body of God, I am tapping into the divine guidance and the viable solutions that will assist me in fulfilling my divine plan and my purpose and reason for being. I am open to the divine guidance of my I am presence and the legions of light in the realms of truth. I easily communicate with these beings of light through open heart and mind telepathic communication. I am one with all life and I communicate openly with the angelic and elemental kingdoms as well. I am daily and hourly fulfilling the immaculate concept of the divine plan and the divine plan for beloved Mother Earth. I now invoke the full gathered momentum of the violet flame to transmute every thought, word, action, or feeling that I have expressed in any time frame or dimension, both known and unknown, that would in any way interfere with or prevent these patterns of perfection from the new earth from manifesting tangibly in the world of form. And we affirm, I am the immaculate concept of these patterns of perfection now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am the immaculate concept of these patterns of perfection 
now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am the immaculate concept of these patterns of perfection, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I accept that these patterns for the new earth are victoriously manifesting even as I speak. In God, Goddess's most holy name, I am, I am, I am. Take a nice deep breath and let us envision all that we have called forth. All that we have invoked for ourselves humanity. See each and every person filled with peace, harmony, fulfilling their divine mission, illumined and acting out of divine wisdom, extending love, kindness, cooperation. Reverence for all life, each and every person. Demonstrating all of the divine qualities of divine love, wisdom, power, act, compassion and patience, diplomacy, forgiveness, brother and sisterhood, eternal youth, beauty, perfection, sustained joy, Selflessness, devotion, spiritual freedom, tolerance, knowledge, and self-mastery. See the planet rise in frequency and vibration, along with everyone upon it. See the beloved resurrection flame, the mother of pearl, filling and surrounding the planet. See the flame of purity white frequencies and the ascension frequencies of white and gold filling and surrounding the planet. As all life transformed and transfigured, all life ascended, made whole and free. And everyone is demonstrating their holy Christ self. Everyone is working toward peace and harmony amongst all life and every aspect of life. Divine government is established through the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. We are being governed by the I am presence of each person for the I am presence of each person. as the I am presence of each person. And perfection takes place on the planet in every realm of life, in our physical bodies, free, free from all imperfection, free from all disharmony. Filled with the energies of mortality, 
beauty and use and the perfection of health with the overflowing of supply of every good thing imaginable, every good thing that we could ever desire. We call forth ourselves planet to allow the river of love to flow endlessly, to allow the river of life to flow endlessly. to allow the river of light to flow endlessly, to allow the river of peace to flow endlessly, to allow the river of joy to flow endlessly, to allow the river of abundance to flow endlessly. May this planet filled, surrounded, and truly gifted and integrated with divine grace now and forever as we continue this amazing ascension process. And let us do so with ease and grace. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so we call forth Sandalfon and Mother Gaia to assist us to anchor this. The maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection individually and collectively for our planetary and cosmic ascension. Take a nice deep breath. Feel your feet upon the ground. Feel that pillar so bright, so fully activated directly from the source into the heart of Gaia. And remember who you are. And remember that we are the ones that we have been waiting for. I thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. I invite you to further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We've been going strong for just over 12 years now. And so we really appreciate all of the support of everyone that participates and co-creates each call. These are teleconference calls, and we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, again, every Sunday and Monday about 20, 25 minutes of greetings. Tarn Rama give us a brief update after that. And then we begin our work in earnest of anchoring heaven on earth, being that bridge between heaven and earth, anchoring the new golden age. With all of our prayers and meditations and invocations and visualizations, Each evening is unique, and so we invite you to participate on a regular basis. The main number, in case you haven't 
recorded it. Please get a pen and take this down. The main call-in number is area code 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you as a regular, and please say hello tomorrow and Monday as we celebrate Valentine's Day and continue on with our work with the energies of divine love. Let us know that you heard about the call on the Saturday program. Now, there are additional call numbers. There are international numbers. I just discovered they gave me a list of local numbers if you want to dial in something closer to your home. Let me know if you need additional information, even the way to get on the computer and access the call that way. So you're welcome to do that. Just contact me. Email me at CherylCroce at AOL.com. Put in the title, add to list, and I'll get you the list of the numbers and give you our latest update where we have updates on the new moon. So we'll be doing some full moon work this this weekend, learning about the full moon and what to expect, as well as celebrating our day of love. Contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. So I thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. Thank you for being here on the planet at this time. We want to thank Torin Rama for the same. We want to thank them for their divine service. And we thank Rainbird as well for her divine service. So, Rainbird, this beloved talking stick is filled with every frequency of the new age. It's filled with the golden light of the new age. It's filled with the transfiguring divine love, the rose pink, the aquamarine, the opalescent energy, the mother of pearl, the resurrection flame, the white and gold of the ascension flame. And every single color, the gold of peace, the gold of abundance, every color that we could possibly need, every frequency we could desire, every aspect of divine life and God's energy. So with that, I pass the talking stick as if I let flame in it too. And it is surrounded by so much angelic energy and fairy energy, the minerals, all the beautiful frequencies that we work with on a daily basis. It's all a part. Every energy that's a part of the new age is a part of this talking stick. So it's a very powerful one. And at this time, I pass it to you, my dear friend, Rainbird. Thank you.
trust your out there brain bird. Ready to take the talking stick. If not, maybe Tara wants to take it. Beloved, who's out there? Trust I'm on the air. Anybody here with me? Blessed be, I can keep talking. Hi, Cheryl. I don't know what Rainbird is here. Rainbird, are you here? I'm here. Did she call me? I <laughs> and maybe I drifted a little. Uh, here I am. Hello, greetings. <laughs> I, Rainbird, I didn't hear if you answered me, sir. So thank you for being here. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, and I, I'm, I'm fully present. Thank you. Um, I'll take the talking stick. Okay. Blessings for every time, everybody. Have a magnificent week. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes, thank you. And I am here to here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program. Uh it's all of us that make it happen. So this week we need three hundred dollars for the radio and some some for uh power and llama. So let's look at the radio. We need three hundred dollars that is due on Monday. And um Here's how we make it happen. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then we go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 and you're looking for the menus uh, for Radio Station 2. So just scroll down and you'll find it there or you can click on that. And so it's for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thursday and Friday at the 6 o'clock hour. Um... On Thursdays is the uh, night at the round table with the panel. And on Friday is the hard news with Tara and Rama on Fridays. Uh, so as you click on the icon that is there, that'll take you to our account. And um, there you can use your bank card to make a donation in any amount. So on Saturday, the program, as you know, starts at 1.30 and leaves at Pacific Times. It's the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins. And so you can also click on that icon and make that um, that donation there. So it's how we access our account with ABS Radio. And we are grateful for all your contributions. Uh, our fees are due on Monday, so we try to have this. Uh, $300 by Monday to in order that we can get that in to VBS, uh, in a timely way. We're grateful that all, for all that VBS does for us. And, uh, yeah, we're grateful all, for all the ways that you show up as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that action. So we're also assisting Tara's on with their needs and this week they need Living expenses, which is $300 a week now. Uh, okay. So that covers most everything for eating and gas and food for the car and all that. So taking care of the kitty. And um, they also have three bills this coming up, and we need $300 to cover those bills. 
and they're all due by Tuesday or Wednesday. So we're looking for that money to come in a timely way as well. We can't be late on bills either. So, um, so here's how we make a contribution to Tal and Rama. You want to access Rama's PayPal account, and so you do that by going to the uh, web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And as you're on that website, then click on the menu and, and click on that. The donate link will be at near the bottom of that list. And that will link you to run the PayPal account. You can make a contribution there using your bank card. If you have your own PayPal account, you can access Rama's private uh, account at um, at PayPal Networks and that uh, PayPal for Rama at um, the, the mail for, for Rama at the PayPal is Korean K O R A N nine 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 at Hotmail dot com. So it's got four nines in it. And that way you can use the friends option. <laughs> so either way is perfect. We're grateful for your contributions to help Star and Rama get through the day. And uh, we're grateful also for all that Tara and Rama uh, do. Uh, bring us the information on the galactic level, that faction, good faction three news. So lots of gratitude for taking care of that. And let's see, as you're sending something to Rama and Tara, you want to shoot an email to Rama so he knows that you sent it and when you send it. So that email address from Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. And then as you need, the mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. And, uh, it's at Post Office Box 280280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code for Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87567. And I'll repeat, the zip is 87567. Okay, so there you have it. We have a lot going on at the Free Mart as well, and I want to give you that address for um, for joining Fremark, and that address is https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfremark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. Um, so there's a lot going on there for uh, supplements for yourself, for the environment, and for your abundance. So be sure and go there and check it out. That's Address is where you would go and join. That's the Rainbow Roundtable account. And um, it's account number 7,000. So you know you're there <laughs> in the right place. So there you go. That's everything. And we're so grateful for all your all the ways that you contribute. The 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And here comes this talking stick, and it's full of everything that Cheryl put on <laughs> whatever that is. Somehow I drifted. <laughs> I was trying real hard not to. <laughs> anyway, I'm here, and here comes this talking stick. Greetings, Tara and Rama. 
it's got all the little people on it too. So the Menahunis and the nuns and the, and uh, hobbits are are all hanging on, and everybody's doing a lot of work to to work with all these good rays of the universe and make things happen. So greetings, here comes the talking stick. Uh, we got it. Greetings. Greetings. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Yes, and everyone, I know that you did a marvelous job on getting the uh, $300 from last week. It was due last Monday, and so we got it caught up. Now we've got this Monday, so another 300 is due. So everybody else, more people... Uh, and, you know, make a little bit of something if you don't have a whole lot. And, uh, let's just collectively uh, pull it together. Uh, even in the middle of this 7.5% inflation, the largest inflation in 40 years. Yes. And that's intentional naughty kids. Right, Rama? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we are saying is give peace a chance and abundance yes. is here and Cheryl does such an excellent job of opening our hearts to the uh, abundance abundance ray and uh, the sunshine yellow uh, Lord Katumi active intelligence in other words we can actively intelligize with that ray the sun shines on everyone. It doesn't make choices. And as you would go, I'm just going to make this suggestion, because there's a gen coin that Freemart has, and it's fully backed. Um, that's something that, um, like, uh, Bitcoin's not backed like this. They, uh, Frederick had, uh, I mean, uh, da, I mean, uh, John Austin, he has uh, a number of billionaires that are fully backing the Gen coin. That means there's nothing that can go awry with that. It's newgencoin.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Or you can, is that all you got to do? You don't have to put free, uh, first to uh, go no. to? Okay. Separate website. Okay. So anybody can join anywhere. You don't have to join under anybody. Just join. And the request is that you deposit $50. Then you leave it there for quite a some time. It's something you're going to put there to leave it there for later, like a year or more, like that. And and as it and then they're going to go. They're going to go to the general public with this in May, I believe. So as you're doing it now, you'll be getting 20 cents per dollar every time it goes around. And I'm not sure, but it happens. I don't know if it's every day or what. But uh, anyway, it's 20 cents on the dollar. And it starts accruing. And you want to keep on leaving it there because then as it goes public, it's going to be more than 20 cents it's going to go up a lot and so then it's going to start to really make a difference and this is for projects and our brothers Don and Doug are thinking about a project for water so they're thinking about creating one for theirs too we do this all over the place everybody's got to help 
Water, clean water. That's that's a thing. The others uh, are uh, uh, realty. I don't have all five of them in front of me. Uh, oxygen. Uh, <laughs> soil. Cleaning up the soil. Um, Green energy. Well, that's those are all. Oh. Connected, yeah. I forgive me, but you'll read it all. There's five different things uh, that that will be contributed to by this uh, generation of these collective funds. So co- together, as a group consciousness, we're going to do stuff to clean up all these areas: the air, the water, the soil. Um, the way we do business with each other, that's, and Asara is a very key component to that because we're not doing uh, business for the elites. And I know that people are very uh, furious with these characters. And that brings in this little situation of Mr. Trudeau in Canada, his arrogant little self, which he's got, his, he's not by himself. He is in bed with the same uh, group of elites, and they'll all take a piece of him if he doesn't maintain the mandate. They want him to maintain the mandate. And I don't have the whole story, but I do know a lot has been being said on the news today that uh, the uh, 200 truckers that were parked on the bridge from Windsor, Ontario, going into Detroit, Michigan, that that has been whittled down to 40 and then Rama came home and said it's down to 20 or even 10 now. Yeah. And the thousands and thousands of people is just a handful that are left. And uh, what Trudeau did is threatened to throw them in jail for a year. He wouldn't let them out for a year, no matter what they did. And then he also said they'd have to pay a hundred thousand dollar fine, which is insane. But it's see this this particular bridge has the largest trading going on across borders between the United States, Detroit, Michigan, and Canada. Uh, and I mean, it's the largest trade post, you might say, travel route uh, in all of North America. So the uh, economic stakes are very high, and I'm pretty sure the the truckers know what they're doing when they're doing that, and they're saying, "Stop this this economic." Uh, roadway is just into your pockets, has nothing to do with us. And, uh, that's gotta stop. But that's, that's the nature of the beast right now. And Rama's got something to share. I'll read just the first part that I got, a very small part. And Rama said, I received a call from Tom the Ringtail Cat. And Sweet Angelique, the cat, and it was 11.35 a.m. this morning. They said to me, Lord Rama, you, uh, we, excuse me, we are over Antarctica today. There is a glacier, and we've talked about this in years past, but now it's, like, alarming. Yeah. It's, you know, we talked about it maybe five or six years ago, and they were saying it was, like, Alarming then. So it's a lot more alarming now. It's about to break off. And yes. it's a very huge chunk. It's 
the the chunk of ice glacier that's closest to the southern tip of South America, which has uh, at the very tiniest tip at the south is Argentina, and the rest of it's Chile. So they're going to get underwater there big time. And it's not going to take a long time. In other words, as it really goes, it is going to raise the sea levels around the coastal regions around every continent on Earth. And I don't know the absolute predictions, but I've heard some in the past, like three to nine feet sea level rise on every coastal region on Earth. Yet, as there's going to be tsunami waves on top of it, uh, you're going to get really wet. You know, um, I was talking to a sister today and I said she thinks she's about 100 feet above sea level where she is. And that's an L.A. regional area. Yet, uh, if you're going to have tsunamis, and I mean, in times past, we're talking about 200, 300 feet tsunami waves. So, again, how far are you from the coastal region? What does the earth that's there buffer to slow that down? I know that they were saying that when it really goes, it could be up to 300 miles inland that could be covered before that tsunami wave 200, 300 feet above above us drops. So it's that's a, a not so good report, yet... I would just say plan on moving as Nasara comes in here. Plan on moving more inland if you're close to the coast. Uh, I mean, uh, the maps are mitigated. I mean, if you've seen the I Am America maps and uh, who was the other gentleman that put one out? Oh. What was his name? Uh. Oh, a really good guy too, but Oh, anyway, the, uh, California that looks looks like chopped liver. <laughs> uh, I mean, just places where there's just islands still there, not uh, landmass. And uh, it's uh, it's like we said, it's it it will be mitigated, but not so much because of these guys pushing the river so far, and. Uh, there are certain practical things that we, the people, must consider in terms of the damage done. And uh, meditate and pray and uh, stay in that higher spiritual awareness and consciousness. And you will get the messages and they'll come to all the channelers too. There are so many people now that are waking up to... to uh, going beyond fear and just learning what we need to do. Yeah. Mother Earth has to do her thing. She, she has does. to rearrange things because there are Earth humans, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> don't listen too well. This. I passed the talking stick to you. Uh, I got to just say that reality is stranger than fiction because the reality is not a fiction but they're playing with this false reality called the Matrix, and it is right out of, you know, I could say Stanley and Jack Kirby with megalomaniacs playing for control of the planet, and 
you know, like I keep saying, the Eternals, the Immortals, the Guardians are here. And I do not believe we are going to watch the movie 2012 in real time where California <laughs> turns into islands. Yet, they are playing with stuff. Earth Mother is doing what she is doing. The Pacific Rim of Fire is fully activated. And the sun is doing his, her thing, which is moving into a higher octave. In return, we are moving into a higher octave, the whole planet. This is a galactic event that is so huge. Yet, you know, the only thing our so-called Earth-based scientists talk about is this, you know, climate change. And it is the three things Greg Braden brings up. Climate disruption, consciousness, and conflict. During the time of, of Atlantis and Lemuria, we talked to all the kingdoms, all the queendoms, all the realms. They talk to us. We don't do that anymore. So shit happens. And it is happening at an exponential level. Grace happens too. Grace happens too in the most unlikely of places. You know, the animals watch the animals. They know. They will tell you before the news will tell you. So, Mama, the, to go on with the report, because the last thing you had me write is that this glacier is the, roughly the size of Mexico. And it is very close to breaking off, and the water underneath it is warm. Some of the water is 60 degrees. That is, like, insane in terms of Antarctica. It's supposed to be solid ice. Well, that Lake Vostok, they said, is 60 degrees. It's been 60 degrees for many, many years. Yes. A whole lake there. This also has to do with the center of the earth. (coughs) (coughs) The inner earth where the core, we have an iron core, We also have an inner earth sun called the Terra that is connected with our sun in the sky called Sol. These are all connected. They don't teach us this in basic science in grade school or high school. I mean, I've had to learn this from experiencing it, talking to the folks I talk to. And they're all connected, yet... The inner earth, the core, is heating up and it has to do with all the other planets in our solar system. There are 12 to 14 planets, not just 9 or 10, and it has to do with the transfiguration of our sun on a larger scale. All these things affect climate change climate disruption as our consciousness lifts higher we talk to the elementals to the tiniest ants and the pixies to the archangels they'll talk to us don't let us know what 
they need in terms of energy, like rays of energy decrease the frequencies of harmony and balance, like the sopheggio tones. As ridiculous as it sounds, I go and play sopheggio tones and the tones that Micah sends us to the river, the Rio Grande River, and I know it does something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and what they also talked about is that as the higher energies that keep pouring in, something happens with the quantum field and that is like all of a sudden everybody is getting it and just saying no. And on a certain level, I could say that the masks are coming off, so to speak, quite literally. <laughs> <coughs> Yet, at the same time, uh, the exposure, uh, it, it <coughs> excuse me, They just said the exposure is unprecedented of folks waking up. And they talked about talking to the crystals. The crystals know, and they have the records for thousands, millions of years. As you talk to your crystals, they will show you the videos just like YouTube. All you got to do is ask and tune in. I passed the talking stick. Okay, so there is another little bit here uh, just to share a little more. And then there's going to be a, a young lady here that Rama's going to play. She has plenty to tell us. But um, her name is Dr. Ariana Love, and she's a naturopathic doctor. And she took 10 days to read all the patents for the jabs. And um, um, this piece that she's talking to everybody on, it's called This Information Will Shock You. And hopefully into an awakened state. That's what she's hoping. In other words, we have something to say and the most important thing about the truckers is that they made sure that they had their say. And, of course, they lost millions every single day that they were blocking those bridges, believe me. And it was intentionally meant to be so that uh, the pipeline there is, is completely out of balance, you know. We get 1% of the benefits and they get the rest. Uh, and, uh, 
There's a whole lot of people that would love to hang these people and watch them go I away. I heard something today. Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, actually put out some kind of criminal document saying Dr. Fauci needs to be immediately arrested and taken to Rikers Island. Oh. You know, that's a medieval dungeon, just like Belmarsh Prison, where Julian Assange is. And that doesn't solve anything. No, it doesn't. It keeps the old matrix going. And this is not how we heal. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, makes us all blind and toothless. Yeah, that don't If you work. are already. All right, let's 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 listen to our sister. Let's listen to her. She's 12 minutes here, everyone. Okay. Um, mm. Yeah, well, I was reading the studies. I was reading the patents on all these COVID, um, what they call vaccines, they're not vaccines at all. They're they're using chimeric proteins. They're bioweapons. And they were mostly developed in Wuhan, China. And that's that's also mentioned in the patents. Um, so basically what they're doing is they're genetically modifying humans and cloning. You know, they've biohacked into the cells and they're cloning, you know, deleting genes and cloning humans with animal DNA and animal diseases that normally would not um, infect humans. Do you, do you think then that's maybe, because we keep hearing all about this this uh, gain of function in the Wuhan lab and stuff like that, and a lot of people are kind of of the opinion that COVID was invented in a, in a lab. I, I kind of, I'm looking more at the idea that perhaps the gain of function is actually for the vaccine. Is that something that you would go along with? Yeah, it is. It is. It's gain of function. Um, this technology was developed in Wuhan, China, and in universities in the United States and in universities in China. So it's like this is a New World Order type of a, of a thing. Most of the patents, they're owned by the CC, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, and Israel, the Israeli state. So, I mean, you know, these are the... They have the most vested interest in patenting and owning humans. Mm-hmm. What was your so, reaction to this when you saw this? I was totally shocked. I literally had to teach myself a new language, like medical language. I was 10 days nonstop in front of the computer and translating studies and the codes and this medical language. I, looked, I taught myself a new language. Now I can read any study. But, um, yeah, I was shocked, and I realized that doctors don't know these things, and they need to. They need to read the patents, and if they can't read the patents, they can read my articles because I've highlighted all the most important things, and I have all the links to, you know, that will help them speed up their research. But there is a, a um, there is this, the U.S. The, the US Army just recently um, released their, they announced their new vaccine, okay, which is a spike ferritin nanoparticle. That's what it's called, spike ferritin nanoparticle vaccine. So there's no question that nanoparticles are in it. Uh, they claim that it works against the variants, but this is a big lie. And I'd like to point this out to your audience. It's um, 
So we have these variants, right? They're called the B117 alpha variant that showed up in the UK, the B135 beta in South Africa, the B1529, that's the Omicron variant. But all of these are codes for genetic lineages in humans. What they're actually doing is deleting genetic codes in humans and using CRISPR-Cas9 technology. And so after the gene deletion, they're coding the cells with artificial genetic sequences using messenger RNA or the mRNA. Now, the CDC website, they even admit to gene deletion that gene deletion causes the variants. And they <clears throat> they tell that the amino acid asparagne is being replaced with an amino acid tyrosine. So when you delete genes, your body's no longer producing those proteins, and then they code with an artificial genetic sequence. Then a new protein is being produced. That's the tyrosine. Well, that causes rapid cancer growth. So that explains that. In these gene deletions, they're also behavioral modification. They are decreasing people's intelligence and reducing the lifespan to two to three years. So they're also um, enhancing the ACE2 receptor binding. So that's an explanation for doctors. It's gene deletion causing this. Um, what they're doing is cross-species genomics. They're basically taking animal diseases and they are infecting humans with cells with it. Normally, animal diseases cannot affect humans. They have to inject the disease into, into people and then transfect the cells. That's how you infect humans with an animal disease. So this spike ferritin nanoparticle, <clears throat> the shot, the patent says that SARS-CoV-2 is a glycoprotein S, and they also call this the coronavirus spike protein. So they are the mystery of salt. It's a glycoprotein S. It's a chimeric protein created in a lab. Now, the patent also says it's using HIV-1, which is patented and owned by Anthony Fauci. So he is profiting from this. Ah. Then the patent also states that it, it came from Wuhan, China. So you can't make this stuff up. Um, and also, the patent it contains uh, aluminum hydroxide. And aluminum hydroxide is made from graphene oxide. And they call it the L-hydrogel. So 100% proof that graphene oxide is in this shot. Now, the glycoprotein S, now get this, it's made from bullfrog DNA. Okay, so they are not only injecting bullfrog DNA into humans, they are transfecting human cells with it. So, you're, so the human cells will continuously reproduce bullfrog DNA. Um, who doesn't want that, right? Oh, yeah. Now, the study, yeah, the studies also show that the, the, the B117 alpha variant is caused by 69 through 70 gene deletion in humans. The B135 beta variant is caused from the 241-243 gene deletion. So gene deletions cause gene mutations. Gene mutations cause the variants. This is how they're getting the variants. Now, the CDC also openly admits that Omicron is a result of the S gene dropout. So this is by gene 69 through 70 deletion. That's um, basically, and the WHO also states that the RT-PCR kit is, targets the S gene. And Thermo Fisher, who owns the patent for the RT-PCR, says that S gene is a 69 through 70 deletion. So it's really clear that this is the PCR test is not a test at all. It's actually a marker test for them to determine 
if you're patent eligible, if the human is patent eligible, how is the cloning process going? How far along are they in transfection? Um, and basically also it deletes genes. These, these PCR kits contain the hydrogels, which contain the entire weapon system, and they are deleting genes. And it's right in front of our faces. It's right out in the open. It's open source. Now, Pfizer also admits in their study that gene deletion causes SARS-CoV-2 variants, the Lambda, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, they actually name them. Wow. It sounds so, like from a, from a sci-fi film, isn't it? Exactly. That's what I was saying. And these gene, gene deletions, they are permanent. Um, a, a gene knockdown is temporary. The genes can come back and be turned back on, but gene knockout is permanent, and they are doing gene knockouts. So this is horrifying for people, I know, when they're hearing this, but there is hope. There are supplements that can um, disable this weapon system and then enable your body to detoxify and push these things out. The key is early intervention. Some of the damage might be permanent, it's, you know, because this is, this is permanent deletion. And the key is to, to do no more shots and early intervention. I, I read an article yeah. actually in, in, in 20, it was 2016, I think. Um, I believe it was in the Guardian. It was in, a, it was a scientific um, article where it was saying that they've been testing on mice a specific protein that when injected that they could actually manipulate via electromagnetic field, they could uh, affect the mood of the mice. So they could make the mice happy, they could make the mice sad, they could make mice want to eat, not want to eat, whatever. And and I went back to it, actually, when, when they came out with this um, US Army uh, vaccine, because the protein they used on that, on those mice was ferritin. Oh, <laughs> bullfrog. <laughs> yeah, which makes you think, you know, if you can inject people as well, and you can then externally control their mood, make them more obedient or whatever. This is exactly what, as Moderna calls it, an operating system. I call it a weapon system because they're biohacking into people's cells. It's a raping of the human being. It's a stealing of the DNA, deleting our God-given codes, coding artificial sequences, and it is behavioral control. I mean, they can actually, you know, they have these, these shots have biosensors, nanosensors, they can hook you up to the internet. They can control you externally, the patent holders, I mean, and they can upregulate and downregulate your genetic codes ex from external um, commands. So this is like, you know, there's no way out. It's, I guess you could call it beast technology, and it's absolute slavery where a person loses entirely their free will, maybe even loses their, their own thoughts. Um, you know, because they can actually erase memory in the brain. They can they can install new memories. It's terrifying. Have, have you um, taken your findings to <laughs> to vaccine manufacturers? And, and 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 you know, because not everyone obviously that works for those companies is going to be in on this. You know, some some people on the ground floor. You know, and you go, you know, look at this. Well, I'm just one person. I hope that other people will use my um, articles to take action, send it to politicians, send it to, again, vaccine manufacturers, try to recruit people on our side, file police reports um, in your country. We need to get as many police investigations as possible, serve notices of liability, 
to the criminals that, that, you know, once you give the information to somebody and they don't act, you can serve them with a notice of liability and they can be held accountable in a court of law later on. Um, there is a uh, lawsuit right now, an investigation at the ICC was filed by Reiner Fulman. There's another investigation at the uh, Metropolitan Police in London, in UK. And there's an, also an investigation here in, in Finland. So what people should be doing is contacting them, contacting the Metropolitan Police, sending their testimonies, flood them with emails and, you know, and your, your, and testimonies and stuff. These are the actions that like anybody can take. So, um, there, I want to see more people taking action though. I mean, I hope that this, this interview, you know, wakes people up. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Thank, thank you so much for, for talking to us. And thank you for, for, for all the work that you're doing. And, and like you say, I just hope people take your articles and your, and, and the knowledge that you've got and, 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 you know, be proactive with it. But, but we really appreciate everything you're doing. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Put that in your cup of, cup of tea and drink it. <laughs> I'll just say that this is right out of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. And the 13 families are not going to be able to create a droid, a droid race known as the Borg, even though they're trying. Yeah. It, it is very terrifying, like the lady said. And using the violet flame and working with the angels and the masters and the teachers, it changes everything. I speak from experience. Use the force. It's not a joke. Okay, now last night we played something exceptionally different for an hour and 25 minutes, so we're going to play Redacted tonight now. So here we go. Just gotta get something to tune up the tune up the music here. Or we dare. Don't know why not. Doesn't know I found. Welcome to Redacted tonight. This past weekend, I was sitting in my hot tub. That's really just a bathtub. That's really just my neighbor's bathtub that he lets me use when he's out of town. (laughs) I found his apartment key, and it occurred to me. I don't think most Americans are happy with our political system. I don't know why not. I don't know why not. But much like that South Carolina waffle waitress I've always regretted, it's right on the tip of my tongue, as was an unidentified fungus the following day. Wait, I got it. It's because both mainstream parties are owned by corporate America, and they all stand for the same... And they haven't actually been face-to-face with a regular human being since they fathered the first of their 14 children and the surrogate mother happened to bring her boyfriend to the birth, or as the rich call it, the human baby transfer to its rightful owners. And sure enough, a new survey verifies that most Americans are not happy with the false choice between our two political parties. The new poll from NBC News found that the Democrats and Republicans are about as popular as the horseback hemorrhoid clinic near my house. It's got a ride-through window, but that doesn't seem to help either. According to the poll, 44% of participants said they viewed the Republican Party negatively, 34% viewed it positively. 
The Democratic Party's ratings were fairly similar, with 48% having a negative view and 33% a positive view. And I would imagine those numbers of positivity for the parties are actually higher than reality. Because anyone willing to take an NBC News phone poll is already not the sharpest tool in the insane asylum. <laughs> that poll doesn't count the roughly 64% of respondents who didn't answer the poll, but instead graphically described what the pollsters could do to themselves, given the right kind of genitalia, lubricant, and apostrophatic adjustable bed. But you have to burn the bed afterwards. There's a lot of reasons so many people hate the two parties, the two corporate parties. But one of the biggest ones might be just how thoroughly they are bought off by the 1%. And no, I don't mean the 1% of people who like Trident's new Indian curry-flavored chewing gum. I mean the 1% who are the disgustingly wealthy. People who own ponies for their children to play with and children for their ponies to play with. And they <laughs> own all of our politicians also for their children to play with. Which explains why Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand were forced to dress up like snorks for an entire month. Or maybe they just needed the snorkels to be able to breathe under the avalanche of bullshit. Huh. But yes, our politicians are more bought off than ever before. A new analysis from Americans for Tax Fairness found that total billionaire contributions have soared over the past few years. The cycle before the Citizens United decision only saw $16 million worth of donations from billionaires. This past cycle saw $2.6 billion worth of donations. That's more than Travis Scott spent on his vintage Jordans hand-delivered by Jordan. And how does that much money impact our elections? Well, the candidate who spends the most wins in the Senate 85% of the time and wins in the House close to 90% of the time. But it's even worse than that, because those numbers don't tell you that the two parties which spend the most money win 100% of the time, meaning there's essentially never the possibility that a third party can win a seat in Congress. Only the puppets of corporate America get to fill the Senate chambers with their endangered species, ragu's fiddle, and their high-end beer farts. So, keep those numbers in your mind for, for just for a moment. Billionaires spent uh, $2.6 billion on the last election, and the two parties that received the most money win the elections 100% of the time. But I'm sure it's just uh, as bad in other countries, right? Much like existential angst or the awkwardness when your barber wants to tell you about his botched prostate exam. Some things are just universal, right? Well, no. In Britain, in the 2017 general election, 75 parties and 18 campaign groups reported spending 41.6 million pounds between them. That's roughly only 54 million American dollars at the time. Meanwhile, just two people, casino magnates, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, set a new record for donations from individuals in a single election cycle, giving $172.7 million in the U.S. elections. Those two dark sifts in ill-fitting skin suits spent three times as much as all of Great Britain spent on their election. Well, what about France? France is different, right? In France, the amount of money a presidential contestant is allowed to spend is limited to 16.8 million euros. The limit is raised by 5 million for the two finalists in the second round. 
So basically, French presidential candidates spend less on their entire campaigns than Bill Gates spent on the Mylar happy birthday balloons he bought for Jeffrey Epstein in 2016. The balloons spelled out, you're not old, it's just that everyone else is underage. And I'm sure it was funny at the time. I'm sure it was good at the time. Yeah. How about Germany? Do their oligarchs own the system as much as in the U.S.? In 2017, parties spent 92 million euros, 109 million dollars combined on their election campaigns. Only 109 million dollars total spent on their elections. And yet still, a Jungian burst with a bow tie won a seat in the Bundestag. That's a form of tongue sausage, by the way. But arguably, several tongue sausages also won Senate seats here in the U.S. But Germany actually could have gotten a lot worse. Super Dickman's most could have won. Even his campaign promises had an NC-17 rating. Anyway, Germany spent $109 million on their entire election. How much did the U.S. spend? The 2020 election cost $14.4 billion. Over $14 billion! That's more than the gross domestic product of Mozambique. And they have Maconde masks that help with fertility. So, you know they're pulling in some cash. If I was going to go with a pun, I would have said, they're moving some units, but I would never do that. I would never do that. And let me repeat, the two candidates who spend the most, meaning the two corporate candidates, win the elections 100% of the time, which is like all of the percentages that there are. This is a real photo of what it looks like to win a Senate seat. Except nowadays, that white guy would claim he's half black, half gay, and used to be in the CIA. Point is, this is a rigged system. No wonder the latest polls show both parties are hated, and more Americans view themselves as independent than either Republican or Democrat. Every trip to the ballot box is no different than taking a super Dickman's moose to the face. Coming from Washington, D.C., the Valley of the Beast. This is Redacted tonight. some news. Amnesty International, the human rights organization that has worked for years to finally free candles from their bondage. I mean, who would wrap a candle up in barbed wire like that? It's unconscionable. Unless it's a lavender candle. Lavender! Anyway, Amnesty International took a big step this past week by finally declaring Israel an apartheid state. Sure, there are many decades too late on this, but as I said to the blockbuster video delivery boy who yesterday brought me my much-sought-after VHS copy of Revenge of the Nerds 2, I said, better late than never. Don't tell me what happens, by the way. I'm hoping the nerds finally get their comeuppance. Point being, who do they think they are? Point being, even the largest human rights organizations in the world are finally catching on to the abuse perpetrated against the Palestinians by Israel. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm Jewish. Actually, you're allowed to say that even if you're not Jewish. Just don't, just, here, just don't crinkle your nose when you say the word Jewish. If you go, they're Jewish, fine. If you go, they're Jewish. Very anti-Semitic, alright? It's anti-Semitic as Mel Gibson stuck in line in Delhi. 
But the reason anyone can say this is because you're just pointing out a fact. Israel is a oppressive apartheid state that kills, maims, and destroys the lives of Palestinians. Anyone can say that. Much like anyone can say the U.S. is an oppressive warmongering nation that has killed six million innocent people with our brutal wars over the past 20 years. These are facts. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can't also like something about the U.S. Sure. For example, uh, uh, the, the impressive availability of inflatable water wings with black Santa Claus on them. That aspect of America is very admirable and constitutes the pinnacle of human achievement. But the whole killing six million people thing also should be discussed. Same with Israel. There are great things there. It's got beautiful views, as long as you don't look towards the open-air prison. It's also got great uh, nuclear missiles. I mean, no, no, what? No, 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 no. I don't, they don't have any nuclear bank, banks, but who, who told you that? And the Watson and Jeremy Corbyn aren't real Harry Potters, okay? There's no such thing. Much like Israel's nuclear bombs the Pentagon admitted to before it unadmitted to it. I did the same thing when accused of stealing all the sugar packets and televisions out of the lobby of the Days Inn in Cincinnati. I thought they were complimentary. What I'm saying is that everyone should support Amnesty International as they come out of the dark ages and acknowledge Israeli apartheid. They said Amnesty International's new investigation shows that Israel imposes a system of oppression and domination against Palestinians across all areas under its control in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory and against Palestinian refugees in order to benefit Jewish Israelis. This amounts to apartheid as prohibited in international law. Exactly. Exactly. Wait. Did, did that say new investigation? Is anyone concerned that it took from 1982 to now to get that investigation to Amnesty's headquarters? Did they deliver it from Israel one page at a time by way of a two-legged camel? Or maybe Amnesty's 1993 fax machine only prints one letter per page. Man, their pledge drives are not going well. Maybe they shouldn't have used those male strippers for their I Am Nasty campaign. Anyway, let's give Amnesty a high five in their ongoing effort to defend Palestinian human rights while also supporting dominatrix sex with hot wax and barbed wire. Maybe it's their fetish hobby that's distracted them from noticing Israeli apartheid until just now. A little, little, little more work time working, guys, all right? A little less time with the barbed wire wrapped around the tent pole. Get nasty on your own time, okay? Own time for that. Own time. Well, let's continue to another good news story. Very exciting. A federal court has revoked Biden's massive oil and gas lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico. Hold on. Well, what's wrong with allowing loads of oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico? Nothing ever goes wrong there. I mean, except for it catching fire from time to time because we've covered it in oil. But the same thing happened to five-time Mr. Olympia Ronnie Coleman, and he's fine, okay? I never could understand why our muscle men need to be greased up. Is, is, is one of the portions of the Mr. Olympia contest a giant slip and slide or... Or perhaps they're looped up because of that time Arnold Schwarzenegger got lodged in a public restroom stall and had to be cut out by the fire department. Is that it? 
Anyway, the court found that the Biden administration relied on faulty environmental analysis when it offered more than 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas leasing. I feel like right now I'm making the same face as the guy at the funeral parlor when I ran in and said, which casket is best for keeping a secret? But I thought Biden was the guy who won't care about climate change. Well, I guess we, we just need to rest assured that at least Biden is allowing less oil and gas drilling than Donald Trump did. Uh, new data shows Biden's first year drilling permits beat Trump's by 34%. Oh, oh just one second. That, the source on that was called biologicaldiversity.org, which sounds like a hippy dippy burning man female armpit hair kind of source, all right? Let's, let's check establishment anti-communist female armpits as silky smooth as Ronnie Coleman's thighs source, the Washington Post. <laughs> the Biden administration has approved more oil and gas drilling permits on public lands per month than the Trump administration did during the first three years of Donald Trump's presidency. What? But I voted for Joe Biden because... Says the liberal who watched MSNBC and actually believed it. I didn't actually vote for Biden. I wasn't legally allowed to vote because of a previous conviction. Let's just say you know that drug-free zone sign outside elementary schools? I misread it. Yeah, the brochures on dyslexia don't tell you that it could result in selling heroin to seven-year-olds. Anyway, why is it? The so-called guy who cares about the climate, who cares about climate change, is pumping more oil and gas than the 24-hour fried chicken and gravy stand off the I-75 exit ramp in Macon, Georgia? Hmm. To figure this out, maybe we should follow the money. Uh, let's see. I'll just get out my trusty search machine that I invented myself. Beep, boop, beep, 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 beep. Oh, my God. He says knowingly, Joe Biden in 2020 received the most amount, sorry, the second most amount of oil and gas money of any candidate, second only to Donald Trump. Now, you may be saying, listen, television man with beard that could be thicker in some places, of course they got the most oil and gas money. They were the two idiots running for president. Yes, but think about that. The guys getting the most money from oil and gas were our two choices for president? Why not just tell everyone to choose between the Exxon Mobil tiger and the Shell oil shell? I mean, do you honestly believe that mollusk would do worse than Trump or Biden? That thing is ten times as ethical as Donald Trump and knows the names of twice as many of its own grandkids as Biden does. And it has 30,000 grandkids. And yes... You could have voted for a third party, but in most states, they have the third party ballots hidden behind a rat-infested dumpster out back at polling place, and they can tell you they'll only accept the ballot if you pee on it first. Well, geez, having the two biggest oil puppets as our two choices to run the country is a kind of warm and comfortable feeling, right? Because it's what we're used to. It was the same in 2016. Okay, Ted Cruz beat them, but it was close. And it was the same in 2012, and it was the same in 2008. I'm noticing a pattern. Just like when the fourth blind date in a row told me my feet shouldn't smell like that naturally. Sometimes patterns can help you learn something. We're going to a quick break, but 
Check out my podcast. It's called Moment of Clarity, and it's free on any podcast platform. I'll be right back. A lot more. Hold on, everybody. <laughs> well, Dan, I'm still late. Sweet, we must. Welcome back. I'm Stoley Camp. While the fossil fuel industry is getting all kinds of well-earned scrutiny for its role in climate change, some scientists say more attention should be paid to environmental damage done by the chemical industry. For more, we're joined by our correspondent who most frequently calls the poison control hotline, Anders Lee. Hey, Anders. Hello, Anders Lee here at a chemical plant doing some of the least worst production in the United States of America. Least worst? What do you mean? What do I mean? Just think of fossil fuels or all the maple syrup saperies that make everything smell like pancakes or the tens of birds getting killed by windmills. Why aren't we talking about that? Green energy has a dark side, too. All right. Leaving all that aside, why don't you tell us exactly what kind of impact the chemical industry is having? Okay, so it's true that the chemical industry is responsible for 3.3 gigatons, or 7%, of global greenhouse gas emissions. But fossil fuels produce 89% of carbon emissions, which, in case you're not a math person, is a much higher number. Plus, a lot of the chemical industry's emissions come from having to use fossil fuels. It's not their fault that chemical products like rubber and plastic are made from oil and gas, or that they have to use fossil fuels to power production. If we were to convert to wind and solar, the chemical industry would be the first in line. The first in line to what? Lobby Congress to reverse it. But after that, if bribing EPA inspectors didn't work, then they would comply. Maybe. It's a real bit of confidence there. But it's not just using fossil fuels that's the problem here, right? Don't chemical companies also emit harmful chemicals? Seems like that would kind of come with the territory when it comes to making, you know, Chemicals. Uh, that is such a cheap shot. Yes. Gun companies lead to gun deaths. TikTok leads to migraines. And the manufacture of ethylene, propylene, and ammonia leads to a little pollution and environmental racism here and there. A lot of the greenhouse gases they emit have big, complicated names like hydrofluorocarbons. It's practicing that one a warrant. Which are used as refrigerants and foam blowing agents and are 3,800 times more damaging to the climate than carbon dioxide. Jesus. So people aren't paying attention to this because the names of the greenhouse gases are too clunky and sciencey sounding? Exactly. Carbon dioxide sounds so much sexier than hydrofogger chlorophyll. Anders, you let me down again. The X in the middle of dioxide grabs your attention. The die at the beginning reminds you of what's going to happen to all of us if we don't reduce enough emissions. Right. Carbon of all kinds needs to stop getting shot into the atmosphere at such a suicidal rate. What changes can be made to the chemical industry that will help humans avoid extinction? Well, they say one of the most effective things governments could do is ban single-use plastics. That would bring down carbon dioxide emissions, the sexy coming, by millions of metric tons. Okay, sounds like a no-brainer. Until you consider how much everyone hates paper straws. If Americans stop getting hit in plastic sports with our takeout barbecue, there will be blood in the streets. So, all right, what else are you proposing, huh? Well, the EPA has announced that they'll be trying to reduce hydrofluorocarbon emissions in the U.S. in our own special, innovative way. We're going to use carbon capture, 
to reduce HFCs, which is a much easier way to say it, rather than replacing them with safer chemicals that don't harm the climate. This will result in emissions of other hazardous air pollutants, like chloroform, hydrochloric acid, chlorine, and hydrogen fluoride. So in other words, just like fossil fuels, this industry is destroying the planet, and the current political and economic order in this country is incapable of stopping it. I just really like sporks. Okay. Thanks, Anderson. Moving on. Police do a lot of illegal things, which we've covered at length on this show, but some of the legal things they do are also very shocking. Police will go to great lengths to get confessions out of suspects, many of whom are innocent. For more on this raging controversy, we go to Redact Correspondent, and we care about it. The retrial of Prakash Sharman is underway in Queens, New York. When Prakash was 15 years old and knew nothing about the legal system, police extracted a murder confession out of him, though there was no physical evidence. Now 22 years old, having grown up in the prison system, he's ready to throw away a generous plea deal that would have set him free to prove his innocence at another trial. Besides the dubious confession, the only other evidence against him is one 74-year-old ear witness. An ear witness. Yes, ear witnesses are not that reliable. That's probably why we'll never have a show called Ear Witness News. Tonight on Ear Witness News, is that a murderer getting away, or is it a cat rustling a plastic bag? Tune in at 5.30 to wonder with us what happened. 22% of people accused of homicide gave false confessions. Children are almost four times as likely as adults to confess to crimes they didn't commit. The number of erroneous confessions among young people has led some states, like Illinois, to bar police from lying to minors during questioning. And a few others may follow suit. That's good news for teenagers facing the police. But once you have the age of 18, sorry, buddy, you're no longer easy to manipulate. And we can say the murder victim was covered in your fingerprints. I mean, you're 18. You can handle some lies. You're old enough to vote. I mean, how else are you going to get the midterm campaign ads? Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. Police lie for all kinds of reasons. To secure a confession, to cover up their misdeeds, or to persecute political opponents. Phoenix police lied and told the grand jury that Black Lives Matter protesters were in a gang deadlier than the Crips and the Bloods. It's called ACAB, the acronym All Cops Are Bastards Gang. They're in every city. Phoenix police and MCAO claim the group is a gang for three reasons. One, because they chanted ACAB. Two, they dressed in black. Three, they carried umbrellas. Everyone knows gangsters carry umbrellas. I mean, one thing the homies won't stand for... That's moisture. An even more sinister way cops lie is using forged DNA reports to get confessions out of suspects. Yes, police are forging documents. And not just their COVID vaccine cards or their Quiznos loyalty cards. I mean, you do get a free meatball sub. There's actually nothing illegal about presenting forged evidence. In fact, it's very, very legal. The Virginia Beach Police Department said in a statement that the technique, though legal, was not in the spirit of what the community expects. Mm -hmm. Silly community. We all thought that forging was illegal. 
Though it is confusing why they taught us cursive in elementary school if we're not supposed to forge our parents' signatures on missing homework slips. I mean, why are you teaching us this medieval scribble then? The reason the police use this sanctioned technique of photocopying lab results is because it's so effective at securing confessions. I mean, imagine you're a suspect shown this chart. You'd be like, oh damn, well, my blood was there. I guess I was there. Do you think my sleepwalking would get this bad that I would murder someone? <sighs> if only I limited my screen time before bed. Take me in. You think by now it's common sense that police should not be able to forge evidence and police should not be able to tell people, hey, if you confess to this murder, you can totally go home right now. As they often do with children. If cops wanted to, they could say, if you confess to this murder, you could be entered to win a sweepstakes to win $10 million. <laughs> Prakash was able to raise a defense fund and get his first trial overturned, but how many Prakashas are sitting there in prison after false confessions? We don't know. We have to demand that our leaders take responsibility and put the spirit of what the community expects back into the laws that the community is governed by. Because, honestly, I would probably fall for the sweepstakes thing. Reporting from Washington, I'm Amy Caravani for Redacted Tonight. That's our show, but get every episode and extra content at portable.tv. And check out the Redacted Tonight podcast. It's called Moment of Clarity on Stitcher, Spotify, and iTunes. Until next time, good night and keep fighting. Okay, everybody. Um, I want to read something. This is uh, about our lovely president, Joe Biden. Oh, that. Yeah, that. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, and get ready for playing one of our Gaia TV ones. You can pick here. Um, yeah, okay. Give it to you there. But, um... This is called Chinese Batteries, and I, we've got to thank Penny. She found this one. A humdinger. Yes, an eagle eye is a good thing to have. So now we know. And why is it not a conflict of interest? Okay, what are we talking about here? Look up capital C, capital A, capital T, like in Tom, capital L. The Chinese-owned... Lithium Battery Company, whose value has skyrocketed since Joe Biden took office. Uh, guess where there is a gold mine of lithium? <clears throat> you guessed it. I know you did. We've said it a million times on this show. Afghanistan. Guess who owns 10% of Chinese-owned lithium battery company, Kettle. You guessed it, Hunter Biden. You starting to see why old Pops was so quick to get us out of Afghanistan? And he left hundreds and hundreds of people to die in his wake. Probably more than hundreds, I'm sorry to say. You start, you starting to see why, like I said, old pops was so quick to get out of Afghanistan. 
Taliban is set to make trillions on selling their lithium to China. Oh, joy. And the Bidens stand to make billions. And I want you to just remember back, I don't remember the year, but it's at least five or so more years. Uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter went to China to cut a deal. This is that deal. In other words, they thought that far ahead that China said, okay, you can have billions as long as you, you know, leave Afghanistan and then uh, the Taliban will give us trillions and you'll get some of yours for your own stuff. Billions. Talk about a deal made dirt cheap. Always follow the money. And you will find the answers to the baffling decisions they make. By the way, lithium is... All the technologies need lithium, from cell phones to computers to... We're going to go on here. Let's go on here. Hard to believe how crooked the Biden crime family is. And we just sit by and watch it happen. And hundreds lost their lives during his botched pullout. Yet he really doesn't care because he is as evil as they come. His entire regime and family is wickedly rotten to the core. And then this was reported six days ago. The Biden's own 10% of the Chinese lithium-ion battery company, Contemporary Amperex Technology Company Limited, or CATL, whose stock has soared for some reason. And then there's a little reference here at the bottom. It says Amperex Technology Company Limited, abbreviated as CATL, C-A-T-L, is a Chinese battery manufacturer and technology company founded in 2011 that specializes in the manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles and energy storage systems as well as battery management systems. Now, I want to take you back to 2006 and um, Bush Jr. The uh, post office was getting ready to uh, make more vehicles, all new vehicles, and they were all going to be electric vehicles. And George Bush said, no, I'm going to make you... Um, Every year, pay $5 billion in advance of even unborn people that are going to be working for you so that you can stash their uh, pensions or whatever, you know, for them uh, when they retire 75 years from now. And that's what stopped producing electric vehicles for the post office. Bring it up to the present moment right here. Uh, Mr. Drump. A fossil fuel hack, Mr. Trump appointed another fossil fuel hack to head the post office, Mr. DuJoy. And Mr. DuJoy said, I am going to make uh, 90%, I'm going to turn over 90% of the trucks for the post office, and I'm going to, I'm going to 
I'm going to take those 90% postal vehicles and make them fossil fuel vehicles. So now what you've got is a little war between Biden the evil and Trump slash DeJoy the evil. And we just read today that there is a glacier that has all this warm water under it, and it's got a crack It's huge, and it's about to break off from the uh, rest of the ice uh, in Antarctica. And I'm just saying, I described this earlier, but this could be, um, and, I, and again, if they're not going to tell the truth and they're not going to do anything about this, there could be millions of people that die on all the coastal regions of all the seven continents. So I'm calling it in, Ashtar. Inshallah. Yes. Ditto. <laughs> so this is not a laughing matter. Everyone. No, it's not. It's about connecting to cosmic intelligence, which we all have. Yeah. Okay, so I have one more economic update. Uh, then we're going to play something here. Okay, go get that, honey. I will uh, give me a moment here. Okay, just hold on, everybody. We've got to go down this little list of places to play. Um. Okay, we're getting there. Eleven twenty, almost there. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the second hour of our program. So over on the uh, website for the Wisconsin Democratic Party, wisdems.org, W-I-S, as in Wisconsin, Dems, as in Democrats.org, um, there's a, a, a note here. It says, long-term survival of American democracy depends on Wisconsin. Whoa. Uh, let's, let's check that, let's check that out with our old buddy Ben Wickler, the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, the Wisdems. That works. Uh, he's also on Twitter at Wisdems, W-I-S-D-E-M-S, and of course at Ben Wickler, W-I-K-L-E-R. Uh, ben, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Tell us, how is it that as uh, as goes Wisconsin, so goes America? And how is going Wisconsin? How is Wisconsin going? Ben, <laughs> I am not hearing Ben, and Ben is not hearing me apparently. Oh, jeez. Oh, that's not the one. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm. I'll just find it and Rama will play this first. All right, let's do this. This is, this is called 
connecting to cosmic intelligence with George Nuri and J.J. Hurtak and his wife Desiree Hurtak, who wrote The Keys of Enoch and Pistis Sophia. There are ancient mysteries continually being uncovered across the world, pointing to humanity's cosmic connections beyond our planet. For many years, J.J. and Desiree Hurtak have worked together to investigate the historical and theological phenomena that point to who we are and why we are here. They share their studies of ancient technology and how all of humanity can discover we are much greater than we know. As we learn to uncover our connections to other beings in the cosmos, we will raise our collective consciousness to a higher understanding, overstanding, understanding of both spirituality and science. There we go. Here we go. This is uh, 44 minutes. I like double numbers. Special. So I studied Egyptology. We were the first to discover the tomb of Osiris. Really? And we did this through the use of musical sound or acoustical vibrations. We used what is called ground penetrating radar to penetrate the area of the Sphinx. What do you think might be in there? Artifacts that show that ancients were in contact with cosmic intelligence. We have to change our consciousness. We have to be more prepared for working with multiple forms of intelligence, beings that are beyond our dimensional reality. The veils are being lifted, George. This is really the fantastic moment. We have come at the right time of history. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. J.J. and Desiree Hortak are with us. Founders of the Academy for Future Science, we're going to talk about that, which is an international organization that kind of bridges the gap between science and spirituality. Desiree, JJ, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. It's great to be with you. You two look great together. We've been busy. Uh, we've been given the rare opportunity of travel during the COVID shutdown. So we've been Good in Latin America and the Far East and also in East Europe. How long have you two been married? Well, we say over 40 years, but I was only two when we married. So <laughs> I keep it like that. <laughs> That's fantastic. And congratulations. Thank you. Good for you. I mean, where, wherever I go, your names come up in some form or fashion about extraterrestrial life, spirituality, I mean, constantly. What would you say your specialty is, Desiree? Well, actually, I grew up in the Florida area, and when I was quite young, I actually saw a light ship. And when I was in high school, so that kind of directed me. I'm very much into geometry. I studied architecture, but ultimately it's understanding who we are and why we're here. How about you, JJ? Well, I studied Egyptology. I went to the Middle East to look at the Coptic documents of early Christianity. Uh -huh. I realized back in the 70s that there was a whole dimension of spiritual cosmology 
that was left out of the chapters of official history, and that ultimately, as we would understand the higher aspects of what the ancients thought about in Egypt, in the Holy Land, we would see a higher connection. My father was born in Cairo, God rest his soul. I never went there, never have, but I'd love to see the pyramids up front. Oh, you have to. They're amazing. And also they're starting to understand really more of why they're there at that particular place. We were the first to work with a scientific team that discovered the tomb of Osiris. Really? And we did this through the use of musical sound or acoustical vibrations. We had the opportunity to beat Zawi Hawass by a couple of years. So <laughs> he acknowledges obliquely that there was someone there before that ruffled the feathers of the tombs underneath the sand. He won't quite admit who was it, but that's Zahi. That's right. Interesting take. How did you get involved in all of this? What what was your evolution? Well, you know, Dr. Tech had this unique experience in 1973, which he put down in a book called The Keys of Enoch. Yes, And actually, that was one of the first books that showed that the king's chamber, Starshaft, pointed to Orion, and the Queen's Chamber pointed to Sirius. And, of course, this is really something that we started to understand now. When you start asking, where did ETs come from? And we think some of them came from some of these systems that the ancients talked about. It was 20 years before the more popular writer Robert Bavell and Adrian Gilbert. But we had the opportunity to actually bring cameras underground and actually film the actual situations of the massive tomb that was there underground some 100 feet below the surface. Do you think the pyramids, J.J., might have been built by extraterrestrials? I feel that they are chronomonitors or time-measuring devices, essentially large batteries that bring different energies together. And in that sense, I think the Egyptian scientists were influenced by higher thoughts, higher communication. We would call it a metaphysical contact. Christopher Dunn theory. Correct. Interesting. We go a little bit beyond Christopher in acknowledging that there also were solar batteries that the Egyptians were able to use. Or hydrogen energy, which only took water, sun, and Egyptian cotton, I often say, to get it going. And maybe some of the metals that they had for creating batteries. But what's interesting, you know, we're spending some time now by Sedona, and you have the three maces of the Hopi. And people have considered those like the three stars of the belt of Orion. Same thing. And you go to the Lakota people, and they have something called Tanyamni, and that actually shows in their ancient constellations that they had the Pleiades. They drew a direct line to the three stars of the belt, and then another line to Sirius. Well, we just talked about Sirius and Orion connecting with the Great Pyramid, why did these cultures all over the place talk about Orion and talk about Sirius and also many the Pleiades? They were almost obsessed with them. I've talked to many of the indigenous elders, and they believe that the area of the Hopi, just to the north of Sedona, may be one of the landing places for the extraterrestrial others. So we are really uh, working behind the scenes with the elders throughout the world, looking at these sacred places a possible contact. Have you done any work about the Hall of Records that Edgar Casey has talked about? A significant work looking at not one room or chamber, but multiple chambers that give a mathematical matrix. So our interpretation of the Hall of Records is the whole geometry of the whole Giza plateau, uh, exemplifying the different parts of the human body connected with the three stars in the belt of Orion. Although we did work with Boris Saeed, and he was the one you see sometimes he 
hit the sledgehammer on the sound, and it showed that there was a chamber in front of the paws of the Sphinx. Now, they wanted to just use small fiber optic cable to get there, but they weren't able to be permitted. So, But we know that there are chambers around the Sphinx itself, one on the back, one on the side, and maybe someone says on the head. I haven't seen that one. Robert Schrock says there's a huge chamber right in the front. He's absolutely correct. We worked with Robert. We were on a different expedition that we used what is called ground penetrating radar and musical acoustics to penetrate other areas off the area of the Sphinx proper. What do you think might be in there? I think we're going to find artifacts that show that ancients were in contact with cosmic intelligence. I think we're going to find that that which is beneath Egypt in the grounds uh, we call the Giza Plateau indicate a depository or an archive of information from various cultures, from uh, Gobekli Tepe and Turkey to other uh, cultures throughout the Middle East. So the Great Pyramid Complex represents really the, the library, the archive of the ancient world. And when we find the proper key, the proper vibration, right. we can bring societies and civilizations together. Is it conceivable that the ETs helped humankind develop these things? Oh, definitely. I believe that we see this in the facial forms. Uh, as you may or may not know, some of the classified documents uh, years ago suggest that the ET visitors had what we call voice computers, like a, a staff or a stick, similar to what the Egyptians would hold in ceremonies. We believe, Desiree and I, that there is more to the Egyptian story, and the Egyptians so really resynthesized I was there before, and of course that went into the biblical period with the Exodus story out of Egypt, the pillars of light, and all of that would suggest a higher technology that would produce this so-called superluminal light beam that guided the ancients to the promised land. And one could say that the Atlanteans, when their civilization went under, close to Florida, the Bermuda Triangle perhaps, that they did travel to Egypt and brought some of their technology. But I think that when you look at the alignments, again, with Orion, which if you go to the Mayans, they also see Orion as their father figure. So there must be something about the connection. And you go to South America, there's something called Chacana, and that also was the Inca cross or the Andes cross, which is aligned, they think, with Orion. So there must be something of contact because this is what the myths have been telling us. I want you to see a clip from uh, Gaia's Cosmic Disclosure where Jason Shurka talks about his experience meeting extraterrestrials. It's fascinating. So tell me about the mission of TLS. Yes. So their overall mission, the reason why they're here today, is to help assist and guide humanity in reaching a higher level of awareness, specifically gamma. Gamma is referred to what many people call fifth dimensional awareness. That's what gamma is. That's this new era, this new age that they're trying to assist and guide us into reaching. Now, everybody, or agent, no agent, just every human being is born with a specific frequency, a specific energy. So there's, as I was taught, 10 different dimensions that the universe is made out of. Each dimension is infinite, but there's 10 different dimensions. The name of the first five is what modern day science calls brainwave frequencies or brainwave patterns. So that's beta, alpha, theta, delta, and gamma. Each one of those frequencies are actually different dimensions on the spiritual level. Only science 
is more focused on the physical phenomenon instead of the non-physical. So they keep it limited to that understanding. Break down what uh, he just told us. Well, I have to agree with him that the fifth dimension is something that it looks like ETs are operating in because they can come through walls. They can even take people out of their beds through walls. So this is part of this operation in the fifth dimension. He was showing, and I agree with that, that there's a spiritual side, which means that these beings are not just operating like fifth dimension, but they're actually changing their frequencies. There's a whole frequency reality to going into the fifth dimension. So if they took you right now, George, to the fifth dimension, they'd actually almost just change the frequencies of every cell of your body to be able to move into that fifth dimension. Yes, I feel that we're moving not only in the understanding of the fifth dimension, but also the sixth dimension, which seems to be also an information dimension. And in our work with Elizabeth Rauscher, a famous mathematician and nuclear physicist, we were able to show with her abilities that we are also working with the eighth dimension, which is the mirror of the first four dimensions. So information can transcend the local realities. And I think that's very important to really understand that, that, you know, we're stuck in this third dimensional reality of length, width, and height, fourth being time, according to Einstein. Some people uh, question that, but let's say, you know, let's go with normal scientists. But then what happens after that? And Dr. Hurtag actually talks about 24 dimensions, even though the standard string theory is 10 dimensions. If you go one more, which is what's called the M-brain theory, you can get into 11 dimensions. So this is trying to tie in how do all the forces that make us who we are, electromagnetism, gravity, how do they really come together? Where do they come together? And this is what these other dimensions provide for us. In fact, uh, we have a lot of documentation on the Internet, some of our mathematical papers, with Elizabeth Rauscher, even going back to Burkhard Hein, the great German physicist, who first postulated that information was in the sixth dimension. Right. So we are really excited about the breakthroughs. It's really not only the second coming of the Christ, but the second coming of science. Science waking up to its spiritual potential to recognize the human mind works in other dimensions. Are we living in a quantum universe? Definitely. You believe Yeah, that? definitely. And the fifth dimension supposedly gives us the many opportunities. So quantum physics tells us there's myriads of opportunities. When we bring it into the fourth dimension of time, the third dimension of where we are, we concretize, we choose one of those opportunities. But technically, and the Blue Brain Project in Switzerland, uh, which was connected with the Technicon Institute there, says our own brains are able to operate in at least seven different dimensions which means we can actually pull into our reality these different mm-hmm. possibilities. So when people wake up in the morning, I'll give a very simple example. Sure. You know, if you're negative all the time, you're only pulling in energy from these other realities of quantum and field. You're pulling in negative energy. negative energy. So if you just shift that, you can open to myriads of possibilities. You can become rich, you can become famous, or at least have the intention to move forward in your life. And that's so important to realize. So like the ancient pictures of India and China show with multiple heads over the human head, we are a cosmo-quantitary-planetary-human-ecological collection of dimensions. And we can choose these dimensions like a television receiver depending upon our passion for life or a concept of who we are in the universe, or our understanding of what we would call the mystical experience, the ability to step out of this physical form into any number of bodies 
and recognize that we are ultimately multidimensional beings. How much of this do we know as human beings? Well, you know, more and more with remote viewing, this is our book, Mind Dynamics with Elizabeth Rauscher, you know, how can we or how did even SRI, Stanford Research Institute, remote view to an NSA headquarters and see in their cabinets top secret file project names? I mean, this really means that we have a greater ability, and ETs are actually showing us that same ability. They they can talk. Some of them can talk from what we've heard and some of the reports we've studied, but most of them use telepathic communication, and most of them are connected with what we would call the quantum field, which makes available all the information in the entire universe if we want to talk about it. Yeah, the 600-page study by SRI is the real X-Files and you know from the copy I gave you that the studies were essentially to look at the limitation of human consciousness. Absolutely. And what they concluded back in the 1980s and 90s was really we are just at the beginning of recognizing that the human body is what is called a biotransducer or a vehicle that can pull in any number of information signals, process this, and improve the situation of human life, or we can retreat back into the closet and see ourselves Merely as three-dimensional beings that have evolved out of the biological ooze of Mother Earth. We are essentially spiritual beings in human form. There's a theoretical physicist named David Bohm, and he has got his own theories about what's happening in the universe. With that absolute contradiction of the two basic theories, I said there was only we could try to find out what they had in common. Now, what they had in common is what I call undivided wholeness. Just as Copernicus had upended cosmological thought in the 16th century by suggesting that the Earth was in orbit around the Sun and not vice versa, so too was Bohm starting to intuit that we needed a fundamentally new way to describe the connection between the macro and the micro. And my feeling is that that gave an insight to Bohm this world we live in, you know, this, it's all hard and fast. The expected order, this is the expected order, is really just a surface order. It's, it's, not, it's not a deep, profound order. And there's something lies underneath it, which he called the implicate order. So the implicate order is not so much a set of objects, but a process. It's a process of constant movement, constantly unfolding and unfolding. So the expected order comes out of the implicate. David Bohm was suggesting that everything is internally related to everything else. And that each part of the cosmos contains the whole universe and unfolds into our perception of reality. Marvelous. Yeah, we wholeheartedly agree with David Bohm. And the implicate order is really what's important. That's the inner structure of all, we'll say, mathematics, But above mathematics is also consciousness. And that consciousness field is what's critical for our thinking, our movement, our creation. So what we do every moment of our lives is really unfold a connection to that consciousness field. Now, the explicate order, as he was explaining, is what we manifest and see. But so much of us still is part of that inner connectedness that we exist within us and within the whole universe. So making contact first begins with the implicate order to recognize the cosmic weave of how all of the molecular structure of our body is entangled 
and a very precise mm-hmm. blueprint is unfolded, the more we begin to understand the unique energy field that we are able to operate with, not simply by being mind-centered, but by being heart-centered, mind-centered, and ultimately through every organ of the body, we can ultimately evolve what is called in the keys of Enoch, the light being or the light potential that we are. Also, William known, Henry talks about that's that. That's right, William Henry, a dear friend. This is also called by modern scientists the biophotonic field. They realize every cell in our body emits light. And if we can bring these intriguing connections together, then we can step into a whole new field of information. Right, and I think it's very important. This is one of our aspects connected with the keys of Enoch, that we don't feel that everything is happenstance. And this is something that David Bowen also acknowledged, that there's something behind it. And whether it's just mathematics, whether it's the Fibonacci series, whether it's, you know, certain other aspects, something is there. Something gives us the geometry for our bodies and something gives us also the consciousness linkage for our mind. Now, being here on this planet, it seems to be, and this is something that's talked about in ancient times, a limitation of consciousness that we are trying to evolve out of. And when we evolve out of that, we actually become part of, we'll say, the greater universal mind. So that's very important as well. So the drama before us now is going from humankind to spacekind. How do we make this leap into the future? Right. How do we begin to work with the fifth and sixth and even the eighth dimension? And make it mesh with us. It's the whole ability to recognize the entirety of the universe within our potential to co-create and to enthusiastically embrace the, embrace the challenges of life and go forward with a sense of joy and curiosity and not to sit back as pacifists and deny this fantastic biotransducer system, which we are. A human, as we say, is a suit of clothes for a greater body of light. And I just want to say, in terms of our work with Elizabeth Rauscher, in our work with her, the eighth dimension was a place where we not only could know past, present but also future now we're trying to judge how much into the future can we go because we do have free will so even though we may be set in a certain path in our lives you know by our own choices we can make differences in that reality but it's important to realize that some of that future reality is coded within us as well so at this time of world changes and problems it's so important to see that we can shift from as it were a passive state into an activist state where we can bring in the light, begin the dialogue with our cosmic others, our cosmic friends, and realize that this is consistent with much of the earlier history uh-huh. that has been ignored, particularly by the great thinkers in Egypt, uh, in Lebanon, in other countries of the Near East, where there is vast documentation that says we are not alone in the universe. Is there a cosmic law out there somewhere? Definitely a cosmic law that respects all life, that teaches us to not interfere with other people in terms of the normal situation of evolution. I consider it very much like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek had that. Yes, well, any of the Star Trek, you you had to be careful where you went and what you did to other species because you could influence them, change them. And I think that's been our situation here for a long time. Uh, We say we've been in a quarantine protected from all the, you know, bar scene at Star Wars, if you think about that. And this is changing now. I think the that's being lifted and we're starting to have contact with all these different forms of intelligence. And there's many forms of intelligence. You consider the fact that there's, you know, 
hundreds of trillions of stars in the Milky Way, and there's also, you know, we'll say trillions of galaxies, then there has to be life. And not only us, not only little green men, not only the greys and the reptilians, but many, 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 many forms. Yeah, this is what... That? I agree with. I think we're going really from the old textbook into the actual experience of writing a new textbook of evolution of biology in our lifetime, George. I think the should we cosmic others are on a doorstep waiting for us to connect the points, to see the much larger picture of life, and to understand that we have a major role to play in the way that we interpret this for all people, not just for a limited area of science or spirituality, but to see that they both connect within us because we have, as we have seen in our studies behind the scene with the great scientists that we can think of cosmically on the spiritual side or the scientific side, but must we must bring them together to the heartbeat. But this is part of our evolution. I think they're watching us. And one of the factors is uh, a New York Times, I believe, came out with something that said in the last 3,400 years, we've only, as a planet, had something like 268 years of peace. And if you look even more recently since 1945, We've had something like, you know, a much less period of time. Yeah, much less. So, yes, constant wars. 8% of history on this planet, for the most part, has been war. Now, the new century that we're in now has been a bit better, but there's still things going on in Africa, in the Far East, everywhere that has these issues. So, you know, they don't want us really out in space until we get rid of that war energy, I think. How did the ancients understand this? Well, they saw this as what we would call a historic dialectic between the gods and the humans. And we had the opportunity to work with those who gave us a, quote unquote, a real science or theology, cosmology of the future, as opposed to those forms of intelligence that we use as, as slaves or biological puppets, like uh, like the late uh, Dr. Schutzen. Uh, indicated in some of his books. The Anunnaki, but even uh, First Enoch, and some of that talks about an entity very similar to the word of Samyaza that had come down. Right. And in some cases, they didn't teach just agriculture or good things like medicines. In some cases, they actually taught the art of warfare. They gave weapons. So you have to realize what's around us is very similar to what's on this planet, that we have both types of intelligence, and we have to really start attuning ourselves to our higher nature. And I think one of the most important things we're saying right now is that as we start graduating and getting to be one or connected with the cosmic others, we're not going to be peons. We should never see ourselves as peons or small you know, beings just learning to grow up. We actually have a higher soul, as Linda Moulton Howe is talking about in some of her talk, and other capabilities. We have that telepathy. We have that ability to connect with other realities. And so we have to graduate very quickly. We have connected with the archives of knowledge in most parts of the world. So there definitely is a world map of what we believe to be the advance of the return of the cosmic others, that they are returning to the areas where they originally had the experiments where they originally built the pyramids or they originally created the great temples of vibration. There's the shift to the higher vibratory nature of the mind and the heart working together that is the key to what we believe the quantum change that's coming around the corner. On a Gaia show called Deep Space, they talked about how the ancients might have had more knowledge and contacts with extraterrestrials. I believe that we have been observed and monitored for a long, long time. I think what we call the UFO phenomenon probably goes through our entire history. For me, when I look at ancient, advanced 
like ridiculously, inexplicably advanced technology, the one thing I continue to go back to is the Great Pyramid at Giza. There is, in my view, not any conventional explanation for this at all. Uh, when you start getting into the mathematics, the engineering, the geographic location of it, among many, many other things, this indicates to me that whoever built that pyramid knew that the Earth was a sphere. They knew exactly where they were in relation to the entire world. Uh, they had engineering and transport capabilities that no one is able to explain. They completed a task that not a single human civilization could possibly have done until possibly the last hundred years. It's even a stretch to ask ourselves, could we have done, duplicated this today? Maybe we could, but could we have even done it as recently as 100 years ago? Could the United States of, say, Teddy Roosevelt have built the Great Pyramid? The answer is no. It's no. They couldn't have done it. They couldn't have done it with the precision and the exactitude. So I asked myself, if the ancient Egyptians were more advanced than America of the early 20th century, then there's something wrong here with this picture. So there's something in the mix of our civilization that we're not getting. There's a hole in our ancient history. And some of that includes very advanced knowledge. Great. spot on, isn't he? Great. Uh, Desiree's father was down in Egypt in 1921 as a young medical student at the University of Vienna. He and other colleagues went down to Egypt and always followed the connection there. But in the Keys of Enoch, our classical book, we show that there are 11 other places like Egypt. And we've been investigating this over the last 45 years. All around the planet. All around the planet, which suggests that there is a planetary grid system, or some would say that has portals of ascension or places of communication that were used by the ancients, which would indicate why the ancients spent, as it were, whole generations putting together libraries of information in stone. But I have to say, uh, Richard Dolan is correct. I mean, not only putting a block upon a block, but when you go inside and see the intricate corridors and passageways. It's remarkable. uh, Yeah, I don't think we can actually do it today. Maybe we could, but it really would be difficult because you have 50 to 80 ton blocks way high up, not lower to the ground. So that's amazing. And actually we have on uh, our YouTube side something from Nippon Corporation, which back in the 70s tried to do it. They wanted to do it with hammers, chisels and bars. They tried to duplicate it. Yeah, and they couldn't do it. Then they did it with jackhammers and they still couldn't duplicate it. They actually just did it about not even a quarter the size of the actual pyramid. So, And then they made them tear it down because it was such an eyesore. And there was no caverns or anything inside, no rooms. So, I mean, it's not as easy as you think. So he's absolutely correct. And why? That's the real question. Why do you have all these intricate chambers? Why do you have... Star shafts, what we call. There's got to be a reason for it. Yeah. And and, And the other side of the story is the so-called pyramidal geometries that have appeared over the Pentagon a couple years ago and also in uh, in, uh, 2009 over Moscow, actual paraphysical geometries like pyramidal capstones. Why this geometry? Well, we've discussed this with others who believe that this is the central building block of civilization. The cosmic others, leaving behind the pyramid, have left behind we would call a future artifact something that takes us into the future of how we would design cities and space and other planets by using the pyramidal geometry. Yeah, it's the most, uh, we'll say, stable geometry. We think it's really at the heart of all of our geometry of life is the tetrahedron. And so it's interesting you see them in space. Now, some people say, oh, it's the military. We don't think that way. We feel it is. it could be a projection. It could be a type of hologram from another reality. But basically, I think it's the other 
intelligence is telling us to look, you know, especially over the Pentagon, you know, that they are superior technologies and the tetrahedron and the pyramid is part of that knowledge, that ancient wisdom. There's got to be another reason. I mean, you talked about it as a power plant. You took Christopher Dunn's theories and took it a little further. There's got to be a reason for the structure. Don't you think? Well, of course, one of the main things was in the king's chamber, supposedly, that the pharaoh, if he, if he was buried there, we don't even think he was, but was to travel to Orion, to the stars. So we feel it really is, as Dr. Jake says, it's a, a chronology statement, like it actually can maybe emanate some of our own thought forms because, and then can be picked up by other levels of intelligence. So it's really a chrono monitor is what we call it. We have star shafts that can point to star constellations, something on the order of 1,300 to 1,400 light years away with precision. You're dealing with the planetary physics and science that is far beyond the imagination of anyone until recent times. So we're looking really at a stone configuration, the Great Pyramid, as a clue to the evolutionary process of opening the mind to think and to connect science, spirituality, philosophy, and what we found in musical studies, the vibrations of the tombs themselves that corresponded to the various heartbeats of the human heart. That's dramatic. And if you really look at it, if consciousness is really behind everything, if we're exuding consciousness, and consciousness is a field that not only encompasses the earth, it's not just a global field, it's a universal field, then we can also tune in and they can tune in to us from wherever they are on, you know, in the universe, on other dimensional realities. They can also tune in to us. And this is what we feel is really happening right now and that the pyramid is a, a configuration that shows how that works. You know, we have pyramidal cells inside our brains that are part of the neurons. I mean, it's really a model for not only healing, health, but also, I think, consciousness ascension. And taking this into space, George, you know that I was one of the first to release the actual pictures of the Great Pyramids found on the surface of Mars in the Mm -hmm. Elysium Quad Triangle in 1973. So as we push outwards, we begin to realize possibly on our sister planets that pyramidal design was also used as a way of harnessing energy and providing knowledge that we would eventually rediscover. Why is Zahi Hawass, the former head of Egypt's antiquities, so reluctant to acknowledge the possibility of extraterrestrial involvement? Well, I think in some part, and we have talked to him and had time with him on the plateau, and he's given us permission for certain things, not us, but the shore expedition, for example. But, you know, he has a whole... Yeah, tradition of philosophy that he has to uphold, actually. And that is very difficult to break through. And look how difficult it is for us to break through the fact that, you know, even religion is now, the Catholic Church, I think, is totally prepared for understanding extraterrestrials. They're they're just waiting for the U.S. government. Then they're going to release some of their information. It doesn't fly in the face of any religious belief really throughout the world, but it's just so hard to get beyond the norm that people have seen in their religious traditions. You agree with that? I agree with that. And your role, George, is to put all of this together on a drawing board so that the public at large can understand the various levels of training that we're now going through. We are going through a vast orientation of finding the higher evidences of how ancient civilizations were in contact with the cosmic others. We're beginning to discover through breakthroughs in parapsychology like at Stanford Research Institute 
in California here that the mind has the ability to reach other dimensions. And finally, we're finding through a whole new study of consciousness physics that we have a greater power within ourselves to be more and to do more in co-creativity than has been taught in the past. And I know we talked about the fifth dimension connecting with extraterrestrials, and that's really your forte. But we also talk about and have talked about for 40 years ultra-terrestrial beings, which are beings that don't need a spaceship to come here, yeah, that are really right. more light energy. and or that, dimensional. Yeah, well, actually, 8th dimensional, 24th dimensional, that really, <laughs> the dimensions, even, and one of the things we've talked about is multi-universes. This Keys of Enoch talked about the multi-universes in the 70s, and so some of them may not even reside within our own Universe, That's they may reside in another field and of consciousness. Somehow they filter over in the hours. Exactly, right? and they can materialize where they want to. And I think this is important for people to realize with the understanding of quantum physics that if, you know, you're in touch with one of these beings, they don't leave where they are, even if it's another universe to come here. It's not flying in a UFO. They actually can just project their consciousness to where we are and they can materialize and they can do that to a thousand different places simultaneously. That's another level of consciousness, but that's also a level of consciousness. I believe we have the ability to experience at some time. And we believe this has been the stumbling block of government disclosure. Why it's taken so long because there are so many different cosmic races and groups. You need a larger blueprint. They can't keep track of them. Uh, showing the multi-levels of the multi, shall we say, organizations out there in terms of a unified field, things that uh, David Bohm and others were searching for many years ago. But we've reached the magic point, I believe, of having a, a mature youth in the age of Steven Spielberg that can now accept the fact that we've got cosmic friends that can come and communicate with us through the higher powers of consciousness. Do you think ETs have learned how to bend space and time, and that's another way they're traveling? Yes, we've talked about this in a recent book, which you're a part of, called Making Contact, with Alan Steinfeld's the editor in one of the chapters. And we talk about wormholes and teleportation. Teleportation is still a very hot topic, and scientists have teleported things that aren't alive, no organic matter, but it's really only a matter of time. But, you know, so one is going, traveling through the physical reality, and that would be the wormhole or hyperspace or teleportation, so to speak, where you materialize somewhere else. But there's also the whole ability to travel through the consciousness field and just materialize, not stay a long time. You have ancient um, peoples talked about in the Bible, like McKizeldeck. He was supposedly motherless and fatherless. He never was born here, but he lived here for a while. He was here. And he was here. And then he went away. Now, how do these things happen? I mean, maybe he came on a flying saucer, but we would rather think he came from a higher dimensional reality and materialized. So we've demythologized the myths. We've gone behind the myths that show that there's a science of consciousness behind these great stories. And if we connect these myths worldwide, what we come up with is a whole new, shall we say, incentive to see that we're being prepared to be this renaissance this new civilization, this homo universalis, universal humanity that the ancients thought about. What will it take to get these answers? It will take a sense of humility and compassion that we're not alone in the universe. It will take a, a deep sense of scholarship as well as sociology to prepare us to go beyond the, the fear barrier, to realize that our friends are out there working with us and we can use discernment 
to work with those who truly are there to give us higher knowledge. And I also want to say it takes more and more contact. So even though maybe we don't get it all from the government sources, people more and more are getting contact. And what we found is that once you even just see a UFO, a light in the sky, you have an entanglement. This is Absolutely. a term in quantum physics with that. And I had a friend that actually had contact with uh, alien beings when she was at the Bermuda Triangle. Actually, she was a marine biologist. And they told her certain things and whatever. And then she actually was talking about it in a friend's house. And they told her not to say everything. And she started saying more and more. And a shelf literally flew up in the huh. kitchen that had been there for years. And it didn't fall down or didn't break. And that's in it flew up. She says, oh, I can't say anymore. There is a constant entanglement that we have with being, especially if you see them face to face. Of course, that's a whole different reality. So a whole new younger generation of scientists are beginning to realize our cosmic potential. Our work with the indigenous. Which is a good thing. Very good thing. Have shown us the world cultures have known in the past that we can live with the extraterrestrial, the ultra-terrestrial reality and not be overcome. Three are spiritual philosophers and poets, namely the mystics, realized years ago that we have this ability of extended life. And now putting this all together has come an opportunity to see this as a age of synthesis. This is the opportunity to bring all of this together with the ancient writers called the age of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we have the gifts of remote viewing. We have the gifts of remote healing. We have the gifts of remote communication. We have the gifts of renewing ourselves so we don't have to live under an umbrella of doubt anymore. The facts are being put on the table and the veils are being lifted, George. This is really the fantastic moment of seeing how we have come at the right time of history. Let's go back to cosmic disclosure and look at Jason Shurka's remarks. Let's say TLS came out today and showed high technology crafts and extraterrestrials and hologram beings and everything in between it would probably freak a lot of people out. There are many people that are ready to receive that. But on the collective level of, of like our human race from the universe, it would it would cause a lot of chaos. That's that's the truth. They will reveal themselves to that extent when people are ready to receive that. But that's up to us. How open are we to changing our belief systems? How open are we to letting our belief systems dissolve and start fresh, even if it's uncomfortable. And how open are we to accepting that new possibilities that we might have thought in the past were impossible may actually be possible. Jack Nicholson and a few good men said, you can't handle the truth. Can we? No, that was also Phil Corso, I said, if you can handle it. Or he said, if you can handle it. The day it. after Roswell. Yeah. So that's his big thing. But, you know, what we're trying to say to the world is the fact that we can ha handle it. We are beings that are beyond this earthly dimension. In fact, if you go back to the Bible times, basically we took on garments of skin. So what were we before that? Well, we were beings that could travel through the universe. And, you know, you don't just see little green men or gray beings in the universe. You see us out there. So we really need to start standing our ground, knowing that we are much greater than we've been told for the last, we'll say, 6,000, 10,000 years, and we're graduating at this time. We've worked with many of the ancient documents. It's interesting that in Scripture, the book of Genesis speaks in the Hebrew of Shemayim, the many heavens, in the Greek, Uranoi, the many heavens. So whether you take the tradition in the Greek or the Hebrew or whatever tradition, the ancients recognized we were not alone and they realized we had to have a spiritual psychology. We think is best exemplified in the Christ 
figure of the New Testament, that we have to love our enemies, we have to love ourselves in the, in the cosmic sense. A preparation, we reach that level of a higher vibratory level of the mind and spirit where we can enter into the understanding of the house of many mansions. Right, so if we look at like Chaim uh, Eshed from Israel, who was one of the main people for the space program from right. the Israelis, you know, he talked about the Galactic Federation, but he also said they don't think we're ready at this point. Well, we actually think we are, but we have to change our consciousness. We have to yeah. be more prepared for working with multiple forms of intelligence, not just strange alien, reptilian, insectoid types of beings, but also beings that are really beyond our dimensional reality. And this is what we have to start understanding. It's a vast growth factor for all of us, but also to understand that we are powerful beings in the universe and we will be handshaking to our own cosmic cousins in the very near future. And this is why we're working with theologians like Ted Peters from Berkeley, who wrote, a, I should say, edited a book called uh, Astrotheology, uh, where scientists and theologians are beginning to recognize there's That's a spiritual side, a dimension to the cosmic scheme of things. So we have to be able to go beyond, what Stephen Hawking and others have suggested, the negative forces by realizing that there is a divine source, a much higher level of the ultra-terrestrial that can overpower the extraterrestrial, shall we say, experimental games, and take us into a whole new reality of recognizing genuine spirituality and genuine science can meet and embrace. And we have to do this with some levels of unconditional love. And I think that's really important. And a higher consciousness understanding that we are able to greet each other on a handshake level, on a cosmic level, and understand that we are literally able to now maybe take our baby steps in a positive way, not with war. We've got to leave war behind on this planet. We've got to leave the fact that we can't work together, be together, share together. That all has to go away. We have to open our consciousness to greater realms of intelligence. I share that. Mr. and Mrs. Hurtak, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. And to the audience, we must take the higher path. Absolutely. Because one day, if we don't, we will realize what we've lost on this planet. I'm George Nori, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Okay, now we're going to just go to the next one. Here we go. Uh, I just wanted to say that what they're talking about is what Dr. Greer brings up, that intelligence consciousness across the multiverse the multi-universes whether it's this universe or nevadon or the seven super universes i passed the talking stick here we go welcome to on contact Today we discuss the looming economic crisis in the United States with Professor Richard Wolff. If we're worried about an inflation now, if the cost of everything we buy goes up, and we're more dependent on the world now than we've ever been, the inflationary push, already a serious problem. Remember today the the government announced 7.5% as of January of last month. We are talking about an economy in serious difficulty, making 
even more problems for itself as it solves one problem the next one gets worse and that's a symptom of a society that has reached a point of mostly dead ends a bipartisan group of senators are crafting legislation to impose sweeping sanctions on Russia if it engages in what they consider hostile action of any kind against the Ukraine. New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, calls the legislation, quote, the mother of all sanctions bill. The bill led in the House by Gregory Meeks of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, like Menendez, a Democrat, demands that the administration, quote, not cede to the demands of the Russian Federation regarding NATO membership or expansion. This cuts off the ability to discuss Moscow's core demands, including a ban on future NATO membership for the Ukraine. The proposed sanctions target Russian banks, state-owned enterprises, government debt, energy firms, and the Nordstrom pipeline, as well as many individual members of the government and military. They are the most extensive economic sanctions the United States has attempted to deploy since the post-Cold War global economy was constructed. The sanctions, if enacted, would remove Russia from SWIFT, the international financial transaction system that uses the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. The proposal to cut Russia off from SWIFT while it would certainly hurt the Russian economy, will also further push Russia, along with China and other countries, especially those such as Cuba and Iran that are also targeted by the United States, to create their own global monetary exchange system. If the U.S. dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency, it will seriously erode the already precarious health of the U.S. economy, not only because the dollar would significantly decline in value, but because the Treasury bonds sold to fund the huge U.S. deficits would no longer be attractive investments. The U.S. is already reeling under the assault of the People's Republic of China, whose economy will be larger in terms of its footprint in the global economy than the U.S. by the end of the decade. The desperate financial tricks flooding the global market with new dollars, lowering interest rates, which staved off a major depression after the 2000 dot-com crash and 9-11 and were accelerated after the 2008 global financial meltdown will no longer work. Easy access to money at low interest rates incentivized corporations to borrow massively from the Federal Reserve often to paper over shortfalls and bad investments. U.S. businesses are deeper in debt than at any time in U.S. history. Added to this morass is rising inflation, now at 7.5%, caused by businesses that have increased prices in a desperate effort to make up for lost revenue from the economic downturn caused by the pandemic. This inflation has forced the Fed to curtail the growth of the money supply and raise interest rates, which then pushes corporations to further raise prices. No matter which way you look, serious financial dislocation in the United States seems inevitable. Joining me to discuss the precarious state of the U.S. economy and its consequences is the economist Richard Wolff, visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School in New York City, who has also taught economics at Yale University and the Sorbonne. He can be found at Democracy at Work. Let's begin with SWIFT, even though this is something that may not uh, happen uh, 
would assume. It nevertheless, uh, I think it's important. Perhaps you can explain what SWIFT is and what it means to the U.S. economy to have the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Absolutely. Uh, people have to understand that World War II changed pretty much everything uh, that was going on in the world economy. The only powerful economy left standing at the end of World War II was that economy upon which no warfare had been uh, imposed other than the opening at Pearl Harbor. And the result was the United States was absolutely dominant. There was no way that Europe could rebuild without turning to the United States. Uh, Russia had been savaged by the fighting of the war. And a new world order was literally created. It comes out of the United Nations and all of that. And at the center of it, at least economically, but basically also politically and militarily, was the United States. And so its currency, the dollar, more than ever before, replaced the British pound because basically it was the American empire pushing out the remnants of the British empire. The dollar became the currency. Everybody wanted the dollar because the only place you could buy machinery, equipment, virtually anything at the end of a war was from the United States because our economy had boomed in the war, whereas everybody else's had been destroyed. So the dollar became the desired currency. Central banks around the world held dollars in their reserves because that was the only way people would touch their currency if they knew that they could convert you know, a Japanese yen or a French franc or a German mark into dollars. And so it, it created this enormous benefit for the United States. Let me try briefly to explain it. It meant that every time we Americans imported something, French wine, German machinery, Japanese clothing, whatever it was, we would send them little green pieces of paper, you know, a dollar or ten or a hundred. It costs nothing to make that paper, but of course it takes a lot of labor to make the machine or the wine or the cloth. So we could get the fruits of people's labor, but all we had to give in exchange were the green pieces of paper, which cost nothing to produce, and we didn't have to worry because they kept them. Because they were valuable to them, they held on to the dollars. When that proved to be a temporary solution that didn't go away, they made the next step. They took those dollars, and remember, we continue to have that kind of imbalance in trade. Last year's trade deficit, 2021, was the greatest in American history. I mean, we haven't solved that problem. We still send more dollars, and here's the irony. They come back as loans to the United States government which is why the United States owes trillions of dollars to the rest of the world, and number one, Japan and China, who are the two biggest uh, creditors, and we are the biggest debtor, not a sign of economic health. Last point. The SWIFT system was developed after World War II to enable the dollars to be used everywhere in the world to buy and sell. Uh, typically, if someone buys, for example, oil in, in Latin America for shipment from Asia, all of those transactions are handled in dollars. 
Again, it means the world has a reason to accept dollars from the United States in exchange for the goods and services we actually consume. We are now, and this is, I think, the single most important idea to get across. Everything that made the United States extraordinary in the second half of the 20th century and into this new century, the unique position after the war, the wealth, the economic growth that went with that, every single support is slowly being broken down, lost, eroded, reduced, and you can focus on this one or that one, but the direction of change is unmistakable, and the accumulation is what makes the American economy more precarious now than at any time in my lifetime. Before we talk about the economic indicators in the United States that I think buttress your thesis, what would it mean to lose the dollar as the world's reserve currency for the U.S. economy? Uh-huh. Well, let's start with the SWIFT system. The, the Russians and the Chinese have not hidden the fact they've been working on an alternative to the SWIFT system at least for several years. So this is not a sudden thing that therefore is going to take a lot of time. No one knows exactly how far down that road they have gone, but it's going to be, like everything else, an alternative to the SWIFT system when the Russians and the Chinese get that going. That, by the way, is a clue. We are not dealing with the United States struggling with a destroyed Europe or with a poor country like Iraq or Afghanistan or anything else like that. We're talking about China, which is now pretty much the equivalent of the United States on many, many economic levels. They have the power they have the reach to offer an alternative that really is an alternative in terms of selling, buying, investing, loaning. And so if they set up an alternative to SWIFT, it is going to be a very powerful alternative, not just for Russia, China, Cuba, uh, Iran, and already that's a lot of the world economy, but for many other countries who are going to now play games using maybe both systems in a way to kind of keep cool with both sides, uh, shifting here or there. It'll make any country wanting to break from American dominance politically and militarily have an easier way to see a future economically than they have now. So you think of it as putting in place further infrastructure for an alternative to a U.S.-dominated world economy. As to the question of the reserve, if foreign banks look upon the United States currency as a currency of a country with increasing internal economic difficulties, which we sure have loads of, that's one more reason to shift. Central banks keep multiple currencies as a reserve. Typically the European, the euro, because it's important, the Japanese yen, and in recent years, for obvious reasons, the Chinese currency as well. All those balances are going to shift. The dollar is going to become relatively less important. The other currencies relatively more. And that means the dollar 
coming overseas as we buy more than we sell is not going to be held on to. It's not going to be welcome. It's going to be dumped, and that is going to drive down the value of the dollar. That may be good for American exporters because it will help make our goods cheaper, but if we're worried about an inflation now, if the cost of everything we buy goes up, and we're more dependent on the world now than we've ever been, the inflationary push, already a serious problem. Remember today that the government announced 7.5% as of January of last month. We are talking about an economy in serious difficulty, making even more problems for itself. As it solves one problem, the next one gets worse, And that's a symptom of a society that has reached a point of mostly dead ends. Great. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the looming economic crisis in the United States with the economist Richard Wolff. It's a good thing to know that this is a good thing, everybody. When you awaken to this, Yay. turn to RC America, where we dare to question more. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation with the economist Richard Wolf about the looming economic crisis in the United States. So you have long argued that the measures that the United States has used to stave off financial disaster going back to the dot-com crash are self-defeating. Can you explain that? Yes. I mean, we basically decided here in the United States, starting with the dot-com crash in 2000, accelerated by the 2008 uh, subprime mortgage so-called crash, and then again now with COVID, we have done unprecedented things. The most important of them have been two. Number one, increasing the quantity of money in our society in a way we've never done before in peacetime, bringing interest rates down next to zero, even below zero on some occasions. What we did in that, and you made mention of it, is we said, without admitting it, to every corporation in this country, every business, whatever your problems supply problems, labor problems, technology problems. The quickest and easiest and cheapest way to solve your problem is to borrow all of this new money at virtually no cost. I mean, it's a no-brainer for your typical executive leader of a corporation. And therefore, not surprisingly, we have an incredible level and growth of the debt of borrowers, particularly corporations, and the government, who have gone into levels of debt we've never seen. Last week, we were told we passed $30 trillion in the government's national debt. Corporations are wallowing in levels of debt we've never seen. And here now comes the irony. When that money pumped in decides, which is always a complicated matter, that it is no longer willing just to stay in the world of the stock market, which, of course, has seen a wild inflation for the last 30, 40 years, when that, when that money decides, no, the stock market's a little bit overdone, well, we better buy more solid things. 
real estate, land, uh, oil in the ground, things like that, then we begin to see an inflation of the sort you can see on the on the shelf in the store that you go to. Then the anxiety begins, oh my goodness, we've solved the problem of not having a terrible depression by flooding the economy with money, but now that sets off a whole new sequence of problems like this inflation, and you can't just raise interest rates because everybody's indebted now up to their eyeballs. How are they going to pay the higher interest rates that get jacked up if the Federal Reserve goes through with what it has said it will do this year. So they can't solve one problem anymore because it's hemmed in by all the accumulated problems that have been kicked down the road and not dealt with. And the other one, I don't want to take too much time, has been the government's deficits. This amazing decision by Republicans and Democrats alike that they are going to borrow as if there were no tomorrow, almost as if they agree with what I'm arguing, that the system is so near exploding that you might as well try everything. I think what in football is called, you know, a Hail Mary pass. You throw the ball down the field and hope that one of your guys gets it rather than one on the other team. We are doing that kind of thing with a level of borrowing that the world has never seen. And and it produces, let me just give you one example of the, of the craziness that is our normal life now. The Chinese own roughly a trillion, no one knows exactly, of U.S. debt. They have lent those dollars that we've used to buy Chinese everything. They've taken that money. They don't want stuff from the United States. They produce it more and more themselves. So they lend those dollars back to the United States government. But let everyone watching this program understand, if you owe the Chinese a trillion dollars, you have to pay interest. Every year, tens of billions of dollars are going from my pocket and yours as the taxes we pay to Washington, and all Washington does is package that up and shift it to Beijing, which is free to use it, you guessed it, for the Chinese military that we're supposed to be so worried about. We're financing part of it. I mean, not all of it, but part of it. And that's not because anybody wants to do it, but because the level of difficulty in this country is so severe that we won't even tax corporations and the rich the way we once did, which might allow us not to have to borrow from the Chinese and not to have to fund their military with our interest payments. When people who are not crazy act in ways like this, then you know that the system is in very, very deep trouble. So last year, uh, household debt rose by $1 trillion. At the same time that we saw 80 million workers, roughly half the labor force uh, suffer at some period during the year unemployment. Uh, at what point does this trigger a kind of debt crisis? And then I'd also like you to touch on the failure of the Biden administration uh, to address COVID, uh, the Build Back Better bill. Uh, I Maybe you can tell me what their policy is towards inflation because I haven't heard one from the Biden White House, uh, can you can you deal with those issues? 
Sure. I, I, let me try to go in reverse order. Uh, everything coming out of the Biden administration seems to have two ideas. One idea is we should just suck it up, live with the inflation, and believe with them that it won't last very long. Uh, they've been telling us that it wouldn't last as long as it has. Therefore, their credibility and that of the Federal Reserve must be at an all-time low since they've been promising what has not happened, and there is absolutely no reason to believe they have gained in some credibility. And it certainly, as an economist, I can tell you, for every sign that it might slow down, I can give you an offsetting sign that it won't. And uh, as one example, the largest shipping company in the world, Maersk, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, M-A-E-R-S-K. The CEO announced yesterday that there's no end in sight of supply chain disruptions. And, of course, his company has no interest in there being one since they were more profitable last year than they have been in a very long time. So the supply chain's very bad for us, but for the people involved in that business, oh, boy, is this a profit situation. So the, the, the government is relying then, perhaps, on the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. But the truth of the matter is, as many have begun to point out, that may be a cure worse than the disease. You can't allow the inflation to continue. Because believe me, if we are having trouble with our trade dealings with the rest of the world, having the price of American goods go up faster than they are, and let me point out, the inflation rate in China right now is under 2%. Ours is 7.5%. That's going to make Chinese goods even more relatively attractive for the world to buy, including Americans, than American goods, which will worsen the debt, which will worsen the flow of dollars. You get the picture. But if they raise the interest rates... Well, then the housing market in this country, which depends on the mortgages people can or cannot afford, the automobiles, they either can or cannot afford the monthly payments, the college student loans, the credit card debt. We can't handle our economy, given its fragility, what the cure of rising interest rates might set off. It's a little bit overwhelming, and I want to go back to that point. When you have too many problems, while you could have maybe solved one of them, or maybe even two, if they're 12 and they impact on each other, there comes a point where people begin to simply throw up their hands. And I think you're seeing that. I think you're seeing in the divisions of this country, in the record numbers of people quitting their jobs, even though they don't have another one to go to, hopeful, but also disgusted with the reality of what's presented to them as a job at a time of inflation. It is an extraordinary economic system that puts people through the two years we've just gone through. Massive death, massive illness, unemployment, as you rightly say, that affects more than half of our labor force, I mean, a cataclysm. You know, we've had a depression before. We've had public health disasters. We've never had the two at the same time. And to end those two years by an inflation wildly outrunning wage increases, it's as if you're going to the American working class and slapping them across the face. It, it is too much. 
And I would be surprised at this point if we didn't see all kinds of political, personal, and psychological explosions because this is too much to put a population through. And if I can give you a, a, a historical parallel, World War I was the end of the German Empire. They were defeated, and they never quite recovered. Four years after the end of the war, they had the worst inflation the world has ever seen, and the entire savings of the German middle class were wiped out. As a German mark, put away in a jar in the back of the house, became worthless in a, in a very short number of weeks and months. Uh, and then in 1929, five years later, the world economy collapses. Out of that accumulation of too much negativity comes Hitler and fascism. We're smelling and sensing that we have these kinds of problems in our society, and we are certainly reproducing the kind of economic accumulation of crisis that led in those situations, and the story in Italy isn't that different, to the kinds of horrors that we thought had been put behind us. It is what triggers it a debt crisis in a sense that like the subprime mortgage crisis, people are just so overburdened with debt that they can't pay it back? Absolutely. No one knows with this accumulation of debt now, no one knows what the American people will do. Back in 2007 and 8, they walked away from mortgages in huge amounts. I don't know. Will they stop paying their car loans back? Will the students simply say, okay, we've had it, we're not going to pay our student loans back? Will credit cards be burnt, uh, you know, by, by people in the streets? Or will they go back and default on their mortgages? Any or all combinations are being put back on the table because people cannot continue to do this. And on top of it, a government of either party, and that's where the Build Back Better collapse is so important. You don't have the political will in the people at the top to do anything about the growing inequality here. There is wealth to use to solve these problems. We have a lot of wealth. We've been growing. But the wealth is concentrated in a very small number of people's hands with a political class that's been bought by those people and therefore will not touch that wealth. And so we don't have to solve our problems. That leaves the rest of us forced to make the kinds of decisions that can bring this system down very quickly. Great. That was The Economist, Richard Wolff, on the looming economic crisis in the United States. Okay, everybody. Um, as we have been doing this work on these shows for years, uh, anybody who's been listening here for any length of time knows that we're coming to the end of the old paradigm really fast right now. And people are waking yeah. up that we don't have to go do the same thing that happened to us from the other end. No, we're not killing people for profit. That is not the answer. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about the tiger medicine some more. 
I know we have the particulars. We read about the water tiger. Mm. I'm going to just read about tiger medicine in general. Let's do a little bit of that. Okay, so, and I have there in the front, um, personality characteristics of the tiger, positive, ambitious, brave, confident, determined, dynamic, engaging, enthusiastic, generous, hardworking, honorable, idealistic, independent, Lovable, loyal, open-minded, optimistic, respectful, thoughtful, warm-hearted, and wise. Wow. Okay, now this is the negative. Just got to have the constructive criticism part here. A negative is aggressive, arrogant, critical, demanding, disobedient, domineering, Hot-headed, impatient, moody, (laughs) quarrelsome, reckless, selfish, stubborn, suspicious, vain. That song, You're So Vain, I'll Bet You Think It's All About You. That was, uh, You Walk Into the Parlor. Oh, Carly Simon. Carly Simon singing about... Mick Jagger. That's right. Mick Jagger got himself in a whole pile of trouble. Oh, dear. Lest we have not done a sin ourselves, judge not. And all of this can be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, so the tiger as an animal... In China, tigers symbolize power, vigor, dignity, bravery, and leadership. Tigers may not be the kings of the jungle. Rather, they have been deeply rooted in Chinese religion, as well as folklore for centuries. In fact, They are so highly regarded that tigers sometimes appear to have almost magical powers. They do. You want to elucidate, Drama? Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, if you haven't seen that film, you can watch it on uh, YouTube. YouTube. Watch (laughs) it. That is an amazing eye-opener. Yes. And they use the power of a higher... Wisdom and magic and and some of the darkest stuff too. I think there is some. I think so. Along the way, when they go, when she goes traveling, I think so. You're right. Yeah. Okay, so in fact, they are so highly regarded that tigers sometimes appear to have almost magical powers. To this day, images of dragons. And tigers are often paired off on walls of temples. And in some suburban areas in China and Taiwan, a statue of the master tiger is also placed under the altar and worshipped by thousands of followers. 
It is very powerful. The energy is all focused in Beijing right now because mm. of the Olympics. Mm. And the, there's going to be a balance come to the world because of it. May it be so. Okay, and in some suburban, oh yes, no, uh, yeah, in some suburban areas in China and Taiwan, a statue of the master tiger is also placed under the altar and worshipped by thousands of followers. Gamblers and people in show business. Oh, Padme, interesting. Mm -hmm. Believe that worshipping the master tiger will bring them fame and fortune. Sometimes, however, tigers can also be seen as symbols of evil. This is true. Violence and danger. This is probably because in ancient China, tigers would often come out of the woods and terrorize small villages. Many folk tales praised the heroes who were brave enough to fight with the tigers. Amongst Chinese folk heroes, Wu Song became probably one of the most famous ones after he eventually saved his village by battling with a tiger, bare-handed. Over the centuries, it has become a custom to to hang a good luck tiger ornament on boats during the dragon boat festival. Also, on this day, children will often wear an ornamental look-alike amulet around their necks to protect them from evil. That's very interesting. Okay, I'll go on. This is called Tiger People. This is that. We just read about the animal, the tiger, but now we're going to talk about Tiger People. Born leaders is the key phrase for tigers. Born under the sign of courage. You are quick-witted and alert, energetic and independent. Courageous and powerful. It is no wonder people will faithfully and confidently follow you. You, you adhere. No, excuse me. You adore challenges and competitions. Admit it. You often take risks, even as you didn't have to. Yeah, you get a rush from that, huh? Okay. Tempting. Got to turn the page here carefully. Tempting danger thrills you, and you are hungry for adventure. However, owing to your tendency to be too impulsive, may not always be wise to follow you may not always be wise for others to follow you. Okay. You can be extremely rebellious against any petty authority. After all, you would rather give orders 
then take them. <laughs> Perhaps this is why you are most likely to be the be the ones to cry out, let's go. <laughs> you have all the qualities required to become a great leader or a rebel. You are outspoken and critical on issues. And you don't back down when facing obstacles. You are a daring fighter, capable of standing up to the bitter end for what you believe is right. And you are not afraid to speak up loud and clear about what's on your mind. Truly, you would make a fine revolutionary. Tigers are very confident, perhaps overly so. Sometimes, you love adventures and are addicted to excitement. I mean, the reason we're reading this is this is the year of the tigers, so we all are, whether we're personally tiger people or or not, we're uh, facing this for this whole year. Tigers are very confident, perhaps overly so sometimes. You love adventures and are addicted to excitement. You are the type of person who will risk it all just to get what you want, even as it is only a competition. You expect to be obeyed and not the other way around. <laughs> and it is better not to challenge your authority because whoever disobeys you will become the object of the tiger's furious, quick temper. However noble and fearless tiger people are, well, tiger people are well respected for their courage, even by those working against them. You are independent and confident and seldom ask anyone for help. On the surface, you often seem calm and in control, yet deep down, there is always some hidden aggressiveness. Yet don't take that the wrong way. Tigers are not predators who get what they want by crushing others. In fact, you are warm, sincere, honorable, and humorous. Although you can be selfish from time to time about the little things, you are capable of great generosity. There will never be a dull moment with a tiger. <laughs> you are playful and unpredictable during the reckless, daring, excuse me, and reckless. Always, let me just change my way I'm holding the book here. Always hating to be ignored. You have love, you love the spotlight and crave attention. And you are always tense and seem to revel in being in a hurry. You love to try new cuisine, go to new places and be adventurous and explore new things. 
as you are in his circle of friends or hers, you will have fun, new experiences, and the tiger will try his best to protect you. It is not easy to resist a tiger, for you are a very magnetic character. In fact, you walk and talk in such an attentive and powerful way that authority seems natural to you. You are impetuous, yet serene, compassionate, yet fearsome, a person of great strength and ability. Time and time again, people are awed and mesmerized by you. Yet you are always in a hurry to get things done right. You usually choose to operate alone. You like to work. Moreover, you are hardworking and dynamic. As someone assigns a task to you, the job will be undertaken and accomplished with enthusiasm and efficiency. Yet money doesn't directly interest or motivate you. Still, tigers need not worry about money because they are also fortunate animals. Just as you fear the money is gone, more seems to show up. In general, tigers are quite impatient and usually not not the sit-and-wait types. You jump into action and sometimes regret it afterward. Imaginative and fun-loving, you are often attracted by babies and animals. Reputation and image mean a great deal to you, and you try hard to maintain a certain image of authority and dignity. Tiger people are sensitive and emotional. You are capable of great love. You often become, you become too intense about it. You are also territorial and possessive. As in an argument, you always expect your friends to take your side. And, turn the page here. And because, and because, because, because. And because you are simply too adorable and irresistible most of the time, your friends will, though sensitive and sentimental, your friends will take your side meaning. Okay. Though sensitive and and sentimental, your dramatic mood swings can still turn you into a nasty and mean bully as you are provoked. Therefore, it is better not to rub, say, tiger, rub, say, the tiger the wrong way, as the tiger can be extremely dangerous and will go to any lengths to get revenge, even as it means bringing him or herself down with you. Generally suspicious, you do not trust people easily. Life with a tiger is bound to be a colorful, volatile, roller coaster ride. You will be filled with joy 
laughter, tears, and despair. You are generally optimistic, yet as you sink into a depression, it will be extremely hard to pull you out of it. As a lover, you are passionate and romantic, yet the real challenge for you in 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 is to grasp the true meaning of moderation. Wow. That's the word on tiger. Just a moment here. Um, let me read tiger at work. That's another section here. Tiger at work. Tigers are formidable business leaders. No challenge too big or too small for a tiger. After all, a challenge is a challenge, and tigers will go to any lengths just to prove they can do it. Tiger people are aggressive and ambitious as it comes to their careers. Tigers are dreamers, generally full of money-making ideas. However, they have a tendency to jump into action before they spend adequate time planning. I was going to say the difference with the uh, shift uh, uh, to a way of life with money in terms of the tiger here, that the tiger will be an organizer to make lots of money in group work. And then we'll have a focus to do something like heal the planet in some way. Create uh, spherical homes. That's been a really strong uh, guiding light for myself. Ed Hicks, he was uh, uh, an aspect of uh, Enoch in a body. And he, he was talking about spherical structures to build them everywhere because it changes. You know, in these squared structures, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again, that the corners create dark shadows. And that's why you, you know, take some time on a regular basis to, you know, uh, use cedar and sage uh, and get yourself a conch shell and put them together in the conch shell and then light them and then uh, go to every corner and nook and cranny in the house and cedar it, sage it. And then, you know, if you've got someone together with you or you can sage yourself in your aura, you can do that on your own or another person can do it for you and you can do it for them. That is a really, really powerful thing to do. Okay, so where were we? Uh, tigers are dreamers. Generally full of money-making ideas. However, they have a tendency to jump into action before they spend adequate time planning. Once a tiger sets his goal, he always goes for it with Full force. <laughs> Put a tiger in your tank. Yes. Um, however, his impulsive personality may lure him so to something else. And tigers will detour from their original goal to another one. However, in spite of these detours, it usually does not take long for tigers to work their way up the page here, moment, Chito. To work their way up 
the ranks to the top. <coughs> After all, they are born to lead and are very capable and determined to succeed. As a boss, tigers are quite popular and generally well respected among their staff. Yet since most tigers do not hide their emotions well, tiger bosses show their their likes, their likes and dislikes, and their favorites tend to get better treatment and promotions than the rest. Yet even though everyone notices this, no one dares to complain. Because at times, tiger bosses can be fearsome. However, mostly they are generous and open-minded and will be able to create a fun, creative working environment. As a business partner, the tiger can be quite unpredictable and impulsive. Planning ahead and applying logic do not mean much to them. And therefore, they need to partner with someone who is detailed and organized. As the partner of a tiger, you must learn to think what they think and stop them from acting too quickly. In general, they need someone to hold their hand and persuade them as they become unfocused. As a colleague, the tiger is fun to be around. They are liked for their generosity and warm hearts. Marilyn Monroe and Jodie Foster are two other famous tiger people. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Best tiger occupations, advertising executive, athlete, chairman, designer, entrepreneur, explorer, film star, film theater director, hmm. head of state, Oh, lion tamer, military officer, uh, a musician, police officer, my, politician, publicist, rebel leader, stockbroker, stunt person, teacher, trade union leader, writer, poet, famous tigers, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Jodie Foster, Karl Marx, wow, Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, Ludwig von Beethoven, Marco Polo, Marilyn Monroe, Queen Elizabeth II, Rosie O'Donnell, Stevie Wonder, Sun Yat-sen, Tom Cruise, William Wadsworth Longfellow. Okay, we've come to the end of the tiger and we've come to the end of our time pretty much. Uh, you know, we just might be willing to uh, investigate how this uh, tiger energy can serve uh, the highest good of all concerned for this whole year. Chinese astrology is very helpful, very, very helpful. I've been reading from something called Chinese Astrology, Ancient Secrets for Modern Life by Sabrina Liao, L-I-A-O. Let the Asian horoscope reveal secrets about your friends, lovers, and you. Okay, 
So we're going to take a bit of a break now. And we will be back with a look at the stars. And our brother Richard will give us some pointers. And our sister Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha. And so much love for now, everybody. We'll see you in a little while. Sat Nam. Namaste. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you very much. Good evening, Richard. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. (laughs) All right. Take a little look at the conditions. All right. Now, what what we've been watching is this activity in Capricorn. And Doug, I got a bad echo here. So conjunct Venus at 15 degrees of Capricorn. Now, relative to Earth, Mars is behind Venus. So those energies are interfered with. So before dawn, if your sky is clear, you'll see Venus rising. And over here on the East Coast at 34 latitude, that happens around 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. Now, that distance between Venus rising and the sun is still 39 degrees. The sun has moved up to 24 Aquarius. It did its conjunction with Saturn, which is at 17. So you got that situation is resolved, all right? We survived sun conjunct Saturn. Uh, the world didn't end. Now, we've been watching Pluto and, and Mercury here. Pluto was in an earlier degree than Pluto last week. And this week, Pluto is at 28, 28 Capricorn, and Mercury is at 29 Capricorn. So we're going um, I've got some business kind of things to do. I'm going to wait until Mercury is at least 10 degrees away from that Pluto. I don't need any Pluto interference if I'm going to do some, you know, business things. All right. Now, next up is Pisces. And Jupiter is at 11. Is one third of the way in, and Neptune is at 22, is eight degrees before Aries. So Jupiter and Neptune are nicely spaced, roughly one third and one third in Pisces, and so they they can operate together and operate independently because there's uh, 
there's 10 degrees of space between them. And tonight, Venus, I mean the moon tonight, is at 14 Cancer, so we have a nice trine to Pisces. It's very comfortable emotionally. All right, then there's Aries, good old Chiron. Chiron sits there at 10, 10 Aries. And then uh, Uranus is at 12 Taurus. North Node at 28 Taurus. So what we've got here is we've got a, a moon opposite Mars and Venus. Today, all right, that moon in 14 and a Venus in Mars at 15 Capricorn. So we got that opposition going on. That can be troubling depending on where it's located in your chart, which house pair it's at. So uh, uh, good luck with that one, my friends. We've got uh, we've got our good old continuing square between Saturn and Uranus. All right, that's Aquarius Taurus square. That's still going on. And then we've got we've got that interesting trine between Mars and Venus down there in Capricorn and Uranus. So you've got. And Uranus is sextile moon, so you've got a triangle with an opposition, a trine, and a sextile. These happen fairly often, and in this case, uh, Uranus is acting benevolent with its sextile to the moon, its sextile to Jupiter, it's uh, almost a sextile to Neptune. So that's, you know, this is probably the most comfortable combination of Uranian aspects that we've seen in quite some time. So uh, let's see, that, uh, that, that Chiron in, in 10 Aries is... Uh, Kind of still squared of Venus and Mars at, at 15 Capricorn. And that covers the, uh, the general conditions for Saturday, the 12th of February, 2022. It's an interesting date code. We got 2122022. That's five twos and one makes it an 11 day. And of course, 11. Is also a two day. So let's go see what Kaipacha was thinking about back on Wednesday, and I'll talk to you later. Back to you, Lama. Okay, here Thank we go. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Yes.
Archer with the weekly daily report for February 9th of 2022. Big things going on here. The moon just went into Gemini this morning. And of course, in that nice air sign, she's going to travel through. She's going to have a nice trine to Saturn. And then a nice trine to the sun. And then she's going to be coming in to square Pluto, sextile Chiron. You know, yesterday on Tuesday, uh, you know, in Taurus, she squared the sun. So we had that first quarter square. Mars is still in a trine to Uranus. And uh, that moon is going to move on into Cancer by Friday. And on Friday's a big day. That's when she's going to trine the sun in conjunct Mercury and Pluto. Because on Friday, Mercury comes in for his final pass to Pluto. And so we have this conjunction going on. I mean, pretty much all week, pretty much for a couple of weeks, because he's stationed right back there, right? And on Saturday, she's going to go into square Chiron, trying Jupiter as she goes into this Cancer, and... Yeah, it's going to be something. Uh, she will be coming into an opposition on Saturday with that Venus-Mars conjunction. I'll be talking about that moving on through Capricorn. And on Monday, you know, she's going to uh, move into Leo, trying Chiron. This whole time now, Pluto is in trying to the north node of the moon. So I want to be talking to you about that a bit, for sure, today. And Mercury into Aquarius on Monday. Big shift. Been in Capricorn for quite some time now, since December. Moving into Aquarius. You're going to notice a change in energy. Tuesday, it's going to come into a square with Uranus. In conjunct. Okay, to that Venus-Mars conjunction, and into an opposition with Saturn, until finally, I'll talk about it more next week probably, but the full moon in Leo, opposite that sun in Aquarius, just as Venus comes into her exact conjunction with Mars, 16 degrees, 55 minutes, and we can talk about that little bit too. All right, everybody. <laughs> Whoosh. I hope you are doing well these days of transformation, of revolution, of challenge. Definitely challenge. We want to understand that Pluto is the force of evolution. And it goes around every 248 years, symbolizing deep, profound metamorphosis through the process of death, ending, letting go, releasing, surrendering to a deeper, stronger, higher power than just our own egos and then the resurrection process. It's been moving through the sign of Capricorn since 2008. 
This symbolizes a process that has been going on since 2008 of revolutionizing, evolutionizing our structures for physical, financial security, our institutions, political, corporations, educational, healthcare systems, United Nations, every big, you know, authority, external authority that maybe people have been following, as well as our own internal father, our own internal. We all, you know, as kids, we have parents, and, and they lay down laws and rules, and if not our parents, we have teachers, we have the police, we have, you know, someone is going to give us a boundary. <laughs> We are in time and space. Time itself is a boundary. Space itself is a boundary. We can't be everywhere at the same time in the physical world. And we don't have unlimited money to do and go wherever we want. So there's boundaries from the get-go as soon as we're born into this material world. And Capricorn symbolizes, through Saturn and its ruler, not only time and space, but man-made laws, man-made traditions, man-made religions, cultural, you know, pressure to conform so that society does not turn into anarchy. Uh. Well, we've created over the last 250 years a number of institutions, a number of law-making, regulating entities and Pluto, since 2008, is transforming, evolving these. It's time, that death process. It is time to let go of our old, in, you know, of our old structures, our old leaders or authorities or the ways that we have been, you know, creating a civilized society in preparation for Pluto to move into Aquarius. And, and Pluto moves into Aquarius in March of 2023. So this is like, you know, the last year, okay, where it's all culminating, it's all coming up, and particularly now. Mercury went into Capricorn in December, and it first hit Pluto December 30th, just before New Year's. It went up into Aquarius and came back for more. <laughs> and it's been really sitting there, stationing, conjunct Pluto. This is our thoughts and our minds. If you have been having dark thoughts, <laughs> it's because Mercury is in the underworld, right? If you've been thinking of, oh my God, this is the end, or oh, you know, whatever. In our personal lives, it does signal that it is a time of letting go of our parental conditioning, of our childhood patterns, of, you know, of all the things that we have done in order to, you know, be trusted, treated with, you know, with responsibility, get a job, you know, move our way up the social ladder. I mean, so, you know, there's been just these kind of taboos. 
it's okay to do this and say this and look like this, and it's not okay to do this and say that and look like that. Well, now these are being transformed. And Mercury is moving out, like I say, moves into Aquarius. You know, powerful shift. As Venus and Mars march towards Pluto. So this is still building, building. We have an exact Venus-Mars-Pluto conjunction on March 3rd. Very powerful at the exact same degree. But even next Wednesday, Venus and Mars, you know, Venus is moving really slow. So Mars is caught up. And like I said before, they're going to be traveling together. So first it's the mind then it's the heart, Venus, and then it's the solar plexus and the sacral chakra, Mars, boom, you know, coming by, going down and coming back up again, shifting a huge change in our values, a huge change in our, well, we also have to just look at the bigger picture, society, the banking system, the political system, even the religious orders and systems. These are all undergoing this big shift. We know that the United States is going through its Pluto return. That's happening first this month, then again in the summer, then again in October, November. So we know this threefold. It's bringing in a new, and then there needs to be shift to make way, to make space, to establish the new. And so by the end of the year, that third pass of Pluto on the United States, Pluto, will have completed, okay, a big transformation in that whole country. In the meantime, I, I want to focus, I don't know, it's like, so this can be a time, obviously, you know, it's time for taxes, okay, uh, you may be running into problems with bureaucracy, <clears throat> with all kinds of, you know, restrictions on travel, uh, you know, credit cards, and I mean, this whole kind of how I function within a greater, larger order that is wanting to control me, that I need to adapt social distancing, I need to wear this mask, I need to not go here, I need to obey this mandate. All these, you know, powerful, powerful external authority figures that we are basically in the process of throwing off like old coats. <laughs> Whoosh! I've got to read to you, speaking of taking off old coats, I have to read to you the Sabian symbol for Venus conjunct Mars. Because it's just so amazing. It's not until next Wednesday, but Venus will spend the whole day. Okay, Tuesday and Wednesday, Mars will be at, you know, at this degree. It is the 17th degree of Capricorn, right? I'm gonna show this book here. Somebody asked, what book are you reading out of last week? And I realized that, uh, there are new listeners, so some of you are familiar with the Sabian symbols. I'm not going to repeat it again, but it's a symbol for each degree of the zodiac. And the symbol for Venus and Mars coming together is a repressed woman 
finds a psychological release in nudism. The escape from bondage to social inhibitions and a reliance upon the wisdom of the body. Under the pressure of religions that have created a sharp and unwholesome division between soul and body, society has produced strict codes of values regarding the play of natural instincts and has glorified them under the name decency and modesty. The growing trend towards nudism, this book was back uh, in the, this is in the 50s and 60s, okay, <laughs> you know, um, uh, which of course has nothing to do with the pornographic display of one's body, is a welcome protest against the depressing and neurosis-generating puritanism of the past. Men and women are demanding a psychologically as well as physically healthy freedom of the body as a means of overcoming the hypocrisy and constrictions of social behavior. In this symbol we see how our society has been able to repress and distort the natural activity of the human body and its sensitivity to the elements. Thus a contrast is established between healthy youth at play and the neurotic subservience to social religious tradition. The symbol is a call for release from inhibition. Are you feeling inhibited? Are you feeling limited? Is your natural immune system being attacked with inoculations of experimental serums that actually weaken oh. the immune system rather than strengthening it? And are we having organized governmental institutions impose upon us unhealthy, unnatural means of socially interacting, of taking care of our bodies, of teaching our children, of, you know, basically, you know, limiting our entire social organization. So this is kind of a death and ending, I would say, of any form of totalitarianism, of any form of overreach by external authorities into the personal lives and freedoms and liberties of people when it comes to their own choices regarding their own bodies. This is reflected in the astrology of our time. And the beautiful part is that Pluto is in trine to the north node of the moon in Taurus. Taurus, the survival of my physical body, 
of my financial well-being, of my ability to be self-sufficient, make my own choices. And we evolved through the Pluto polarity point. Cancer, my inner child, my natural emotional expression. So it's an emotional time. And our emotions and our instincts that naturally arise and erupt is our spiritual guidance, our intuition that we know from a soul level what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what to do, when to say yes, when to say no. We know this. We have divine intelligence working through our bodies, working through our third eye, working through our pineal gland, which they're now stuffing graphene oxide on swabs right up to the pineal gland, messing around with our internal structure. So this is a time now where Mercury around Pluto is exposing. It's coming out more radically, more clearly, more obviously every day with every scientific research and paper and any honest scientific revelation now is saying that what the governments are doing, what the pharmaceutical companies are doing, what others are doing and attempting to do is not natural, it is not healthy, and it is not good for society. On an internal level, this is also, like I said, it's a time for us to do our inner work. I just finished this workshop on strengthening the warrior within. Mars is exalted in Capricorn. Today's mantra is about soccer, you know. It's about the game of life and aiming towards a goal. Saturn is goals. We have some a beautiful trine as the moon comes through. Right? We have that sun trine moon as the moon moves on through Gemini. And we're coming up to a super powerful, like I said, this full moon in Leo is going to be really, you know, an illumination. And like I said in the Lunar Planner, I wrote the Lunar Planner like yesterday or the day before, for this first quarter square moon, the moon is waxing. The moon is growing in illumination. She is coming into her fullness. And this is our natural inner cycles. Not just, you know, women on their cycles, but the masculine male. We are all the, the tides. I'm watching the tides come in and go out, you know, daily. I, it's just so, there, there's so much order and structure beyond what humanity sees, knows, is able to understand so there's been such a limitation in our scientific research with regard to the etheric body and the astral body and the neutral mind and you know everything up and beyond. They don't understand reincarnation. They don't understand how the chakras work. They don't understand the deep 
spiritual organization of the human being. It's up to each one of us to, in this way, not allow ourselves to be distorted, ourselves to be misguided, but rather assert our truth out into the world, coming together with like-minded souls, supporting movements, supporting each other, and really stepping in to create a new paradigm. I thought we were going to surf into a new paradigm, but we're not surfing into a new paradigm. We are, we are needing to really gather our forces. And all I can say is with reincarnation, we've come in for this. We are the ones we've been waiting for. This is up to us as we awaken and we envision an Aquarian society of a level playing field of enlightenment and a reorganization of the social order. We need to, like, we've been trained for this. That's the mantra, you know. We've been trained for this, and now is the time. 2022. Two, two, two. <laughs> February. Two, two, two. We're coming up to the 20th of February and the 22nd of February. I mean, these twos, twos, twos. Two is polarization, duality, and polarization and duality help us to see more clearly what is out there and define ourselves more clearly about what is in here. So yeah, this is not a time to be escaping, running, hiding, hoping, meditating. We want to make our make the game a meditation. Active meditation. We gotta make this freaking thing happen, baby. So it takes self-discipline. It takes self-control. It takes endurance. It takes perseverance. It takes all the positive qualities of Saturn. Objectivity and maturity. Not just thinking about my own comfort, but what lies ahead in the far distant future. So this is a time of setting goals. This is a time of signing new contracts, of really committing ourselves to what we want to create. And it's a time of ending old contracts, old relationships, old social positions, old ways of relating to our families, to our friends, to our loved ones. So it's time to maybe tear up some contracts and write some new contracts as Mercury moves into Aquarius. Close old bank accounts run by BlackRock and open new local bank accounts supporting your local stores and farmers rather than the big chains. Everything that you can do more locally, everything that you can do more for your community, it's time to pull back and stop supporting the machine, stop supporting, yeah, rather stand up against 
injustice, stand up against laws that need to be changed, mandates that are based not upon any righteous organization of society, but are rather coming from other sources. Yeah. So the song for this week, of course, man, Don't Back Down. Don't Back Down. Tom Petty, I will stand my ground. I will not back down. Ow! <laughs> yeah, man. All right. I've got to keep my eye on the ball as I kick it toward the goal. I've been trained for this, and now is the time to give it all I've got and more. That's endurance. That's perseverance. And endurance and perseverance are a test, a measure of your will, a measure of how bad you want it. How bad do you want freedom? How bad do you want liberty? How bad do you want justice? Well, okay, you know, we're getting tested. We're getting checked. So we need to let the universe know. <laughs> yeah, man. Let your partner know. Let your families know. Mercury Pluto is what? Debate? Intense communication, possibly erupting into something even, you know, you might find yourself wanting to do some yelling and some screaming. <laughs> We did some emotional release technique during the workshop. Pillow screaming, hand screaming, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, stomping. It's, you know, I mean, you, you do want to understand this is going on not just out in the world, but, you know, internally. And it's all right to have feelings, and it's all right to feel repressed, and to break out of that repression. Come out! Do not be your own repressor. <laughs> yeah. There's enough repression going on. We don't need to repress ourselves. <laughs> yeah, man. Ow! So, yeah. I've got to keep my eye on the ball. As I kick it towards the goal. What? I've been training for this. And now is the time. To give it all I've got and more. So hang in there. Like I say, this is a few months. When Venus and Mars move into Aquarius, there will be a shift. There will be a change. So we've got, you know, three, four more weeks where, you know what? Take your stand. Let's make it happen. We are the ones. You are the one. Namaste. Aloha. So much love, power, and strength be unto you.
Pass the talking tick back to you, Richard. Thanks, sir. All right, now I'm looking at next Saturday's chart. All right. Nine o'clock on the 19th. Now, so this week, moon in cancer and it's going to slide through to Libra. The next Saturday night, it will be 13 Libra. All right. And if I click there, tonight the moon is in 14. There you go. Seven days and 89 degrees. Sometimes 91 degrees. Now, what's going to happen is, and the moon is opposing the collection in Capricorn, right? And, uh, Late Monday, and all day Tuesday and a little bit of Wednesday, the moon's going to be in Leo, and it's going to be, first it's going to oppose Saturn, all right? So watch out for, you know, moon opposed Saturn in Leo and Aquarius, all right? So that, that could be interesting, and... Positive energies for planning, not for action, but for future action, all right? And then, okay, then the moon's going to go into Virgo, and the first thing it's going to do is it's going to be, you know, well, we're going to have the full moon there, that that uh, full moon in, in Leo. Um, I haven't uh, done the detail of what day and time it is right now. I haven't gotten there yet. But anyway, moon's gonna moon's gonna pose the sun, then it's gonna pose Jupiter, then it's gonna pose Neptune, and then Saturday morning, Friday night, moon is gonna be opposite Chiron. Remember, when the moon moves into into Libra, it does its fully dance with Chiron over there in Aries. The so there's your week ahead. And uh, that's all I got for right now. Back to you, Rama. Richard? Yep. I just, Rama asked me to unmute. He's having a little trouble getting the... Getting Tanya. It's going to take a moment here. I'm sort of having a glitch. Okay. These things happen. All right, well, I... All right. Well, next, while you're doing that, yeah, I can comment on next next Saturday night. The moon is going to be in a position where it's going to be uh, trining Mercury. When the moon goes into early Libra, it's going to trine Mercury in early Aquarius. Right, so next Saturday, Mercury will be at six Aquarius. And Saturn will be at 11 Aquarius. So, um, between, between the degrees of, uh, zero Libra to the middle of Libra, you know, you got moon, moon trying Mercury. Now, that, that's good because the moon will have made some distance from Pluto. Next Saturday, the moon will be, uh, about seven degrees 
ahead of Pluto. You ready yet, Rama? No, we had to turn it off. It's going to take about 10 minutes to get it back, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Maybe you can share something from Dane Rudyard or something. Oh, just a second. Oh, something magical changing everything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Magic is a thought. It is indeed. These electrons. Yeah, that's good. Oh, by the way, Moon enters Pisces uh, late Thursday, I would say. Here we go. Because next Saturday the sun will be in two Pisces. And I've got a a sister with a two Pisces birthday. Next Saturday? Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Go. Here we go. (laughs) Okay. Happy birthday to your sister, Richard. Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Cubs. So excited about this edition of the podcast because I have a special treat for you. We're going to look at February 2022. So that's a once in a lifetime code of 2-2022, which is a palindrome. And February being the second month. And basically, we're getting very much deeply acquainted with the number of the decade, which is the decade of the 2020s. Now, the treat is is that we're going to look at this code through the lens of Merlin. Now, Merlin was a powerful druid. He was a prophet. He was an advisor to several kings, including King Arthur. And another name for Merlin is Merdin. Now, I unexpectedly began channeling Merlin at the end of 2021. It was a really peaceful holiday for me. My daughter was out of town and Merlin came into my consciousness. And I had not specifically channeled a being before this time. I definitely have channeled information prior to this uh, very frequently in my writing and videos, but not a being. And Merlin is a phenomenal being. And he told me very early on in these channelings that he wanted me to share his points of reflection with a wider audience. And so on occasion, I'm going to share his messages in this Star Codes podcast. I already have shared his messages in my newsletters and in other videos, which you can find on my YouTube channel. Now, Merlin's energy is very powerful, very sweet, gentle, profound, and filled with humor. And he told me he has angelics who work with him. So I asked Merlin about this once-in-a-lifetime code of 2-2022, which is the month of February this year, what it means to us. And his answer is this beautiful meditation on the actual 
code of 2 2022 and the number two. And he builds and builds into this gorgeous final revelation at the end of the message. And so I'm really excited to share this message with you. It's, it's, it was an amazing moment and you'll notice that you won't actually see me on video this time because it came through in the moment and I just turned on the recorder and channeled it. So let's turn it over to Merlin now. Here is Merlin's message on 2-2022. It's definitely going to be going gangbusters in February. This month is tremendously invigorating the momentum of the 2000s is encapsulated in the code of February 2, 2022, which, as you know, is a palindrome itself. Palindromes are sacred geometric shapes. They actually look like a triangle, and they have a point at the top, which is, in this case, the zero with two twos on either side. And the zero represents completion, the alpha and omega. And so this month will represent a true opening. If you look at that zero, it is a window. And it's opening up into the new world, into the new age. And you will all really experience the feeling, if you're not already, the feeling of a fresh new breeze, a change in dynamics, a change in direction, a beautiful new vista, an opening that feels very expansive. Now, the numbers two that show up, we have four twos for February 2022. Two brings the duality, which is part of living on Earth, the night and dark, the female and male, the left and right, the up and down. It brings that duality into balance so that there is not a a tension, a stress, a judgment between one or the other side, but an equilibrium. Two is representative of two sides of one coin. So the zero in the middle, again, is completion. It is the one. One even begins in English with the letter O, which looks like the number zero. And when you, when you are all one, when everything is in unity, unity consciousness, there is no tension, conflict between two opposite sides. There is just negotiation, communication, understanding, diplomacy, peace, compassion, so that there is full acceptance of everyone, no matter where they are on their path. So this, too, shows 
these sides. It points them out. It makes them very clear, but doesn't take sides. So that is really the difference. There can be many different viewpoints on one topic, but to take sides is a whole nother level of disrupting the natural growth that happens when you experience or explore different sides, different viewpoints. Even the, the act of understanding is a, an exploration to experience and have compassion for a different viewpoint. And so this separation that can incur will point out that when there's a chasm, there is no way to feel internal peace, internal unity with source. So it is a very critical moment here that really began in 2020 when you consider that the two code was amplified in 2020 right from the onset. This year, 2022, beginning especially in February, the second month, takes the intensity and the message of unity versus division to an even more intense framework. So you will see the framework itself and then you will transcend the division by embracing all sides, especially when there are two opposite sides, which create the opposition itself. So the dynamics are to unify the left and right, the different paradigms come together, look each other in the eye. We have two eyes. We have two arms, two legs. You have two all over your earthly experience. And it is meant to show you that when you reach out to others, it is bridging a beautiful experience where you come to grow and understand through the expression of or the experience of the other side. So the reaching out that the two represents, the, the bridge that the two represents where you go from one side of the river to the other side of the river and bridge both together as one so that both sides of the river can be experienced equally. This is a beautiful symbol of the ability to choose and to have free choice and to explore the darkness and the light. When you explore the darkness and the light, you actually appreciate life to the fullest because you've given perspective on the dark through the light and on the light through the dark. And it allows you to have great compassion. And so 
when the number two comes into play, it brings an incredible opportunity to be compassionate. And usually that opportunity arises when you have a strong feeling that may place you on one side of the equation. And then when you hear the other perspective, you have only to open your heart in order to embrace what you may not necessarily feel or agree with or follow, but you embrace the other because it is just another reflection of God, of the experience that we are all having. So you really are being confronted this month with looking at the importance of how you feel about a certain issue and accept those that feel differently. Reach out to them over the great divide and hug them and love them and not ostracize them, not kick them out because they don't live up to a certain set of rules or expectations or beliefs or values. And so this is really the key to the number two, which as I've spoken about prior to this message, also sounds like the word two, T-O-O, where we invite others to, to join us, right? So the word two means come in and you too shall join us. You too shall come in. And the number two and the word two, T-O-O, reflect really the same message. So the listening aspect is very important too, is also your relationship to your intuition and relationships of all kinds are coming into the foreground all year long in 2022. And in this month, where you also celebrate Valentine's Day. This month is especially powerful for joining with the other. It isn't always necessarily romantic. It can be a soulmate, a twin flame, a good friend, a new colleague. The joining of people coming together in friendship and in love is very present as well. And this goes for groups as well. This goes for embracing everyone no matter where you stand. So the embrace of the two is beautiful. Now, if you look at this number two and you draw it on a piece of paper, you can see there is an embrace with this number. The number is embracing, hugging, and it has a very strong sense of direction with the hug. The bottom of the two that is the straight line directs the hug itself. It is grounding the energy through the embrace, through the hug, because it is at the bottom of the number when you draw it. So it's sitting horizontally on the ground and hugging, coming, everybody who comes in touch with that two gets a hug. And that is the grounding itself as well. So be very, very kind and loving 
Be very open-hearted. Understand that your heart does not criticize or judge anyone. And get into that space. When you do, your whole life will pivot. It'll pivot into this glorious sense of connection where everything is connected and you feel that at the core of your being. The number two is about connection because you're connecting to something, whether it is your intuition or another, you are connecting. And that represents two coming together as one. So as you connect, connect to earth, connect to what you love to do, your passion, connect to your friends, appreciate your mentors, appreciate your loved ones, and send out signals of love. You will be amazed at the tension that can be diffused, melted away, just allowed to be. Tension ceases when you allow everyone to be, to not interfere in their journey, then there is no tension. And inner tension ceases when you allow yourself to feel and not question it, not worry, not judge, not criticize. The only tension that arises within you comes when you are afraid. There's no reason to ever be afraid of what you're feeling. There just is the ability to allow it to flow through you. So become one with that flow. Become one with your intuition, with your heart. And embrace that hug that the two represents. It is a very beautiful number. Another visual I'd like to give you is that the two looks like a swan. And there is a very elegant energy that comes with the swan. It is very majestic. It is silent as it glides along the pond or the lake. It is very much at peace. And the swan is half a heart. So if you draw another two that is mirroring the two, you draw a heart and you bring two and two together. So I shall leave you with that visual and I send you just the warmest wishes for a beautiful, loving, compassionate, gracious, sweet, open-hearted, and unifying month of February 2022. Sending you hugs and humor. Thank you so much for joining me today for the special edition of Star Codes with Merlin's message on this beautiful code. Now, you also have a beautiful code. You were born with a special numerology astrology code, and it's all revealed 
for you in a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. You can discover your life purpose number, your destiny number, based on your birthday, your birth certificate name, your astrology chart. We're going to go into everything and you get a free handout as well. So head on over to starcodeclass.com and discover your own star code. Enjoy that. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. How's the talking stick back to you, Richard? Thank you, sir. I'm going to pick up where I left off with the moon in Libra next Saturday night. It'll be conjunct my Saturn, which is at 10 Libra. Uh, so, yeah, moon opposite. Chiron. And I find Chiron very interesting. And I really liked what Tanya did there with the number two, which is ruled by Taurus. And Uranus sitting in Taurus doing its thing. All right. Let's see here. Okay. We got Coming up here on the thumb flipper, 12 degrees of Taurus, where Uranus is sitting. A young couple, window shopping. The fascination of the youthful ego with the products of its culture. Okay. Culture's a big, big thing, big thing. You know, after after I studied the physical sciences and I began to study the psychological sciences and everything, you know, uh, I, I spent a, over a year, you know, reading the uh, thinking about human psychology, right? And then after you do that. You start studying sociology, which is groups and groups of people, right? So I like it. When I turned into a philosopher, I guess I turned into a a student of human nature. That's what's going on. All right. So we were headed to uh, 11 Aries. The position of Chiron. Let's see what we got here. Third level, individual mental. 11 degrees of Aries. The ruler of a nation. Keynote. The power resulting from the formal integration of the collective 
desire for order. That's very insightful here, Tara. At this stage of the cyclic process, this symbol refers to the appearance of the personal ego as the central manifestation of a type of order, which is in quotes, a type of order, which transcends and seeks to rule the emotional and instinctual drives of the individual person. Actually, the ruler at this social, political, and mental level of integration is often the one who is being ruled by collective pressures. All right, that, that refers back to what Kaipacha said. Never, nevertheless, the desire for a larger type of integration mm-hmm. has now emerged. It is no longer biological impulsive, Aries, one degree, or emotional personal, Aries, six degrees but social, collective, and institutional bingo. At this ego level, laws and the restrictive power of police force are dominant features. Psychologically speaking, this means that the integrative principle is the limited, more or less, narrow I am realization. I am in quotes. It manifests itself as the personal ego exerting its will to control the reactions of the biopsychic organism. It indicates a centralization of power at the level of a rigidly structured consciousness. That's a good meditation to go to bed on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stay centered, stay strong, stay grounded, you know, stand your ground. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, endurance, I think is another key, another key one as we, as we, you know, as we, as we wait for Mercury to get away from Pluto. Uh, I bid you all adieu and namaste and I'll be pleased to speak with you next week. So must it be, Commander. See you next week. Namaste, brother. Okay, Rama, the phone number for our uh, conference call. 
720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Give the regular phone number one more time, Rama. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody, we'll see you there. And then back here at the top of the next hour at BBS Radio, best radio in the universe by far. Sadnam, see you on the conference, everybody. <laughs> meow, 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 huh? Oh, my God. Well, get to this two-hour thing, Rama. Oh. Yeah. Um. And then we'll play the last two of the others at the end. What's... Day two. Yeah, what is the name? Grand Jury Day 2. No, let's... Micah sent it to you. Huh? I think it's... Micah sent it to you. Um... Um... Grand-jury.net, drama. Okay, grand... Grand, G-R-A-N. Oops. Rama's getting it together here, everyone. <clears throat> Caroline's uh, Ascended Master message to Lightbringers uh, um, for yesterday... She got to talk with Lady Portia. Uh, Grand-jury.net. Oh. Here we go. I'll read a little of this while Rama's working on that. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have the moment, this moment, to speak with you today. Today our writer wishes to speak with Lady Portia, an ascended master who serves in the realms of divine justice. As an ascended being, she lives still upon the earth, serving divine justice so as to benefit earth and humanity. And so she steps forward to speak with you now. Okay, day two. Yes, day two. Micah said if you don't find day two right away, click on day one and then uh, it'll have a place to go to the archives and then you can click on day yeah, two there. Yeah, here we go. Oh. How long do you want to play? A couple of the first two hours. Mm. Trying to get there, it took me someplace else completely. As an ascended being, she lives still upon the earth, serving divine justice, so as to benefit earth and humanity, and so she steps forward to speak with you now. 
Greetings, Lady Portia. This is Caroline speaking. Thank you for speaking with us today. Master Lady Portia, greetings, dear one. How may we assist? Caroline says. You are known by some of the goddess, by some as the goddess of justice, freedom, and opportunity. And by others as a high priestess in the temple of Poseidon. Twin flame to Lord Saint Germain of the violet transmuting flame. As master of the Chohan of the golden ray. One who offers both mercy and judgment. With the violet fire, you must, you assist in, in our transformation to transmute that which holds us in 3D deception and illusion. So my first question is, are you assisting as in releasing the matrix completely from our lives and consciousness or in bringing in energies that will dissolve the matrix after which it seems to me most of humanity would wake up anyway? Master Lady Portia, ah, this is an excellent question. Human predeterminations come into this, as well as this powerful new light you are all experiencing now. There is as well the increasing influence of the new universal era of the Sat Yuga. None of this can be ignored as we look at what is occurring to human consciousness and to the constructs you have been living in for so long. And what is occurring is that nothing can remain the same within the power of increasing levels of the light codes and DNA activations. This is why this shall become known as the era of new justice or divine justice. It is the same now. Can you hide dense dense intent, evidence people? Even ideas expressed in thought or deed, as a powerful light shines into every corner. No, I don't think so. Turning the page here. It's okay, I'll read this memo. No, that would be difficult. Yet what is the human predetermination you mentioned? Master Lady Portia. I'm going to take a drink of water. Here. Oh. No, that would be difficult. Yet, what is the human predetermination you mentioned, Master Lady Portia? The collective soul of humanity has decided to ascend, to exist in the kind of light based crystalline consciousness that serves the higher good of all. This is what some call unity consciousness. 
and one may call it that. To me, it is a release of mind-based existence and the beginning of a high heart-based existence, which is the essence of mercy and compassion itself. You may soon speak with our sister, Lady Master Quan Yin. She is chief amongst those opening the way for mercy and compassion to ring through human hearts so powerfully that all must be recreated into systems and structures of kindness and service to all. Not service to the Dark Lords, rather to the highest form of consciousness as it exists within the higher self of each person. This has already begun and it is metamorphosizing the behavior of humanity. And most interestingly, the expectations of humanity regarding the old systems of governance. As most know in their heart of hearts, there are corrupt systems dedicated to serving the shadow realms and opposing humanity. Caroline, so what is that outpicturing, Lady Master? And then Lady Master Portia answers, you see for yourself the groups who build homes for those who have none. You see the moment, the movement towards smaller homes and simpler living, toward far more sustainable measures that respect Lady Nature, nature rather than exploiting her gifts. You see the movement to no longer shrug off corrupt behaviors of politicians and political constructs, yet to question them. And you see the large-scale demonstrations happening now to demand group and individual freedoms, as well as the concern for children and young people's welfare and the welfare of those who have fought in wars and those who are still fighting, as well as concern for the elderly, for those with special needs, those long discriminated against. You set positive movements in favor of natural healing remedies, free energy devices, education that is truthful and that celebrates individuality, and so on. It is a long list of positive forward movements. None of this is simply an interest in making societies more egalitarian. It is greater even than the beautiful vision. At the heart of this is the realizing, as we do not awaken now and behave as an awakened species, we will, we will lose all that is precious to us, including our own individual abilities to make our own conscious decisions within and without. Wow. Hmm. Caroline, I don't see everyone awakening, Lady Master. I see some trusting the old construct, the old power structure, more rigidly than ever. I never want to feel angry at them or at the structure itself, even, because because it increases the divisiveness. 
though it's difficult some days. Yet I do see those outer effects fading now, even as the old elites throw out their last desperate tries to stay in power. Yet it makes you wonder, how will it be fought for these ones as they awaken to realize they have been blatantly lied to and not only preferring the lies, rather staunchly defending them, Lady Master Portia. The essence of any true awakening is the realization of how much further one has yet to travel. (laughs) Oh, dear. Beyond the initial shock of discovery, that can be an exhilarating moment. This is because of the pattern of the old construct, where the powers that were (coughs) controlled most of one's outer life and even much of one's inner life, wherein each person was told they must meet certain measurements to feel they have the right to call themselves human. (coughs) Yet that is crumbling now at such time. At such a set, at such a rate that it is nearly impossible not to feel the excitement building. Yes, even in this time of rampant and unprecedented corporate government corruption and all it has reached, <coughs> that last gasp you refer to, that open space is revealing itself more and more by the minute. An exhilarating time, because the dissolving of the old leaves room for the new, Lady Master Portia. Most assuredly, and it is an increasingly lightful space, and one that will not be denied. Be assured of that, dear ones. Caroline. This grand jury of the court of public opinion that is happening now is far greater than what it seems at first to be about, would you say? You yourself have known and practiced law over the centuries. Do you see these efforts expanding to include the whole corrupt scheme of the old power structure? To the fullest extent of earth law, Lady Master Portia, yes. And then to the fullest extent of intergalactic law, Over time, you will see those efforts expand to that level as well. Okay, well, I only got one more little bit to read here. So, this is um, Caroline. This really is the beginning of the new era in that case. The end of the lies and deceptions and the start of divine justice as a way of life. Lady Master Portia, most assuredly, dear one, all of you know this. You are assisting all of this with your energy work. While both waking and asleep, you pave the way for the new earth constructs. And you will not be denied. Caroline says, no, we will not, Lady Master. Thank you for speaking with us. We would be thankful for the opportunity to speak with you again. Lady Master Portia, 
she bows. She's bowing to Caroline, so through Caroline to all of us. I am your, I am at your service, dear ones. All who reside in the higher planes, whether in the etheric or physical form, support the empowered self-liberation of this planet. And so it is. Let justice be done. Caroline. Through the heavens fall. Though the heavens fall, excuse me, though in this case the heavens are coming to us, namaste, Lady Master, Lady Portia, namaste, dear ones, you are never alone. Now that was a perfect introduction, Mama's ready. Is there anything that you got to tell us about this part now? Um, not that. I, this is historical. Not, not, not nice and loud. It just says historical background. Okay, that's what we're going to get. Here we go. Saddle for a, a little bit of historical background here. Oh, Mike has said to go forward 18 minutes. Yes, Mike has said to go forward. of invention. Uh. happening? I'm getting there looking at the little numbers here. Details of the PCR tests, but we will start today with a closer look at the uh, historical and at the geopolitical background. Buffering. Go a little bit farther forward, just a tiny bit. Okay. And then turn it on. Entrenched as early as Magna Carta 12:15, its self-government has never been challenged. It has, at many times in its history, had power over the British crown and hence over a large slice of the earth during the British Empire. Uh, What's happening? This part might be glitchy. He might ally with Austria into a single Germany-speaking state. And it was obvious to the British elite that within a generation or two, all three of these countries, Germany, Italy and Russia, would become great powers at roughly the same level as Britain and France. 
the United States emerged from its civil war in Egypt. What's happening? It's just buffering. It's not going to let me really play it. It might start for a few seconds and then. Well, I don't think you'd need to be judging it at the at at the minute. Everybody else gets to play it, so just persist. I would say persist. We should have its members placed at our universities and our schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands. Just one perhaps in every thousand would have the mind and feelings for such an object. This is what Rhodes scholarships are for. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disregardful of the petty details. Why is this happening? Because I don't think I have enough speed to play it. Why don't you have enough speed? Because of where we are, location-wise. What? You do that on everything else? I'm not sure why. That's the only thing I can think. I'm going to have to try to go Try it again. Start it again. Don't go too far forward. We're going to miss half this information here. Academics such as Anthony Sutton, who was at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in California, have written whole books about this, entitled Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Uh, This is well known to those who bother to find out about these things. Um, The um, there was a whole trail of documents which was uh, recovered by Anthony Sutton. Huh. Yeah, go around in the center with it, with your cursor. <laughs> no. It's what not. the heck? I have to play it next week. Well, what's going to make it any different next week? You're going to have more next week. You know, you're going to get way too far behind. I'm just saying I'm not going to get to do it. It's not going to play. This is is what we're going to have to deal with every few minutes. So I'm not going to go there. No, come on. Try it again. Hit it again. Don't give up so easy. No, 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 go forward anymore. Just hit it again. the population in terms of health management, uh, telling them that the way that they exist is not good enough. Their bodies, their minds, their genetics, their intelligence have not been optimal. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Well. I'm going to do it next week. You won't have time, Rama. There's going to be way more next week. Well, it's not going to play. This is what I'm telling you, so... So you better talk to Nelson tomorrow about this. Monday. Yeah. If you need to get an additional something of technology to make it work better. Yeah. I think it's because of where we live that we're not getting this to spit it out, everybody. So I'm going to 
So we're just just know that um, everybody can go to grand-jury.net and uh, Micah was telling Connie earlier on the conference that um, it's day two that is six hours long and as you don't see it right away, go to day one and then you can click to the archives and there you can find day two. It's just not going to let us play it. And Rama will go see our magical computer man tomorrow and ask him if there's some technology that will help us get the signal better. Don't know why it's doing that. It has It's just a bit of a problem. So what about connecting to cosmic intelligence? Oh, we played that already. Yes, then you're going to go to... Living in a Limitless World. Yeah. Okay. This is uh, by George with George Nury. In our constantly changing world, we can hold to our highest intentions and purpose. Author and teacher Sonia Barrett shares her inspirations for finding and expressing the highest possibilities of who can, who we can be, not limited by our expectations. Barrett explains how our human nature allows us to become infinitely adaptable and flourish even in the most difficult times. She discusses how we can discover the natural, natural intelligence of our mind and body, awakening to higher energetic frequencies. Okay, here we go. This is 42 minutes. Sorry, everybody. Just know that it's all working out. it wants to be hacked. Maybe we are all living under a birth-to-death program. That's simply just that, a birth-to-death program. The body waits for instructions from a more evolved consciousness. It's all data. We are just streams of data. We have to become outrageous, like a tree. That's how creation branches out. It branches because we branch. I think that we got locked into this limited version of ourselves in order to experience the most limiting possibilities. And I think we've it's clear that we've done that. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. Sonia Barrett with us, the executive producer of an award-winning documentary, The Business of Disease. She's also the author of The Holographic Canvas and several other books, as well as the host of a radio show called The Expansion Zone that you can hear on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Sonia, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. And how are you? I'm great. What's new? Well, everything is new. (laughs) Everything is new and nothing is new. So lots going on, um, getting through uh, our new version of the world today. 
So I think that's that's what's going on for me right now. Just happy to seem like we're being on the other side to some degree, uh, as opposed to you know what we witnessed maybe last year. I don't think human beings have ever gone through what we've gone through over the last year and a half. It's been truly remarkable. Yet we seem to be getting through it. Yes, and I think that the idea that maybe we've never gone through this before, I think that human beings have gone through a tremendous amount of change, you know, for the course of humanity's existence on the planet. We've gone through a lot of different changes, but the beauty with human beings to some degree is the fact that we adapt. Somehow we manage to adapt because we're survivors. So we, we know how to survive. If we know how to do nothing else, we know how to survive. And I think that's one of the key ingredients uh, as to why we are managing to get through it at this time. Sonia, if you were giving a speech before a vast audience of men and women, how would you start? What would you say to them? Uh, in terms of what this, this time that we're in? Yeah. Well, I think I would probably focus on uh, the fact that change is significant right now. But I think how we cope with that change and the fact that there is a collective change, but at the same time, there is individual change. So not to fear what is going on, but to understand that throughout human history, there has always been transitions and changes that happen. That's how we evolve as a species. That's how we continue to expand and to explore. So look at this from the standpoint of what can I do personally with this change in my life? How can I convert it to an opportunity? When we talk about customizing reality, what do we mean by that? Well, when you look at the way that we are as human beings, what I noticed a long time ago, when I started out on this quest of curiosity, uh, gradually I started to think, are we customized? And by that I mean, uh, is everything sort of structured? Is there just a series of protocols that we're living by? Uh, is there just a, a series of ideas and concepts that have become our reality that have shaped the way that we perceive reality? And uh, my conclusion is that I, I think so. I think that we are customized to a great degree, I think more than we even want to realize because it's so deeply embedded. A lot of um, the things and concepts and ideas that form who we are, they're so deeply embedded generation to generation that it's hard to notice that, well, perhaps we're just not as authentic individually as we might think. Do we control our own reality or does something else control that for us? Um, and, and that is that can be a very a tricky question too because yes I do believe that we do control our reality. However, we are going to function according to the uh, data, the information that we've been exposed to, the conditioning that we have, the programming that we have. Right. Everything that has been embedded in us is what's shaping us. So we are making choices and decisions from that core place. So yes, you are controlling your reality, but what is the root of of what you believe? What is the root? Where is the uh, actual foundation? And what is that data that is at the core of 
what forms you as a human being. So it's a, it's a big question, but I think it's one that should really be explored. That ties right into a Gaia program called Down the Quantum Rabbit Hole, where Dr. Daniel Monty and Dean Radin discuss that version of reality. Back in the uh, 17th century, we came out of a period of time where we saw the universe as this living, um, vibrant um, entity to that of the world as a machine. And with that, scientists came along, such as Descartes and Newton, which solidified that concept because they were describing science and mathematics of a non-living world, of inanimate objects, and did some very um, beautiful calculations and enhanced our understanding of non-living systems. Descartes really looked at the world as a machine. He was very interested in clocks. The problem is, is they applied this model of a clock or a wind-up toy soldier to living systems as if we understood the parts, the different components of the system well enough, we would understand how the system works as in a clock. The key underlying assumptions that most scientists still work under is that we live in a clockwork universe. We live in a mechanistic universe that is conceived of as gears and knobs sort of linking together. That is going to change because we know that that is not true. We know from a physics point of view it's not true. The impact of that change is still somewhat difficult to guess, but one of the areas that I know is going to make a big impact is in how we understand the nature of human experience. Because human experience in a clockwork world doesn't fit. And that's why in mainstream psychology for many years, the very idea of an internal experience was considered to be laughable. There was no internal experience. It was explained away. And the reason it was explained away is because of this idea of living in a clockwork world. I tend to agree with Dean Radin. What do you think, Sonia? you agree with him? Um, well, yes, to some degree. I think that much of what we're dealing with uh, in terms of reality is completely time-based in terms of our interpretation of time, uh, in terms of our understanding, I think, of what uh, what time is. Um, and and it, I think at the same time, it's also relative in terms of the individual. But I think that we do live in a reality where there is more fluidity, mm-hmm. I think, than is realized. Again, we are dealing with our exposure to uh, different kinds of influences that's affecting the way that we are experiencing reality, no matter which way we go. We have to recognize that we are being influenced in the end by each other and by our understanding and by what we see. Ultimately, I think that's what it is. And I think the need to break out of that is where my position is, is to break out of this construct, this narrow version and interpretation of reality and recognize that we really are living by this sort of singular interpretation, and you dare not step outside of uh, that model. Well, I dare to step outside of that model because I think we need to understand more about this idea of time. Life is a science, and I think it wants to be hacked. It wants to be interpreted. It wants for us to understand. What fascinates me about this, too, is talking about the grand design of all of this and how it was designed. I mean, does that perplex you? 
Um, the, when, when you say, does it perplex me, do you mean um, like am the, I, the creation, how it all happened? Well, I think that's what everybody is still trying to come to an agreement on, you know, exactly how did it happen? Will we figure out specifically how it happened? Um, because what do they say? Past, present, and future. Everything is happening all at the same time. Are we coming into existence at the same time that we are actually existing? I think there's so many interesting perceptions that we can have, look at about exactly um, what's going on in, in terms of reality and in terms of uh, our effect on on all of it. We, you know, where do we go from here? We have to really break through the cycle, the old cycle of percept of our perception, which is, I think, a very limiting one. Even when we are curious or we believe that we are uh, even super aware, for myself, I really started to notice, well, just how authentic are you? You know, how do you know that you like the color blue because you like it? I think we just have to go back to really recognizing that how the universe was designed. That's, I mean, well, it's not just the universe, but it's creation in general. How, how was that designed? I think until we can step out of this box of human understanding, everything that we interpret is going to be based on our narrow human interpretation, um, from mathematics on. What might we discover about ourselves? Well, I think what, one of the things we will discover is that, uh, for me, I recognize that the body actually plays a much larger role than we give it. Uh, this is fascinating technology. The, the entire construct of creation is, is fascinating technology. It's just a technology, as I said before, brilliant. it's brilliant. It's beyond our minuscule interpretation of technology, right? Because what we can only com- make comparisons according to our perception of what technology is. But on a vast level, the body is something that has not been um, understood. We haven't hacked it yet. We haven't accessed it yet. We haven't turned it on yet. I think that that play, this plays a huge role in the bigger picture of what we're, we're trying to understand. I mean, and we could go into all kinds of levels with, you know, well, what is the body? The body's its own really intelligence. So we've got different levels of intelligence by which we're operating. And the body is on its own a, almost a separate intelligence to some degree designed that way. Um, because it's, it's good at surviving. It's sure. designed to, like a, like a system, like a computer system. It's designed to stay alive at all costs. It's designed to be able to keep this organism going so that that which occupies the organism, that occupies the body, can continue to have the experience here in this particular version of reality. They're beginning to say, Sonia, that the heart literally is another brain within the body. Absolutely. It's amazing. Absolutely. It creates emotion. So, you know, a loved one dies, you get very depressed, maybe you would die. And they, they, they say that the heart really has a brain to itself. Absolutely. And I think that we're going to find out even more about not just the heart, but all the other organs. But absolutely. When you look at the heart, which is supposed to be the, um, 
the greatest generator in the body, you know, like a natural generator. Now you've got all the frequencies being processed through the heart, all the emotions, which are electrochemical impulses. You've got all these frequencies, right, that are being processed through the through the heart. Now, when you say somebody can die of a broken heart, you can really understand how the frequency it of sadness sense. can affect the heart. Well, the heart also sends that message to the rest of the body. It sends that message to our very DNA. That It's all data that's being moved about. We are just streams of data. So the heart is processing data, right, interpreted as frequencies. So it's, uh, I think it's fascinating that we have the gut, gut brain. So we, we have all these different aspects of us that when we can unlock that information, we're going to be a lot more powerful. And I think that it will change, uh, the way we respond and react emotionally. Um, that's going to make a huge difference because right now we are consumed and our bodies are affected in a, in a drastic manner by the way emotions are processed and the data that is being processed in our emotions. That is definitely affecting the body through health and so many other ways. How did, how did you get to this point of knowledge? Uh, for me, again, curiosity. I've always been curious. Trial and error. <laughs> That's every day. That's yeah. every day. But Wrong. as a child, I, I think some people are born, they come into this life with a curiosity. I, I for sure came in with a curiosity that was definitely, some of it was definitely a lot different than most people because I question death. Well, most people don't question death, not right. in, in the manner in which I have. I've questioned that. So over the years, over time, uh, in the early 90s, I'd say around 92, after going through a, a divorce, I think that was my moment of saying, I need to understand more about this, this game called life. What, what is this thing that I'm involved in? And who, who is me? Who is I? You know, what am I referring to? So there was a lot of questions that came up for me and, um, on my own, I set out to discover, discover this. And as you know, I, I didn't know how to meditate. So, so I started from scratch. I, there were no workshops. I didn't know anything about anything, metaphysics, sure. nothing, quantum physics, absolutely nothing. So I started from scratch in my own quest and stayed very committed to this discovery as I unlocked myself and as I realized I could access these different levels of information, um, it, that's what started to happen. And it was like a child in a candy store. And I started to go deeper and deeper and into it. And you evolved. And I continued to do that. And so that's how I go back to the idea of, of time and what that really means for us and the body. And it goes back to my very earlier question as a child. Well, if I question the idea of death, it would mean that I'd have to eventually question the idea of time. So gradually all these pieces started to, to just show up for me. And I started to get a better picture as to what we didn't understand. And also the fact that we, maybe we are all living under a program a birth to death program. That's simply just that a birth to death program. Is there something outside of that beyond that? 
That's what I started to question. I started to see that, ah, I'm, you're living under the ceiling um, of commonality, of common acceptance, common protocols mm-hmm. of what reality can be and cannot be. And I think that's really important for us to recognize that we are living according to what we're told is acceptable to process and what is not. So then everybody conforms to these ideas about what reality can be and cannot be. Even in our expansiveness, sometimes we are still locked in this this system, this construct of limitations. Precisely. That's what I discovered. And so I have done everything to continue to to move beyond that. Not good or bad, better or worse. That's what I discovered. But where you are, when you understand what you understand, that's where you are. It's not good or bad. But can you continue to build on that awareness without limiting yourself to what's comfortable. And I decided I didn't want to be comfortable with my understanding. I needed to hack the bigger construct. So here I am. Let's tap into down the quantum rabbit hole again, where Lynn Big Taggart talks about humanity and how it views itself. Science creates the stories that we live by. And science has told us a very bleak story. It's told us that we're some sort of genetic mistake, that we have genes that use us basically to move on to the next generation and that we we randomly mutate. It's said that we are outside of our universe, that we're alone, that we're separate, and that we're this sort of lonely mistake on a lonely planet in a lonely universe. And that informs our view of the world. It informs our view of ourselves. And we're now realizing that this view, this view of separateness, is one of the most destructive things. It's the thing that creates all the problems in the world. And we're now realizing that that paradigm is wrong, that we aren't separate. We are all one. We're all together. At the very nethermost element of our being, we are connected. And so we're under trying to understand and absorb what are the implications of that. What does this really mean to me in my life? Sonia, do you agree with Lynn McTaggart there? I, I do agree with her. Um, but one of the things that I like to uh to point out always is that where we are when it comes to science. Where we are, whether as individuals or as scientists, are we what right or wrong in that moment? I think that that is just where we are in our understanding. And so the question then is, can you keep pushing beyond what we know now? Because what we know at this time in 20 years or maybe even next week could change, could change. And this is why science is constantly refiguring and discovering because you will we will never there will never be a bottom of discovery like an ultimate it it i well i'd say that is one of the things that i realized and that freed me because i didn't have to try to get reality to be stuck in a construct but realize that reality is showing itself to me, or maybe I am seeing it according to where I am in my understanding. Now, if I free myself and I allow myself to see more beyond that, 
then I will always continue to see a next level, a next version, a next new understanding. But if you lock yourself into, and some scientists have done that, where they say, absolutely not, this is the way it is, then that's where you are until you're ready to change that construct. Now, in a way, sadly, human beings, not all human beings, but I think humans in general, look to scientists to give them permission for what it is okay to understand or, and to perceive about guidance. reality. Exactly. So we tend to do that. And so it, it sort of brings us into that sort of hive space, even though, yes, we are one But individually, our responsibility is to bring a uniqueness to this oneness that we are. That's why that which is, which cannot be defined, shows itself as individuals, as, you know, as everything that we see around us in order to have the unique experiences that come from each thing, each plant life, each star, each everything. And so I don't see things as, you know, we were wrong and that's not, you know, we were wrong. I think that that's just where we were in that moment. But the individual has an opportunity to always go beyond what science has discovered. I do not believe in waiting for science to give me permission to understand because most of the time what I realize is what maybe I discovered um, then here comes science saying that. And it's been like that for ages, through all, through all the ages with different sages, with, you know, it's always been that way. So I think we are in a moment in time where humanity has the choice. They've always had the choice. But I think this moment in time is saying you have an opportunity to step it up. I think that the bigger picture wants, is ready for humans then to go into a different level of evolution. Like nature continues to, to branch out like a tree, constantly branching out. And here we are. So regardless of what may be going on on the political front and all of the insanity, they're playing their roles. But at the same time, it can be an opportunity that drives the individual to go deeper into self-discovery. And so I like to look at it that way. We are being forced to wake up and to discover more deeply, or we can stay on what I like to call the default evolution, which means that, sure, you can stay on the treadmill and and wait for um, a default kind of evolving, or as an individual, I can say, you know what, I am so ready to discover more. Not everybody is here to do that. So, it's, again, it's not a right or wrong thing. I think we're all here as free agents on different missions in this life in terms of what we discover and what we experience. Sonia, what does the collective consciousness mean to you? Uh, when I think collective consciousness, I think that just overall, all the all the beings and all humans that are here, if we're talking on the, just the human level, all, the, all humans that are here, I think collectively we have um, – certain understandings, certain beliefs, certain things that um, we collectively agree on um, that form our reality. So I think there's there's these there are these collective agreements rather that we use to form our world, um, which is how we are able to 
relate to each other, to have connections with each other, relationships with each other, because there are these common views and common perceptions. However, there are aspects that are going to be different. But what a human being looks like, uh, we kind of agree on these certain things, you know, what a tree looks like, what a chair, you know, there's certain things that are just core part of collective consciousness. Now, collective consciousness may also have an, uh, an agreement or an attachment to, uh, again, the, a standard um, birth-to-death program. But here, I'm going to throw this in uh, real quickly because I have to throw this in. All right. All right. So we like to think that the whole world, like all human beings, are basically the same in the sense of the birth-to-death process. But I started looking at it, and I think, well, I don't know all human beings. I don't know who's here. I don't know the many versions of reality that are existing right here, right now, with human beings that are operating perhaps in a more, maybe a more elevated space of thinking than the birth to death program that we all seem to be attached to. So I started to look at that. I thought, you know, well, I don't know that. I'm being told that everybody lives this way or everybody thinks this way or the media presents this to me or religion presents these same concepts. But what if that's not so? So collective consciousness is precisely in my interpretation what I've described but at the same time, I think there are other aspects of human beings that, that are very much here that may be living in, beyond what this base, uh, these base mm-hmm. concepts um, that we seem to be experiencing. Do we as human beings understand our own limitations? Um, do we understand our own limitations? I think that we set limitations on ourselves based on, again, what we're told. Uh, what we're conditioned to believe. Um, but at the same time, I don't know that the majority recognizes that there really are no limitations. I think that's the big question. There really are no real limitations, but there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. But we are going to respond in our boxes uh, and, and some boxes are smaller and some boxes are bigger. Either way, we're still in in these various boxes. And so it's recognizing, you know, what are the boundaries that I'm operating within? You know, are these boundaries based on um, external data perceptions? You know, how did I end up in this box? Um, and I think also know thyself becomes a really big one. Can you tell the truth to yourself about where you are? Can you be honest without thinking that this is a judgment or a blame? I think until we can really tell the truth to ourselves about maybe the, the limiting world that we um, express or operate within, it's very hard for us to move beyond that. And I remember a couple of times a while back, I had said to my husband, I said, you know, my world feels really small. It was, I was doing so it's many things. Right? Yeah. And you know, and it's, it was that moment of realizing that even though people look at Sonia and think, gosh, you know, you have these outrageous concepts, which we love. I still kept feeling like, no, my world needs to be bigger. It needs to be more. And I think when we can come to that space and recognize my world is not my personal world in my mind, needs to be bigger. We have to become outrageous in our thinking 
when I say outrageous, outrageousness allows us to step outside the box, not be so comfortable because creation, it wants us to discover all potentials. Why is that? Because that's what we're, we're here to do. We're here to experience, express all that can be imagined. And yes, that's why we have crazy things that happen because it's all there. It's all a possibility. So just as we can experience the crazy things, then we should be able to move forward, continuously move forward into possibilities that far exceed our little tiny box of being born. And then we live these tiny lives and then we die. That for me as a child was very questioning. I'm, I'm talking, I don't know, maybe four or five years old. The whole thing was just bizarre, bizarre to me. It felt like an airport, I always say, of arrivals and departures. And I used to think, doesn't anybody think this is odd? You come in, people come in, then they leave, and then we we somehow adjust because we adapt. That's what we do. We adjust. We we adjust to the pain. We We handle it. We deal with it. But I'm thinking, no, no, there's something else going on here. So, yeah, so I've spent the time pushing the boundaries to see that uh, that there is so much more that wants me to see it because like a tree, that's how creation branches out. It branches because we branch. But if we don't branch, we can't branch if we're not asking those questions. If it's safe, you can't branch. I'm here to branch. <laughs> Dr. Joe Dispenza on Down the Quantum Rabbit Hole echoes exactly what you're saying. When the soul emerges, when a person begins to wake up, they weigh, they begin to weigh what they know and what's working for them against what what is that inner urge and that inner drive. And for some people, it's a clean cut. They make the break, they understand what it is, and they begin to gain knowledge and apply that knowledge. Other people have to have their system fall apart. They have to go through the disruption of that ordered and finalized complete state of the personality that keeps everything intact and everything in order based on how the person's wired. So the the tragedy in one sense is really just the death of an old self. And it allows then a birth. And the birthing process at times can be difficult because it's painful. And what's painful about it more than anything else is that we no longer are producing the same thoughts that make the same chemicals. We're breaking the addiction to all those agreements chemically. That is an uncomfortable state for the human being because they can't connect to any person, place, thing, or event out in their world. And because that, that discomfort gives them the sense of no relation to anything. That, that is uh, borderline uh, nervous breakdown. It's borderline insanity because... You look for some evidence in your life that you're doing the right thing. And everywhere you look for evidence in your life is with the people you've had all those agreements with. So you can't even turn and talk to those people because they're going to ask you to go back to the same person so that they can keep that agreement intact. If the person has the, the knowledge to be able to understand that and they can ride their way all, all the way through it, they'll begin to understand that a new self is emerging and those old patterns will literally crumble. They'll, li they'll literally disconnect in the brain. 
and it'll give them an opportunity to give birth to a new self. That new self will have a whole new set of people in their life equal to who they become. So in a different way, Sonia, he agrees with you. Oh, absolutely. He's saying he's saying precisely that because the body is a chemical factory. And so uh, everything is is, you know, functioning um, in the body based on the emotions and the belief systems and the all, you know, all of those things, because, again, it's all data. It's all information that's being moved about all day long in, in the organs, in the cells, all information. So the question is, what level of information is being processed in the body. And if your um, belief system is tiny, which is fine. If it's, if it's, if it's narrow, then that's, you know, your body but is processing that it that too. way. Pardon me? If it's narrow, you'll end up being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, all of these things uh, come into play in the sense of um, the life that we live, how long we live, uh, you know, our sicknesses, you know, it's this incredible science that really is all up to us when we understand. And yet change can be very tough for anybody, for a lot of people. It just depends on what that change is. And we want to be comfortable because comfort is safe. We want to feel safe, which is why religion works so well, too, because it gives you. And again, this is not a good or bad thing. I'm just saying the reason why we get drawn to these constructs is because it gives us answers. We feel that it gives us some answers, some security, some sense of direction, um, some sense of, of knowing what might, what could happen after this body is released, after this body right. is no more. So I think that that kind of, in a way, becomes a setup to some degree for a human being because what if there is more beyond just waiting to leave the planet? What if there's so much more there? And I, you know, for me, that's what I started to discover is how much more there is. And I have not even scratched the surface, but every day uh, I just engage in new levels of awareness. And I want to say uh, also that uh, when you look at ancient uh, practices, you know, like, um, Qigong, I'm going to say Qigong or, um, even meditation, like Vipassana meditation, that. you know, all of these ancient tools were actually discovering or, or, um, yeah, discovering and preparing the human for the, what happens actually in the body and how to actually regulate this form, which is why the idea of moving chi through the body is so significant. So it's all a divine technology. Do we know how to do that? No, we don't because we're not taught that in school. We are taught that someone else is always going to know better for, for you, for your body. So we're very disconnected right. from the language of the body, from even being in communication with our body and our brain and our whole construct. But that's what those ancient practices were really about is getting the human to come back, be in a centered space to actually be present to be the pilot for this body and to regulate this life force uh, energy that moves through uh, this vessel. Well, if we understand that, I mean, there's it's limitless as to how we can manage our bodies and even time. Let's talk about the human body and its ascension. 
William Henry had a chance to talk to me on this very program, and he talked about what it means for humanity's endgame. Ascension really is a quest for wholeness. It's the idea that we can regain our true nature. Many of the ascension keepers that we'll talk about have this belief that our, our present flesh and blood body is not our original form or our true nature. They believe that we were originally light beings, that we had an existence, a pre-physical existence as a, as a light being, and that we somehow became trapped in our physical bodies. And part of the ascension process is to learn to transcend our physical bodies and return to our original or true nature as a light being. Are we moving in that direction? We are. There's two tracks that we're moving along. One is a, a spiritual and organic movement. People around the world by the millions, hundreds of millions, are practicing yoga, doing meditation. This is all about true, feeding the light body, the organic light body. Then the second track is transhumanism, where your AI developers are thinking that we can create a, a non-physical body that lives in a simulated reality. Would you agree with that? Um, I, yeah, I agree to, um, to, well, to a great extent. Um, I think that as far as the light body, absolutely. I think that we are so much more. But at the same time, I do see that the body, once we understand in terms of that idea of ascension, doesn't necessarily involve death. Yes, I know. I go completely off the rails with that. Um, or do we move to a space, to a level of understanding, a level of awareness where this interface system that we call the brain uh, and the entire system is able to take the information because you're now you're operating a completely different level of consciousness which obviously is a higher level of vibration that or frequency can we then literally transform the structure of this body i feel that we do, we can't i feel that that is something that is extremely possible i think that's one of the things that we are locked out of with this program i think that everything since we are, since there's, it's wave and particle, that's what we're dealing with, appearing and disappearing, um, that this body can definitely deconstruct, is the word deconstruct or transform. I think that it can transform, it can be just pure sound, which it is. It's, it's sound, it's color, it's, it's light, it's all of these, um, frequencies then of the electromagnetic spectrum and beyond that. So I think opening ourselves up to a much bigger picture is a necessity to see that we don't have to be afraid that we can't do it. I think that this is where we're going into what would probably be then considered superhuman. I think that that's just our natural ability. I think those things are just natural to us. I think that we got locked into this limited version of ourselves uh, in order to experience the most limiting possibilities. And I think we've, it's clear that we've done that. Um, but I do feel that the body, the body waits for information and instructions from a more evolved consciousness that will at that point occupy this form. I think there is no limit to the evolution of the consciousness that you are, that I am one consciousness, but as 
individuals as we appear in individual form. Um, I think it's all possible. And if we say that we are everything, see, it becomes a contradiction because we say we are everything. Everything is really made up of the same substance, different patterns, different mathematical formulas that shape different constructs. Then if we are everything, that means then this body can completely be transformed into any space, time, you know, realm. We're possibly, we're doing that already, but we're more conscious of this construct of reality. We seem to be very, we're fixed on this, but it doesn't mean that we're not traveling about in time. So, so for me, it's a much bigger picture, um, about what is possible. And I find that extremely exciting. Thanks for being on Beyond Belief, Sonia. Thank you. Humankind, it's our nature to try to better ourselves. Keep doing what we're doing, and with people like Sonia Barrett, we'll get there. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Okay. We're going to jump right in, right under the wire here. Penny sent Rama the form of the grand jury part two in a YouTube, which should, well, we're just going to play to the end. That's all there is. Well, I got to get the music ready. Yes, you will get the music ready. We'll have music at the end. Yes, we will. Okay, this is for the sake of the work that's being done in our behalf, the whole of humanity, for removing criminals who will kill for profit with impunity. And that's not okay. All right. You got the sound up, honey? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Um, it's supposed to be playing. Good day, good morning, wherever you are. This is the second day of the grand jury investigation. This is a model proceeding which will take a very close look into the entire corona pandemic. How it started, the details of the PCR tests, but we will start today with a closer look at the uh, historical and at the geopolitical background. So let us start with our first expert, and that is uh, Matthew. It's not you. It's um, it's Alex. Alex Thompson. Alex, please introduce yourself, and then we will go right into uh, uh, medias res, as the Latin speakers say. You're muted. Thank you very much, Raina. I am Alex Thompson, and for eight years, I was an officer of Britain's Signal Intelligence Agency, GCHQ, the partner agency to NSA. 
and there I was a desk officer for the former Soviet Union and a transcriber out of languages including Russian and German of intercepted material. And in the latter half of that period, I was also a member of GCHQ's cross-disciplinary team for chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats, CBRN, in which capacity I came to know something about how the Anglo-American intelligence and military establishment regards its state of dominance in knowledge uh, in all matters that can affect health on a mass scale and the potential for weaponization of such agents. Uh, but you've asked me to give uh, something like a 20-minute uh, summary of the geopolitical situation as it was in the world in the crucial period leading up to the post-Second World War period, because most of the testimonies this evening, and I understand in subsequent uh, sessions of the grand jury, will concentrate much on the post-1945 world and that really being the uh, time when a lot of plans for uh, unification of world government began in anger, including the health issues that you are concerned with. And my contention is that the dominant power in the world, namely the city of London, the financial heart of the British Empire, uh, readied itself for that situation from roughly 1870 and that the modern world, the monopolization, the cartelization of the world begins in anger at that time. Uh, everything that we do, and by we I mean UK column news, uh, I am also joined this evening by Brian Gerrish, the joint editor who will testify later, everything that we do in investigating the corruption emanating from uh, British crown monopolies and City of London money, uh, does seem to point back to this period from around 1870 in which, in a nutshell, there were several revolutions by the British elite and they all revolved around containing productivity and preventing a growth of uh, intelligence and uh, intellectual property uh, among the native peoples of the British Empire and in competitor nations. So there was a revolution in what you might call mind space, which since 2010 has been an uh, explicit term used by the British government's central department, the cabinet office. A revolution in the quality of education offered to British and later other Western school children. A revolution in the theft of intellectual property by the elite. A revolution in the model of healthcare and free access to it. And at home, a constitutional revolution uh, from the classic British uh, liberal democracy model, which I know that the continent of Europe and its law schools have uh, explicitly copied from Britain, to a model in which there is close control of what happens in parliaments and in agencies under the control of governments uh, using the whipped party system. This all happened, as I say, around 1870, and at home in Britain, it was largely complete by the crucial year 1947-1948, when Britain had a unique, uh, other than Canada, a unique situation of a national health service, uh, and was pushing the way towards the military unification of the European continent and the whole of NATO, and in many other ways, including planning law and citizenship, was leading the world in reinventing how it managed its population. The centre node here is the city of London. That is the square mile uh, at the very heart of what is now called Greater London. 
why this is important is because the City of London and the Church of England are the only institutions that have endured every constitutional revolution in the British Isles with their privileges and their vast wealth intact. The City of London is distinct from other world metropolitan areas, uh, megalopolises, in that it chose to keep itself geographically small as the urban area around it grew. The City of London still has a legal status apart from the 32 under other London boroughs and does not really form part of Greater London as, uh, as such. Its privileges were entrenched as early as Magna Carta 1215. Its self-government has never been challenged. It has at many times in its history had power over the British crown and hence over a large slice of the earth during the British Empire, uh, notably during the civil wars of the mid-17th century uh, when the city of London continued as the financial power rivaling the crown and even in some ways abolished the crown for a decade. And after the restoration of the crowns and ultimately the English Revolution, uh, just six years after that with the Dutch Dutch King William III coming to the crown of Great Britain, the Bank of England was set up in 1694 with a £12.5 million uh, injection of cash into the crown uh, by these private shareholders, uh, which uh, we are reliably told forms the basis of all the debt which has been leveraged since to this day. And the current descendants of those shareholders and others entitled uh, to shares of the Bank of England are kept secret. Uh, the City of London also has control over the so-called Mother of Parliaments, the Westminster Parliament, notably in the form of an official of the City of London known as the Remembrancer, who sits in the House of Commons where not even the monarch is allowed to enter and records what is being said against financial interests. It's too complicated uh, to give a definition of the Crown in the British model, uh, but what is important is that the Cabinet Office uh, and Department, which was set up in the early 20th century, is the repository, effectively, of Crown prerogatives. And so when people outside the United Kingdom think of the Crown, uh, they often think excessively of the old situation with the monarch standing on the coronation oath and being responsible to the people. Uh, in practice, uh, in this period from around 1870, the constitutional revolution has ensured that financiers controlling political parties uh, actually pull the levers of crown prerogatives. Uh, behind the scenes, the model of government Britain still has, which it has exported to the Commonwealth and the whole world, is that of an inner sanctum, the Privy Council, which actually governs in the name of the Crown, and it is only for show, as the main constitutional writers have admitted since the 1870s, only for show that Parliament and government departments are consulted as if there were a separation between executive, legislature and judiciary. At Privy Council level, this is not the case. Uh, in this crucial period about which we are speaking, the preeminent English constitutional writer, Walter Bashoe, admitted this in the, 17, in the second edition of his book, The English Constitution, written in 1873, just when the modern whipped party and behind them the think tank were coming into their own to establish the will of monopolists in the city of London. Walter Bashoe wrote in one paragraph there about a distinction between the, quote, dignified parts of the government, that is, the parts that are there for show, uh, the crown, uh, in its personal sense, and the, quote, efficient parts, in the sense of the working parts of the machine. And he admits that the attractive parts do have a purpose, but that is only to attract the force of national support to the really working parts behind the scenes. Now, to simplify this as much as possible, uh, what I think is important to point out is that uh, 
the uh, history uh, academic at Georgetown University, Carol Quigley, that's C-A-R-R-O-L-L Quigley, who was the tutor of Bill Clinton, among others, uh, uh, wrote quite frankly in his book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, that there have been four industrial revolutions. Yes, that familiar language coming from the World Economic Forum uh, was being written about in the 1960s already by Quigley. And we will not understand this unless we see that the perspective which is being assumed here is that of who owns the population, first in Britain and then in the British Empire. In the first revolution, uh, the ownership of land, of agricultural means, uh, provides wealth. Then there is a mechanical industrial revolution, a second revolution, then one in which financial capital dominates the world. And it's from this period, period around 1870 onwards that the smart money in the city of London realises that even that bubble is going to burst. And that the really important way to own the world in the future will be to own the minds and the productivity and the thoughts of those in the model to make to stop them running away uh, and becoming and outproducing their bosses. So the modern era of capitalization in both industry and geopolitics began around the year 1870. In the space of just a few years around that date, the world underwent a fundamental shift from a situation in which the city of London and the British Empire lacked any serious competition <clears throat> to a world in which several industrialized economies were able to outcompete Britain. The British Empire and its financial hub in the city of London had massively overextended themselves across Asia in the previous generation, especially with the Afghan wars and the Opium Wars in the 1840s and the Crimean War and the Indian Mutiny of the 1850s. One of the City of London's most powerful banks, HSBC, dates, in fact, from the time of the Chinese opium trade. Uh, there is quite a lot of criminality involved in the City of London's banks uh, in the outset. In Europe, the post-Napoleonic order imposed by Britain at the Congress of Vienna in 1815 had begun to crumble with both the successful and the failed socialist revolutions of 1848. Russia and Austria-Hungary were the Eastern European countries with the most powerful land armies at that time, and it was they who safeguarded Europe by restoring the crowned heads. Therefore, the obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, and this is something I saw when I attended Chatham House meetings, the, the uh, supreme, the world's supreme geopolitical think tank in many ways, which tells the Foreign Office what to do. The obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century was a new strategy, namely to ally with the arch rivals of the past, France and even the Ottoman Empire, against Britain's historic allies in Northern and Central Europe in order to prevent any future Russo-German alliance from becoming the world's dominant bloc. And a secondary strategy there was to prevent the meteoric rise of American intellectual productivity and democratization of invention uh, and to try to capture that. As early as 1812, British troops invading Washington, D.C. notably spared the patent office because they knew that if they burned that, they would be shooting themselves in the foot and stopping themselves from being able to continue to dominate American invention after the American Revolution. Now, in the years around 1860, under Bismarck, Garibaldi and Tsar Nikolai I, three major European nations which previously had been great only in cultural terms had suddenly become politically unified and economically modern states. And with the Großdeutschland, Kleindeutschland debate, there were serious indications that Germany might ally with Austria into a single Germany-speaking state. And it was obvious that the British elite 
that within a generation or two, all three of these countries, Germany, Italy and Russia, would become great powers at roughly the same level as Britain and France. The United States emerged from its civil war in 1865 and began a staggeringly rapid rise to industrial supremacy. Britain's elite correctly foresaw that by around 1900, all four of these new powers would begin to have navies as strong as France's or even as strong as Britain's, and foresaw that the land armies of these European powers would be far stronger than Britain's, so that only a previously unthinkable Franco-British alliance in the name of human rights and a spread of liberal democracy would be able to hold these powers in check. By 1880, the so-called scramble for Africa was in full swing, which allowed even territorially minor nations in Europe, such as Belgium and Portugal, to acquire substantial resources from colonization of the African interior and to become serious rivals to British industry and commerce. This was a severe embarrassment to the city of London because, for example, Portugal was Britain's oldest ally and Belgium was a state that owed its very existence to British negotiation in 1815. Serious arguments have been made by historians that the, well, the wave of assassinations in the Edwardian era, including that of the Portuguese royal family in 1908 and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, were engineered with secret City of London connivance. There was also an Asian country that became a great power in both industrial and military terms at the end of the 19th century, namely Japan, which, to the world's frank astonishment, beat Russia in 1905, thereby giving many colonial populations in Africa and Asia the inspiration that there was no reason why they too could not assert themselves against European rule in the way that the Latin American republics already had against Spain. The following year, 1906, was the year of the naval race, the Dreadnought Crisis, which perhaps inevitably started to count down to the Great War, the First World War, because both the British and the German elite were now determined to achieve Weltherrschaft, world domination. Both were rightly suspicious of each other's motives. Both were technically capable of achieving world domination, both industrially and in the mind space, and both had powerful blocks of allies for the first time. In a nutshell, the change brought about by the existential crisis of the mid to late 19th century was that the City of London's trading model, as described by Quigley, the successive waves of monopolies, this model came to emphasise the importance of controlling not just military force or physical assets anymore, but the minds of people, now known as human resources, in the British Empire and further afield. And this is why science fiction starts speaking about ownership of man's genetic makeup from this time in order that the City of London could sell goods and increasingly services to the rest of the world, which would never catch up in the mind space. It is the consistent finding of UK column and of allied researchers and commentators that the City of London and Britain's very wealthy soft power institutions, the ones that Tony Blair even this month has once again told us we must keep and become well-beating using, such as the British Council, the BBC, British Academia and the Church of England, that these institutions continue to regard that battle for the mind as their top priority for world domination and that they regard health as a subsector of that battle. We are also fully convinced from repeated findings that the British elite regard themselves with some justification as still the world's leading power in mind space. In other words, the City of London gets other nations to do its donkey work and its dirty work for it, and it does this above all by pulling off the trick of making its own population, Britain and the Commonwealth, and the elites of other nations assume its perspective and its narrative 
rather than their own perspectives and narratives. This is the concentration that I had in my British elite education, and this is the concentration that the British intelligence agencies have had through both World Wars and the Cold War. It is not a formal strategy that is taught in boarding schools or universities or officer training or intelligence agencies, but it is very much the credo of the leading so-called bloodlines of elite families that run the City of London. And it is the modus operandi of the Anglo-American tax-exempt foundations and of the think tanks, such as Chatham House above all, which push the agendas of those bloodlines upon the Western governments. Uh, a key figure from the year 1870 is that uh, of John Ruskin, uh, seemingly an innocuous figure because he was the first professor of art at Oxford, uh, but he brought the doctrine that the uh, British elite really had a duty to export its own worldview to the rest of the world in very broad brush terms. And his key student whom he inspired was Cecil Rhodes, who of course became fabulously wealthy in southern Africa. Cecil Rhodes, and this is all documented by very many historians, uh, wrote secret diaries and formed secret societies. In 1891, after 16 years planning, his main secret society was formed. The Rhodes Scholarships are part of that society. Um, Oxford members of the Rhodes Network were the likes of Lord Toynbee and Lord Milner, well-known geostrategists. In Cambridge, there was the future Foreign Secretary Lord Grey and Lord Isher. In London, there was the leading journalist of the time, W.T. Stead. And initiates and members of the executive committee of Cecil Rhodes were the above-named men, plus Lord Rothschild. After Rhodes' death in 1902, other leading English bloodlines that repeatedly played a City of London history, such as the Astors, came into the same circle. The outer circle, uh, to achieve the will of Cecil Rhodes, this uh, seemingly benign vision of Britain forcing the world to accept its liberal democracy and accept its way of, of viewing the world, the outer circle became known as the Round Table Groups, still functioning in the United States and seven other countries set up from 1909 onwards. Uh, this group regarded the uh, success of the Canadian Federation 1867 as its leading case study. You'll be hearing more about that from Matt Ayrett later. Canada was effectively politically unified and later the other white colonists, white dominions, in order to prevent there being a spread of different views and different uh, English-speaking democracies in the world. They must instead all be traced back to the city of London's control. And this is very contemporary, too, because uh, among the many Rhodes scholars uh, uh, that dominate world politics and push the world towards globalism are the aforementioned Bill Clinton and, from the World Economic Forum, uh, the New Zealand lady, uh, Professor Nairi Woods, who this year became very well known for her saying at the WEF that the elite can do beautiful things if they come together and if the people of the world simply accept that they are in the lead. Rhodes wrote in one of his secret diaries, quote, why should we not form a secret society with but one object, meaning with only one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery, that means recovery for Britain, of the United States and for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. He also wrote, let us form the same kind of society, a church for the extension of the British Empire. This is mind space, my comment. Rhodes continues, <clears throat> a society which should have its members in every part of the British Empire working with one object and one idea. We should have its members placed at our universities and our schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands. 
Just one perhaps in every thousand would have the mind and feelings for such an object. This is what Rhodes scholarships are for. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disregardful of the petty details of life, and if found to be such, in other words, a psychological test, then he should be elected and bound by oath that is sworn to secrecy to serve for the rest of his life in his country. He should then be supported, if without means, by the society and sent to that part of the empire where it is felt he was needed. And in this vision, of course, the United States is part of the empire. In another of his wills, Rhodes described his intent in more detail, quote, to and for the establishment, promotion and development of a secret society, the true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world. The colonization by British subjects of all lands where the means of livelihood are attainable by energy, labor and enterprise, and especially the occupation by British settlers of the entire continent of Africa, the Holy Land, the Valley of the Euphrates, modern Iraq, the islands of Cyprus and Candia, that is Crete, the whole of South America, the islands of the Pacific not heretofore possessed by Great Britain, the whole of the Malay archipelago, those aboard of China and Japan, meaning offshore of China and Japan, and the ultimate recovery of the United States of America as an integral part of the British Empire. This vision did not remain the ravings of a particularly wealthy Englishman, uh, but they nativized themselves in the United States, in the so-called Eastern Establishment, the Eastern Seaboard, as the United States became the world's dominant power. The key testimony on this is that of Norman Dodd, the ODD, given shortly before his death in 1982 to G. Edward Griffin, easily found online uh, as Norman Dodd on the tax-exempt foundations. Dodd was the key staffer for uh, Reese, the congressman from East Tennessee, R-E-E-C-E, um, who in the 1950s carried out on behalf of Congress an investigation into the effect of these tax-exempt foundations in the United States, which implemented the City of London's and Cecil Rhodes' vision for wealth domination. Uh, now, I'm going to uh, read what Dodd said. Uh, in this interview, he speaks about having hired a sceptical, level-headed practicing attorney in Washington, uh, this is in the 1950s, and sent her up to the library of the Carnegie Foundation, one of the key tax-exempt foundations, uh, where she was given access uh, with a dictaphone belt technology of the time to record efficiently what she was reading uh, to, uh, to scan the library and see what was being said in the years 1906 that I was mentioning earlier and 1908. And this initially sceptical woman, quote, unsympathetic to the aims of the Reese Committee, found this to her lifelong horror. <clears throat> she dictated into her belt, according to Dodd, we are now at the year 1908, which was the year that the Carnegie Foundation began operations. And in that year, she reads as she is in the Carnegie Foundation's library, the trustees meeting for the first time raised a specific question which they discussed throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming that you wish to alter the life of an entire people? And they conclude that no, no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then, continues the lawyer with her dictaphone belt on, in 1909, the Carnegie Foundation raised the second question and discussed it, namely, how do we involve the United States in a war? 
I could go on, but I don't have the time on that strand. But I think that is enough in itself to establish the key insight in people's minds that it is not enough to be by far the world's greatest military and economic power, as the United States has been arguably since before the First World War, certainly after it. If your mind space is still controlled by this uh, argument that the Anglo-Saxon liberal democratic model is the only game in town, if it's still controlled by the unexamined assumption that everyone at the top of that model is paid up to uh, liberty, uh, then you are still going to find that a club with self-interest is going to run the world. And even in areas such as healthcare, which Britain, uh, first of the first country in the world, socialised in 1948, you're going to find that people uh, wrongly and blithely assume that their best interests are, uh, are kept at heart. Uh, in perhaps two minutes, I will make the other point that I wish to make, uh, which is regarding the City of London and its offshoot in Manhattan, in Wall Street, uh, funding both sides of both world wars. Now, this is not, again, an original claim to me. Uh, serious academics such as Anthony Sutton, who was at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in California, have written whole books about this, entitled Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Uh, this is well known to those who bother to find out about these things. Um, the, um, there was a whole trail of documents which was uh, recovered by Anthony Sutton. It cost him his tenure at Stanford. Uh, he put this all uh, in his books. Uh, and what he found was that, uh, in a nutshell, both the Soviet Union and the uh, Third Reich were brought into being for the interests of the City of London and more particularly its Wall Street End. So if you could bring up briefly the first slide, which I uh, asked you to uh, put on screen, you will see just one outworking of that, which is that IBM had a uh, monopoly subsidiary in Germany called the, uh, the Hollerit uh, company. Hollerit was the name of the German owner. Uh, can you confirm whether that is on screen at the moment? Yeah, or wait a moment. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yes. So you can see here, uh, that uh, Hollerich, the nominal German owner of this IBM subsidiary, is offering the Third Reich oversight or oversight using punch cards, uh, an American te- technology uh, licensed to the Third Reich. Uh, at the bottom, you can read Übersicht mit Hollerich Lochkarten, total uh, information awareness using Hollerich punch cards. And the company name at the bottom is Deutsche Hollerich Maschinen- Maschinengesellschaft or uh, Dehormag. Uh, which was in Berlin, Lichterfelder. Um, the second slide which I have is just one example of the total reach of British intelligence in areas which it's not constitutionally able uh, or, or, or permitted to, to have, which is that you can see a Christmas tree symbol here indicating that uh, MI5, even before the Second World War, was vetting who got onto the uh, airwaves of the BBC, who got promoted and who got transferred. This was all done uh, checking with MI5 uh, in very brief, uh, brief terms. British intelligence, uh, okay, it nominally is there for the nation, but it was set up uh, by the uh, bloodlines of which I speak to further their private aims. That's certainly how they regard uh, the running of British intelligence. The third of my four slides shows how this breaks surface in 2010, where the British Cabinet Office is, uh, with a, together with a think tank, the Institute of Government, is openly speaking about its control of the world's thinking and the thinking of the British people. Uh, they are labelling parts of the brain under the label of mind space. 
And on the right-hand side, you have, uh, I can see that uh, you've put the key text from pages 66 and 67 of this 2010 document. It says, even if people agree with the behavior goal, this is about nudging to get people to behave uh, as was wished by bloodlines rather than uh, to uh, mandate their governments to act on their behalf. Even if people agree with the behavior goal, they may object to the means of accomplishing it. The different mind space effects will attract different levels of controversy. There are several factors that determine controversy. In other words, they are foreseeing that they will be told this is a reversal of the aims of government, <clears throat> including in healthcare, of course. Uh, they go on, as noted, mind space effects depend at least partly on the automatic system. This means that citizens may not fully realize that their behavior is being changed, or at least how it is being changed. Clearly, this opens government up to charges of manipulation. People tend to think that attempts to change their behavior will be effective if they are simply provided information in an above-board way. People have a strong dislike of being tricked. This dislike has a psychological grounding, but fundamentally it is an issue of trust in government. A lack of conscious control also has implications for consent and freedom of choice. First, it creates a greater need for citizens to approve the use of the behavior change, perhaps using new forms of democratic engagement. You see that in this model, democracy is the highest good that's sold, but the levers of manipulating democracy are in the hands of the cartel. Second, if the effect operates automatically, it may offer little opportunity for citizens to opt out or choose otherwise. The concept of choice architecture is less used here. Any action that may reduce the right to be wrong, the right to refuse treatment, for example, will be very controversial. Of course, some traditional attempts to change behavior are not explicit, and these have attracted controversy. But they rarely attract the charge of manipulation, because they are based on conscious actions to supply and register information, rather than relying on unconscious reactions. Uh, I think that establishes the point well enough in principle that uh, we are trained in the modern world, dominated by the City of London and its soft power institutions, to think uh, that we are in control of our destiny because liberal democracy is held up as the paragon on the correct argument often that all other systems are more tyrannical and less desirable. But the whole strength of the City of London's model is that it can even operate uh, at arm's length through other countries, such as the United States and Germany, as uh, demonstrated here, uh, to persuade people that what they wanted before is not really what they want now. And it's the, the filling of the mind space, uh, which is, the, I think, the most powerful weapon uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, on, that's, that's available there. Now, I can see that I've gone over the time allotted, so I will leave the rest of the details. I could never have hoped to be comprehensive here. But I trust that I have given people a small taster of the long track record of solid historical research that there has been by people well familiar with the British establishment uh, in establishing this, that the, that the British establishment haven't been fighting fair since about 1870, and that most of the revolutions it wished to bring about, uh, control of democracy through party whipping, uh, control of health care uh, through compulsory uh, states provided health care in the British and Canadian model, were all in place by the post-war period, which is the time at which I understand Matt Eret is going to pick up the testimony and take us into the post-1945 era. Thank you very much, Alex. This is a perfect overview of how we got into this. Um, if 
I may, uh, I would like to ask just a few questions. Uh, of course, my learned colleagues will do the same, but um, is it correct that uh, the city of London is the real powerhouse in, in the UK? It is unquestionably the powerhouse. This is something that if you've had my background, uh, you learn at boarding school, let alone at university. So rugby and Cambridge in my case. And by the time you get into the civil service, uh, there is a lot of eye rolling if you ever suggest that the people of Britain or any other country in the Commonwealth have self-determination. No, the City of London is understood to own the population, body, mind and soul. Ultimately, and this seems to have started uh, fairly early. Um, I don't know if it started. I forget if it, if it was in 1870 or in the early 1900s. But ultimately, it's the control of the people's mind that the city of London, to further their goal of world domination, that they really wanted. Is that correct? Yes, and it is not a specifically Anglo-Saxon problem anymore. Because there are countries on the European continent, <clears throat> which certainly since 1949, Germany is one of them, the Federal Republic, of course. Uh, Belgium is another, which, as I said in my testimony, uh, was set up by British uh, insistence in 1815. I translate uh, at quite a high level government communications from supposedly the uh, national health agencies of these countries to their citizens. I translate them into English for expatriates in those countries. And the Belgian and German, to name these two examples, governments are explicitly following the City of London view here. They write to the population in terms of health management, uh, telling them that the way that they exist is not good enough. Their bodies, their minds, their genetics, their intelligence have not been optimized. And therefore, this livestock, this population is not competing as it should in the world. So that is an extension of the City of London model to the European continent, where it's, it turns out in many ways to fit in just as well to codified civil law jurisdictions with high respect for the rule of law as it does in a common law jurisdiction. So ultimately what we're seeing is a very powerful, financially powerful and therefore powerful um, institution City of London, which bridges the Atlantic because as its fifth column, as some people claim, uh, they have Wall Street. Those two powers united used to be or still are the, most, the, the center of power in this world. Yes, I mean, you, can, you can take many twists and turns, especially in the mid-20th century period, but what you have said is a useful diagnostic summary of the whole of the, the 20th century. Uh, that there are struggles. For a long time, there was a completely non-trivial Cold War with uh, branches of the aristocracy in the city of London being both pro- and anti-Soviet Union. I could talk for hours just about that. But that is secondary to the determination that there must be only a German bloc and a Russian bloc in Eurasia and that both of these ultimately must be controlled and hemmed in by British or Anglo-American sea power and Anglo-American soft power, setting the paradigms for them. Another thing that I wanted to clarify is you mentioned that it is just a few families who really run the city of London. You mentioned the names of Rothschild and Rhodes and Astor. Uh, is it true that it's just a few families who are trying to dominate the world through the city of London? Yes, 
Um, I have never found better material than that of a writing duo, which is Dutch, German, American. The Dutchman is Robin de Ruyter, R-U-I-T-E-R. His American German co-author is Fritz Springmeier from South Carolina. They have the rather shocking book titled Bloodlines of the Illuminati, but their work is solid, and they consistently show that uh, the city of London, Manhattan, the European continent, are very much dominated by a small number of families. Often 13 is given as the top level of these families. Obviously, there are levels below that. The French, for example, often spoke about les 200 familles, the 200 bloodlines that run the deep state. Uh, but the senior ones terrorize the junior ones in this model. And uh, the, the, the highest you can get up before you disappear into uh, nebulous claims of Satan running the world, which ultimately I believe he does, but the highest level you can get up to is a level at which Central European Germanic bloodlines uh, have an uneasy truce with British Isles bloodlines, uh, most of whom are now based in the United States. Uh, that is the, 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 the largest model. And all the geopolitical frustrations of the 20th century ultimately are to do with one or other wing trying to gain ascendancy, should we uh, go with the city or overturn the city, and that have to do with the frustration of uh, emerging superpowers, notably the Russians, trying to play on level terms with, the, with that bloodline cartel and failing. Mm-hmm. And one of the major means through which these very few families are trying to dominate the rest of the world seems to be through mind space, which sounds a little bit like mind control. Does that mean through psychological operations? Very much so. Uh, no nation got into the game of psychological operations earlier than Britain. As soon as there were formal um, intelligence agencies in Britain in the Edwardian era, just before the First World War, it was a major concentration but uh, they borrowed a lot of their insights from Vienna and from Germany, uh, which were leading in the psychological space at the time. So this is a transnational interest uh, in, in both the Anglo and the Germanic uh, areas of world domination at the time to use the tricks of mind space. And these were largely perfected when America had unchallenged Germany after 1945 using, as in so many other areas, such as Operation Paperclip for technical areas, using a lot of the Third Reich and Soviet mines, actually, brought over to the United States surreptitiously. Uh, it's, it's been regarded as, since the days of Edward Bernays and Freud, as the most powerful way of controlling action in the real world, because if you cannot perceive of there being a valid way of doing things other than what you're told is the right way, then that's obviously the supreme power that you can have. If you have that power, you control people who are more numerous, more intelligent and stronger than yourself. Did I hear correctly that you use the term livestock? Is that really the view that these people have of the rest of the world? It is explicitly the view that certainly in the 1990s when I was at a senior British boarding school, this, this term was used uh, explicitly to describe by the grandsons of City of London seniors to describe the British population uh, who, who went who walked under their own windows on the way to um, uh, as we went to lessons they were going about their business in town. Uh, the, the terms that were used for them revolved around the idea that they were cattle and did not deserve a place in the world other than under the direction of the British elite. Thank you very much, Alex. I don't, um, I, I don't want to keep my learned colleagues from asking questions, so please uh, go ahead. 
Good day, Mr. Electronson. Thank you so much for your evidence. Can you hear me loud and clear? Perfectly well, thank you. Excellent. Mr. Thompson, I would like to know, and you have actually touched on uh, the African continent, and specifically you've mentioned Sizzle John Ross. I would like to know from you what role does the city of London play currently on the African continent? Can you please just uh, elaborate on that? The role that it plays is a very dark and complex one and is largely seen when coup d'etats and revolutions occur in former British colonies. Of course, there is a whole band of countries formerly coloured pink on the map, famously from Cairo all the way down to the Cape, where Britain nearly installed a railway and a single colony. And in in these countries, you see it most clearly. Um, Mrs. Thatcher's son was involved in a failed coup attempt in a non-Anglophone African country, Equatorial Guinea. This is just one example where the attempt was bungled and the city of London sponsors left Mark Thatcher to, 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 uh, um, to dry on his own, as it were, when this failed. Um, I think most particularly what we see in former Rhodesia, now the nations of Zambia and Zimbabwe, is that there's been a, a node where the city of London has retained financially corrupt and powerful people and the local SAS contingents from the era of white rule, uh, who have done a lot of the dirty work, even in, in London itself, in the post-war period. Uh, this has been done on the basis of having, uh, on paper, ownership of uh, rich mineral assets in southern Africa. That's the most general way in which I could talk about it. Um, there, there are even suspicious deaths as late as the 1979 Lancaster House Accords, paving the way for ZANU-PF to take over from the Smith government in uh, Rhodesia as it became Zimbabwe, uh, with um, lawyers falling supposedly to their deaths out of windows. Uh, it's, it's, it's an extremely dark picture, and the more you look at some of the companies involved, Kroll Security is one that comes to mind, the more you see that there is a nexus between MI6, SAS, and the City of London, and this it regards Southern Africa in particular as its prime asset. Thank you very much. So will you then agree with me, uh, Ms. Thompson, that when it comes to financial dominance, when we look at COVID-19, that is at the core. So you will agree that financial dominance is at the core of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, I would. And I would qualify it very slightly by reminding you that uh, in Carol Quigley's summary of the Anglo-American elite establishment's worldview, he points out that the ownership of financial assets is already outdated by the 1960s. And he knows that the, the great brains, not necessarily the good brains, a century prior to him already saw this coming. They were regarding the real wealth as human minds and human health and the ability to uh, alter and to copyright in time uh, the human uh, being into a new model that would behave as expected. Uh, That is the great wealth in the world. But with that caveat, if we call that wealth, and in extension we can call it financial, then yes, that is the greatest prize there is. The whole point about the City of London is if you are somewhat intellectually gifted and come up from a, uh, a privileged British background into Oxford and Cambridge, you really only have the choice between money-making in the City of London or some branch of its national service, such as intelligence or officership. And the difference, time and again, I saw between myself and those who went the other way in my cohort was principle.
that neither group d- doubted that the real power in the world was ownership of capital. It's just a question of whether you wish to serve that by being an intelligence officer who reports to the City of London ultimately, or whether you wish to be part of the action making the money. There's no higher ideal than that in the Anglo-American model. Okay. Thank you very much. No further questions for me. Thank you. Any questions from Anna or uh, Virginie or Deepali? Okay. No, I think this was quite excellent. The only question I would ask is, how do you turn this? Uh, you, you mentioned various things like copywriting the human mind, copywriting the maybe the genetics even. Uh, do you feel that there is a link between the current vaccines? so-called vaccines, the shots from Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Janssen, AstraZeneca, do you think there is a relationship between those and this goal of copywriting the humans? Uh, I very strongly believe that. I'm not medically or biotechnologically qualified to explain how much truth there may be in this, but I've seen time and again that where there is hype and where there is a a pseudo-theological belief among the elite in Britain and America that you can achieve a certain aim by pulling a certain trick, such as by editing a gene and stamping uh, a copyright on the human body, as it were, that is enough motivation in and of itself to fuel uh, a serious attempt to go that way. And I know that when Debbie Evans takes part of Brian Gerrish's testimony slot later this evening, she will be talking about that. So I think that the very heart of it is the idea that genetic editing will allow de facto sneaky copywriting of the, 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 the number of souls and bodies in humanity that are affected so that they're no longer under the creator. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, then that concludes Alec Thompson's testimony. Um, now we will listen to Matthew Eretz's testimony. Thank you. I have to say that that presentation was was more than I expected, though, and I think it sets the tone very well for uh, the torch that I'm, I'm being handed right now. Um, I would just make, maybe push back on one single point, which is that no matter what the oligarchy might wish legally or formally be uh, the claim of who owns the soul or the, the, the body and, and freedom of people, it has no bearing in reality. There is a natural law. Uh, that is higher than the law that they wish to impose onto the universe. And that's part of the problem with ivory tower thinkers, right? They always want the universe to conform to their mathematical models. And they kind of go into uh, conniption fits of rage when uh, they discover that the universe is much more creative and nonlinear than they want it to be. So it's this sort of God complex, which is ultimately the downfall, I think, of empires historically. Every time you see the oligarchies sort of self-catabolize and melt down under its own self-contradictions, it's a natural thing that should happen the way it does. Uh, the question is, are we willing to tolerate that level of folly and immorality uh, to the point that we go down with it, right? And that's always the, the challenge for every generation, and this isn't a new thing. And obviously, we are at the end of the system. Um, I'm going to do something uh, a little bit uh, different. Um, I will deal – well, originally I was going to talk a lot more about eugenics. Now, I understand that in, in February 26th we're going to focus a lot more on eugenics, so I won't do that. I will uh, carry on uh, the theme that Alex raised, but I will do this by first dealing with about eight minutes of the present situation – uh, just to get across what is the British hand in global affairs today in a little bit more detail using a, a little one-minute video from uh, Justin Trudeau here in Canada where uh, we have this shadow of a shadow who's been a, 
you know, imposed onto the people to carry out a policy that really doesn't come from him. And I think everybody recognizes that there's nothing really there. He's kind of like a young version of Biden. Um, his whole life has sort of been handled. Um, but the question being, well, obviously, if this guy's too uh, too much of a Ken doll without a brain or a soul to actually carry out or make decisions, then what is the power behind the so-called throne? Um, so I'm going to start with a video. Then I'm going to go back after uh, dealing with the presence a little bit more into uh, the 18th, uh, the 19th century, a little bit uh, with a Canadian focus, just because this is something on people's perspective right now, being <clears throat> being what what is happening is currently happening in, in Ottawa. And then we're going to carry up uh, to the battles in the post World War II age, just to see how this thing transmogrified. Um, and recalibrated after World War II. So we'll just do this in a summary way. I'll try not to oversimplify too much, but obviously this is a complex issue, and I I will try to do justice and rigor to what needs to be understood. So the first thing is the video that I promised, um, which I'm going to play here. It's about a minute and a half. Um, oh, share sound. Share sound. All right, I hope people can hear this. This is not the video. I'm so sorry. Let's try that again. Okay, can people see the, ca- the Canadian press? See you. All right. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors. So help me God. I... Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely swear that I shall be a true and faithful servant to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council for Canada. I will in all things to be treated, debated, and resolved in Privy Council faithfully, honestly, and truly declare my mind and my opinion. I shall keep secret all matters committed and revealed to me in this capacity or that shall be secretly treated of in council. Generally, in all things, I shall do as a faithful and true servant ought to do for Her Majesty, so help me God. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will truly and faithfully and to the best of my skill and knowledge execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Prime Minister. So help me God. Okay. Uh, No one can hear anything anymore, right? Video is over, but we can hear you. Great. Okay. Yeah. So that is a little bit of a confusing thing for some people who saw this in 2017. Um, Not your typical thing you would expect a a so-called Democratic head of state to be doing um, when he's declaring his oath of office after an election. But then again, Trudeau is not really the head of state. As we've come to see, he's both a member of the Privy Council office, which you have to be if you're going to be in a cabinet position in government or in the opposition. Um, And... uh, the actual head of state is the governor general, that older gentleman standing next to him, who is the appointee uh, carrying out the emanation of the powers and authority of the, the crown to give royal assent um, to any law that becomes law in Canada. You have lieutenant governors, a position in every single province. You have a privy council office. You have this whole weird Byzantine structure above the apparent um, 
public aspect of our so-called democracy in this monarchy of the North, uh, which is, again, very confusing for a lot of people. Um, we're going to go into a little bit more of what this is. What is this anomalous thing and what is it a part of internationally? How did it come into being? Um, so here I've prepared a series of slides, uh, just to get across. The Canada is, is, after all, a part of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth. This is something that was set up in the late 1830, uh, 1930s in preparation for, um, well, essentially the, the transformation of the British Empire's outward image. Today, there's about 40, 54 countries in the British Commonwealth, with the center being the United Kingdom. The head of it is the uh, the Queen of England. Um, you have uh, this thing occupying about 12.2 million square miles of territory. 2.4 billion people are represented within territories here, uh, 21% of the world's land area. And, you know, people celebrate this thing as if it's somehow a democratic institution. And it's a bit weird. Like, what is what is this thing that also, if you look at a lot of these territories, a lot of it is, is the Caribbean, uh, the uh, the Latin American uh, areas aren't so touched. But a lot of the Caribbean is um, a lot of Africa. There's 19 African nations in sub-Saharan African uh, Africa. There are um, eight Asian nations, India being the biggest, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, obviously the five eyes minus the United States. But let's just compare this to the the old British Empire. This is a, a screenshot from uh, an 18, a 1920 map. It looks pretty similar, doesn't it? So people say, oh, the British Empire just it disappeared after World War II. It, it let its territories go free, and now the empire is the big bad American empire. That's the mythology that's been passed down to us, and it is a mythology. As Alex went through very concisely, the real power the, the, that controls the fifth column inside of the United States, which has always been there since 1776, um, has always been centered in London. Uh, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more, um, but it never disappeared. No, no empire of this sort ever just willfully gives liberty. Liberty is something you fight for. Um, just quickly, the issue of... Uh, Current mining interests today, I mean, this is not something that just occurred in the 1880s, 1890s with the, the land grab for Africa and Cecil Rhodes' creation of De Beers and, and Lonerhoe and other, other mining interests. This is something, this is a 2016 report. It's a, it's a fantastic report by a nonprofit that conducted audits on the, uh, the British, uh, interests, those interests that are controlling mining in Africa. Um, with headquarters in either the UK or within Commonwealth territories uh, measured on the London Stock Exchange. And just a small quote here, it's a new colonialism, Britain's scramble for African energy and mining resources. It says 101 companies list, listed on the London Stock Exchange, most of them British, have mining operations in 37 sub-Saharan African countries. They collectively control over $1 trillion worth of Africa's most valuable resources. The UK government has used its power and influence to ensure that mining companies, British mining companies, have access to Africa's raw materials. This was the cause of uh, the case during the colonial period, and it is still the case today. This report is available for free online as a PDF. I'm not going to go into details. Um, it is upwards of 70% of the mining interests, which also include uh, refining materials uh, by companies that are in British-controlled uh, territories. Um how, what is the infrastructure carrying this out? There's something that a lot of people don't even know about. This is an organization affiliated with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as the World Bank, uh, called Crown Agents. It was set up in 1833 as a, on its official, 
of, you know, self-description as an emanation of the crown. It's not part of the government, but its authority comes from the fount of all honors, the crown itself. That's the way the sort of Byzantine structure is is emanated, the shadow government. There's a sort of hierarchy of authority. It doesn't come from the consent of the governed. It's it comes from the singular, singular sovereign, the crown, whoever that may be, um, as a hereditary institution. So this was set up in 1833 as a branch of the British colonial office to manage the infrastructure, hard and soft, a lot soft, of the colonies internationally of the empire. It did a few name changes over the years. And in 1996, it uh, went through another name change called the Crown Agents for Overseas Government Administration, where it also has been managing the uh, the health infrastructure, including COVID protocols of Eastern Europe, especially Ukraine. Um, it ha- manages many African countries, uh, South Sudan, Myanmar, and it deals with governance. It helps these countries adapt their uh, their governing mechanisms according to World Bank and IMF standards. It's been there and doing this for a very long time, and it's a very strange thing. And again, they call themselves crown agents. It's not me slandering them or calling them. And this has been around, as I said, for a very, very long time. So that's one aspect of this thing in terms of the maintenance of the shadow empire. Now, one thing about the, about this uh, Commonwealth City of London managed system is that the Cayman Islands and offshore banking is the center of this. There was a wonderful documentary that people can watch called The Spider's Web on Britain's Invisible Empire uh, that is available on YouTube even. Um, it goes through this in a, in a nice way, um, but it just gets across that internationally um, you have 24% of the financial services moving through a lot of, uh, of British controlled Cayman Islands, um, Caribbean and other um, offshore uh, tax havens. But also within these is the center of global drug money laundering and terrorist financing. People think, oh, drugs, it's just a natural plague of our society terrorism. It's just a natural thing that just happens. And it's like, no, no, this is very artificial. This is not the way human society just na- comes up with these plagues of sociology. These were created diseases that are geopolitical in nature, not even religious in nature, um, that are cultivated from the top. This is a 2012 uh, Senate report uh, conducted over many, uh, a long period by the recently deceased Senator Carl Levin, um, on U.S. vulnerabilities to money laundering, drugs, and terrorist financing, the HSBC case, whereby in the course of this, it was discovered that HSBC was the primary number one offshore account um, money laundering bank in the world. As Alex pointed out, they were set up in 1865 in order to enforce the uh, or manage the opium trade to destroy China. That never stopped. Um, they were found guilty. They were slapped on the wrist with a, uh, a certain fine of $1.9 billion. They were allowed to appoint their own auditor to sit there for five years. And as far as I can see, they're still doing what they do. They have a huge stake in Air Canada as well. Uh, anybody who takes a plane to Canada will see HSBC signs everywhere. Uh, that is a huge piece of infrastructure as part of the Silver Triangle um, that's been underway for the whole of the 20th century. Um, other than you have, you have there a picture of the Queen with Bankruz. That's, that's the Queen's personal bank, which was also 2012 found guilty for drug money laundering. It paid its own little, I think, maybe $10 million fine. And the uh, <clears throat> the bad publicity resulted in the Bankruz's offshore accounts that were conducting the uh, the laundering to be sold off to the Royal Bank of Canada, um, which currently conducts the same operations. So that's that's that. Africa as well has $177 billion of debt holding it hostage. Meanwhile, about $944 billion 
of revenue from the extraction of wealth sits in British offshore accounts. So it is not a debtor, but a creditor nation en masse. Um, this is, uh, this is a whole story into itself. The city of London, as Alex pointed out, it's a separate entity. Even the UK government can't really do much legally to stop it. They have their own courts, their own police. Uh, it's a weird structure. Um, so, okay. I just want to throw that out. And I've even talked about Iraq, the Iraq war, Daji dossiers being justified and created by British intelligence that justified the bombing of Iraq, uh, Libya as well. That was more MI6 intelligence. Uh, I didn't talk about that. I didn't talk about the Syrian uh, dodgy dossiers of chemical weapons that were never actually proven to be used by Assad, but that had been justified for sanctions and justifying the regime change that has been attempted now for seven years. I didn't talk about that. Um, but all that to say, it's everywhere. The British hand, everywhere you scratch a little bit, even in, in the course of the dodgy dossiers to try to put uh, Putin as the, uh, the big bad guy controlling uh, Trump, those dodgy dossiers were brought to us by people like Sir Richard Yearlove. The guy who brought us the original Iraq War yellow cake dodge dossier that was always a fraud and the Chilcot Commission report proved that to be the case. Um, so, and also the question of Rhodes Scholars, people like Strobe Talbot, uh, who was a Rhodes Scholar, came in with Clinton and, uh, and has been there running Brookings for a very long time. This is all also, be, he's been behind Russiagate with many other Rhodes Scholars currently managing the Biden administration like Jake Sullivan, Sullivan Susan Rice, um, Eric Lander, the science czar. Rogue scholars. So, I mean, they're just everywhere, and I won't go into that. Um, so, okay, some historical context. I'm Canadian. So, uh, the question of Justin Trudeau, I hope that that's still an imprint in people's uh, mind is, what the hell is that? So, the Privy Council Office, unlike the United States Constitution or Declaration, the Canada was founded in 1867. The original conference with our founding fathers was not something that was a part of a fight for freedom, unlike the U.S. This was something where these were all British loyalists, Anti-Republican, uh, they were all like our, our founding father uh, who's standing up there in the painting, Johnny McDonald, was an Aryan, complete race patriot, wanting an Aryan Canada, and who said, a Britisher I was born and a Britisher I will die. He was a, a filthy, filthy immoral scumbag. Um, and these are the people celebrated as our sacred cows that we're supposed to honor in Canada. Now, unlike the U.S., which enshrines the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence as well as the idea of the principle of the general welfare, both now and into posterity in the Constitution, the Canadian founding document um, says literally, whereas the provinces of Canada, at the time there were four of them, uh, have expressed their desire to be federally united in one dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom and of Great Britain and Ireland, with the Constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, which is itself a bit of a fraud since the UK doesn't really have a constitution, um, so it's sort of a, a, a mirroring of a shadow. Um, and whereas such a union would conduce to the welfare of the provinces and promote the interests of the British Empire. So that's our, our so-called preamble, is to promote the interests of the British Empire. That's why we were created. We were also created, this conference that, that drafted that was, it occurred three years earlier, in 1864, while the Civil War was just winding down, it was still being fought. The British had put a lot of resources into breaking up the Union, as I've gone through in previous presentations. Uh, a lot of this is in my books as well, in The Clash of the Two Americas and the Untold History of Canada. Um, the point that the British were afraid of, as, as I demonstrate, was that Canada had pro-Lincoln statesmen in positions of leadership who were fighting to create an independent country at that time. Um, they were also... Uh, 
people who are working to create an American Zolverein with the Canada and the United States together in one customs union based upon industrial development with the type of policy, not like America today, but it was a different policy of the, the Lincoln-McKinley orientation of, of a real long-term thinking where human beings were seen as uh, a good a creature that money had to serve by virtue of investing into large-scale infrastructure, science and technology, but also working abroad with Germany, doing the same thing under Audubon Bismarck with Russia, uh, that had just sold the Alaska territory to the United States with the intent of, of building rail through the continent into Eurasia. So this was seen as being a, a vital territory that had to be kept under the control of the British Foreign Office. And so this constitution was drafted. Lincoln's allies were ousted from power. And uh, it was kept as a wedge between the danger of a U.S.-Russia collaboration. Um, except one Lincoln admirer did become prime minister at a certain point, Wilfrid Laurier. And he did, by 1911, organize to create a customs union. Finally, all the bills had been passed and it was about to go into law. Finally. And unfortunately, he was ousted in a, uh, a coup d'etat that was orchestrated by the Round Table and some Orangemen Freemasons that have the queen, the crown, the, the head of the these different Freemasonic outfits. Uh, a paper was written that I've, I've published on the, the Canadian Patriot site going through those details. But just two years later, Wilfrid Laurier writes to his close ally, O.D. Skelton, that Canada is now governed by a junta sitting in London known as the Round Table, with ramifications in Toronto and Winnipeg and Victoria with Tories, that's conservatives, and Brits, that's liberals, receiving their ideas from London and insidiously forcing them on their respective parties. So um, that was an admission directly from the man himself who truck, he had a vision for turning Canada into a Lincoln-modeled nation um, with a population of 60 million within a generation based upon large-scale electrification and industrialization. That was all ousted, uh, ended. And again, the roundtable took control. Robert Borden, who was the, uh, his replacement was a round tabler who, who ended up controlling the Chatham House of Canada at its inception as its first president. Um, <clears throat> by 1918, the round table had already initiated a takeover of the British government. They had ousted Herbert Asquith in uh, the Labour gov- uh, government in 1916. Not that he was such a great guy, but they really wanted to have their full controls on the terms of the Versailles Treaty and the end of World War I. One of the problems they needed the United States. They really needed the power of the United States behind them, and that's been always the objective of the Cecil Rhodes design. Lord Lockean, who was a leading roundtabler at the time he was the ambassador to the United States, had written, his other name was Philip Kerr. They always have names that sound kind of like uh, Star Wars villains. Um, he wrote, the problem of the American psyche that had to be dealt with is that there is a fundamental different, fundamentally different concept in regards to the question between Great Britain and the United States as to the necessity of civilized control over backward, politically backward peoples. The inhabitants of Africa and parts of Asia have proved unable to govern themselves. Yet America not only has no conception of this aspect of a problem, but has been led to believe that the assumptions of this kind of responsibility is iniquitous, iniquitous, I can't say that word, iniquitous imperialism. <laughs> Um, so it's a problem, right? The Americans have this damn, they don't get that there's a white man's burden that they have to impose, you know, because they're just scientifically better than the darker skinned people. They have to morally and scientifically impose an Anglo-American control over the backward peoples and they don't get it. And that was a problem. Not there were Americans that did get it. And that was again, part of the American deep state problem that I had mentioned that Alex went through a bit. Um, but what had happened? 
So there were several attempts at new world orders. Okay, what we're seeing today is not a new thing. I alluded to this in previous presentations, but in 1919, you had the creation of Chatham House, you had the creation of the Versailles Treaty, the League of Nations, all orchestrated by, by Lord Milner, who at this time was a leading figure controlling British foreign policy along with many other roundtablers. Um, the idea of the League of Nations was to create a, a, a collective security pact, Article 10, get rid of national sovereignty over, over economics and military affairs, and create effectively a one-world government. Part of this was also part of the, the Imperial Federation, uh, kind of like what the European Union is, is what they wanted for the, all of their, you know, basically the world. That failed. Why did it fail? Because people, both in Canada, the Lorry Liberals were, had made a comeback through the 1920s, and they resisted it. Irish free state movements resisted it. People like Warren Harding, who was assassinated, I say assassinated, I've never seen evidence to the contrary, the American president, uh, from eating poisoned oysters, uh, died. But point being is you had nationalists that did, that resisted and didn't succumb to this pressure at the time. So it petered out, and they tried again. 1933, there was the International Bankers Conference in London centered around the Bank of International Settlements, the Bank of England, and 66 nations had been a part of it, all with the design that the Great Depression would be solved by moving sovereignty economically from nation states into officially a central bankers coterie under the Bank of England. And the only reason after six months that failed is that Franklin Roosevelt pulled the U.S. delegations out of all participation, and the thing just fell apart. Um, I wrote about that in Chapter 7 of my uh, Clash of the Two Americas in detail. Then there was another attempt in 1944. Again, Roosevelt had not yet died. John Maynard Keynes was assigned this time to represent the British Empire at the Bretton Woods Conference with the idea of a one-world currency run by the Bank of England called the Bancor, an international exchange rate that would be, again, uh, effectively a one-world currency, um, with the idea of the Americans who had come out of World War II as the only unbroken country to be the battering ram or the enforcers of an Anglo-American reconquering of the nations of the world, many of whom had fought during the war and many had ideas of independence and freedom alive in their hearts. That was not acceptable. At there, uh, I just have a little quote by Franklin Roosevelt, which I really like, where he, uh, he made the point that they who seek to establish systems of government based on the regimentation of all human beings by a handful of individual rulers call this a new order. It is not new, and it is not order. Um, that was a sharp quote. So to pick up here a little bit now where Alex has left off, um, there's a book called uh, As He Saw It, written in 1946 by Roosevelt's son and his assistant, his personal assistant, um, Elliot Roosevelt. And he documents a lot of the battles between Roosevelt versus the the Churchill gang uh, that were trying to always pull the U.S. into a brotherhood of control a la Cecil Rhodes, right, a la uh, five Eyes, which is already what was creeping up and happening from the Black Chamber being transformed into the NSA uh, in 1930, um, which became integrated more and more into their British Five Eyes thing, which was, again, always the Cecil Rhodes will orientation. Um, but in this book, it's a great book. Uh, people can find this online. They can buy it. They should buy it. It's on archive.org. I use it extensively. Um, but he talks in 1944 after a battle with Churchill, I think at the Tehran conference, I'm not too sure which conference, but he speaks to Elliot um, saying, you know, any number of times the men in the State Department have tried to conceal messages to me, delay them, hold them up somehow, just because some of those career diplomats over there are not in accord with what they know, I think. They should be working for Winston. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the time they are working for Churchill. Some of, uh, stop to think of them, any number of them, are convinced 
that the way for America to conduct its foreign policy is to find out what the British are doing and then to copy that. I was told six years ago to clean out the State Department. It's like the British Foreign Office. So the OSS had not been cleaned out, and the OSS had a lot of problems, but there were still a lot of patriots and nationalists embedded in American intelligence within the OSS that were problematic for those trying to take control, who had pretty much occupied most of the State Department by this time. Um, within Elliot's book, there's there's another wonderful battle between him and Churchill that was documented um, over what would be the post-war uh, era, what, what type of operating principles would, would govern it. Um, where FDR's vision for the greening of African deserts, the extension of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the rural electrification projects that pulled people out of poverty and backwardness inside the USA, that would be extended uh, through long, large-scale loans internationally to help other countries have their own industrial programs, their own Tennessee Valley authorities, and really to extend the principle of the four freedoms to the world that were not just about supposed to be just you know nice flaky words, but real active, like active. Which is why Bretton Woods, the, the Keynesian team lost out and, um, Harry Dexter White, who became the, the first director of the IMF, also dying under mysterious circumstances, uh, the American delegation under him had won out and, and made sure that even, um, China, India, Africa, South America, all the, many, Russia would, uh, all be participants in receiving Tennessee Valley Authority projects that were all approved by the U.S. delegation. They were all resisted by the, by the British delegation. And even at that time, when Roosevelt had a Russia-China-U.S. alliance as his bedrock, Russia was a subscriber for a billion dollars into the IMF originally, before the Iron Curtain uh, caused them to be forced out. All that to say, I I ramble. But in this uh, small extract I selected, he's describing now the evening, talking with Elliot after fighting with, with Churchill, saying, I'm talking about another war. He's warning about World War III. I'm talking about what will happen to our world if after this war we allow millions of people to slide back into this same semi-slavery. Don't think for a moment, Elliot, that Americans would be dying in the Pacific tonight if it hadn't been for the short-sighted greed of the French and the British and the Dutch. That's the colonialists. Shall we allow them to do it all, all over again? Your son will be about the right age, 15 or 20 years from now. One sentence, Elliot, then I'm going to kick you out of here. I'm tired. It's this sentence. When we've won the war... I will work with all my might and main to see to it that the United, United States is not wheedled into the position of accepting any plan that will further France's imperialist ambitions or that will aid or abet the British Empire in its imperial ambitions. So <clears throat> tragedy strikes, right? Um, Wallace, uh, I don't know. I, got, I, I mean, it's a long story, but Wallace is replaced by Harry Truman, who's a, a, a George Bush sort of prototype uh, banker's boy, Anglophile, and he's brought in now as the new vice president. So Wallace was the vice president who was completely online with FDR's vision. F- Roosevelt dies April 12th. No autopsy is ever done. Um, and immediately, within the preceding months, nuclear bombs are dropped on a defeated Japan by Truman. Um, September 20th, the OSS, the American Intelligence Agency, is disbanded and a purge, a massive purge begins of anybody who had, had an understanding of the Wall Street London uh, financiers behind fascism's rise and eugenics rise. There was a lot. There were reports on this. Um, these were all purged in the ensuing year. And at this point, the Iron Curtain speech is launched and people think, oh, yeah, that was the, the Americans who did the Iron Curtain, which turned Russia and China into their enemies. No. It was Winston Churchill who came to the United States, stayed at the White House for a sustained period, 
and uh, delivered his speech where he said, neither the short prevention of war nor the continuous rise of world organization will be gained without what I have called the fraternal association of the English-speaking peoples. This means a special relationship between the United, uh, British Commonwealth and Empire and the United States. Henry Wallace, uh, just before he gets fired, he's now Commerce Secretary fighting against this insanity uh, that was brainwashing the American people into these you know, paranoid uh, mobs uh, afraid of commie infiltration and conspiracy. I mean, yeah, the whole McCarthyism thing was a real atrocity run by the FBI as a dictatorship, which it was. The U.S. became a dictatorship under the FBI. Um, he says fascism, he warns, in the post-war inevitably will push steadily for Anglo-Saxon imperialism and eventually for war with Russia. Already American fascists are talking and writing about this conflict and using it as an excuse for their internal hatreds and tolerances towards certain races, creeds, and classes. Obviously here there's a, there's a, a, a complete racist backlash again sponsored by J. Edgar Hoover, another 33rd degree Freemason, uh, running the FBI for like seven American presidencies. Um, that, that's supporting the rise of racism, the, the dismantling of, of civil liberties for African Americans and others, but also coordinating with the, the CIA that is soon reconstituted to create um, a new management system much more in alignment with British foreign policy. Things like MK Ultra that was originally using uh, science crafted by Tavistock, the British uh, intelligence branch of psychological warfare. COINTELPRO infiltration that also mirrored Operation Gladio in, in uh, UK, uh, in Europe. These were all things deployed, justified by the, the terms and conditions of the age of mutual assured destruction. So it continues. Wallace is now fired after giving this speech. Uh, the Truman Doctrine is announced again. Who is the main uh Organizer of the Truman Doctrine, one of the key guys is George McGee, a Rhodes Scholar. Um, you have the Central CIA is created in September 18th now, completely so a new reconstituted cleansed intelligence agency. Harry Dexter White dies. IMF is hijacked. That was the guy who was on Roosevelt's team who is now, in at that point in 1948, he was fighting to get Wallace elected under the Progressive Party leadership in the 48 elections. Um, you'll find many great patriots of the United States uh, either died or had their careers annihilated who were part of this network. Um, <clears throat> and then you have this famous uh, July 50th NSC National Security Council 75 memorandum to, to save the British Empire. Um, I kid you not, this is literally a protocol issued to under the logic that if the British weakens its imperial economic interests, then the Soviets will take and fill that space. So the U.S. foreign policy interest has to be to preserve uh, British interests abroad. And this is where the IMF, the World Bank, increasingly became rewired to use ec economic colonialism wherever needed. Uh, to, to, you know, if you can't stop the political independence of a nation, at the very least, sabotage their economic independence. Um, one guy who's an interesting figure is Clement Attlee at this time, who's, uh, you know, post-World War II prime minister. And he makes a, a, a strong point that over and over again, we have seen that there is another power that, than that which is, has its seat at Westminster. The city of London, a convenient term for a collection of financial interests, is able to assert itself against the government of the country. Those who control money can pursue a policy at home and abroad, contrary to that which is being decided by the people. So again, you, you have even British, so it's not the British government, right? Um, the British people are also as much victimized by, as well as many figures within the British government are victimized by this power above uh, the official um, 
visible branches of government. Throughout the Cold War, again, if you can't understand the architecture of the Cold War, of mutually assured destruction, asymmetrical warfare, game theory doctrines, the application of systems analysis to manage the geopolitical uh, overthrows of governments, things like the Vietnam War, if you don't look at people like Dean Rusk, Rhodes Scholar, uh, Walt Whitman Rosso, uh, ran the NSA for three years, who was a Balliol Rhodes Scholar, S. Scott Reed, who was the architect of NATO, to, to break Russia out of any, any any influence in the Security Council over military affairs. NATO, that was Escott Reed, Rhodes Scholar. Uh, William Fulbright, Rhodes Scholar. I mean, there's so many that uh, overlap. You can't, so again, you can't really understand what is this thing that JFK was pushing back against and trying to fight against. What was what was the thing that, that Eisenhower was warning about in his military-industrial complex speech? Um, you can't understand that if you don't look at these ideologues who have been penetrated over decades. There's been 3,000 so far in the 20th century who've been processed through the halls of Oxford. Not that they're all bad. I think Chris Christopherson is an okay actor, and maybe his, his movie choices are not so great sometimes. But I don't think he's a bad guy, though he was a Rhodes Scholar. So you'll find that you, know, you can't be guilty by association, but you can't understand anything unless you understand this uh, very controlled centralized hive. That also coordinates with the, the American Roundtable Movement, which is the Council on Foreign Relations, the thing that uh, Hillary Clinton referred to as the mothership in a 2011 speech. That has always been, since 1921, the British Roundtable in America. And even people who you think of as being American geopolitical uh, grand designers, like Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Samuel P. Huntington, Clash of Civilizations, a Canadian, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who did his own martial law in 1970, um, and really reorganized the entire government as a technocratic uh, cybernetic system. Um, they were all processed under William Yandel Elliott in Harvard, who ran something that some have referred to as the Chatham House of Harvard. William Yandel Elliott was one of these guys who just liked having talented young sociopathic boys brought around him, and he just trained generations of these geopoliticians who were processed. Um, talent, you know, the, it's like a talent searching thing, as, as Rhodes describes. It's exactly what they carried out. And then brought back into positions of um, ideological authority to carry out a policy that they themselves were not the originators of per se, but they were put into positions to make it happen. Um, we did have pushback, and I just want to have some counter voice because it's not like they, they're godlike creatures, right? There was real human beings, real statesmen, um, especially throughout the 1960s. You have Enrico Mattei, the Italian industrialist. You have uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, the, the Secretary General of the UN, who had a grand program to end imperialism and promote industrial development in a variety of countries, especially in South, South Africa. Uh, Charles de Gaulle had avoided 30 assassination attempts. John F. Kennedy, obviously. Um, you have Patrice Lumumba. I, I, I've, I didn't put everybody on here who was either assassinated or overthrown in CIA MI6-directed coups. But all that to say, it was a major period of potential where the common theme was cooperation and breaking out of the mathematical ways of governance, right? Introduce new technologies, new discoveries that were not monopolized and do it through a way of looking for win-win cooperation, points of common interest. That's why JFK offered the Russians the ability to work with the United States on a joint space program together. So that would be something to break away, to liberate us from this mathematical, you know, balance of terror uh, way of governance. I'm ending up now. I think maybe three, four more minutes. So after the age of assassinations again in the 60s, very parallel to the thing that was happening after the 1890s to World War I, again, the age of total assassinations and color revolutionary coups, you have a, the stage is set now for a full economic recolonization of the United States. 
um, especially. The focus has always been take back control of the United States. Um, you have this with several things happen. And Kissinger is a key figure in much of this. Um, you have the creation in January 1971 of the Inter-Alpha Group created under the blueprint of Lord Jacob Rothschild, who had the, was running NM Rothschilds and Sons, but also has been a, a major banking and financier interest as a part of a mercenary dynasty since the 1700s. Um, so the Inter-Alpha Group of Banks um, was a coterie of there's a picture of it there of the member banks with key major banks set up in each of the focused European countries to advance a new doctrine of deregulation, uh, central take, centralizing power away from nation states, especially in Europe, and moving it into the private supranational uh, coterie of uh, corporate and financial interests above national authorities. Um, <clears throat> so you, I won't go into, I don't have time to go into detail there. That was 1971. That group was founded. It has since grown in number since its original founding six. Many of these banks were all tied to, uh, you know, financial activities supporting fascism's rise, whether Franco, Mussolini, or Hitler earlier on. Um, a lot of whitewash. Then you have same month, the World Economic Forum is founded by one of Kissinger's prodigies, um, who we all know and um, despise, Klaus Schwab. Um, also, one of the co-founders was Maurice Strong, a, a Canadian oligarch who was picked up by the Rockefellers and was a co-founder of the Canadian uh, Club of Rome. Um, major player with Prince Philip, who is the guy calling, who's called for being reincarnated as a deadly virus who ran the World Economic Forum. In my February 26th presentation, we're going to go into detail in, in that, you know, Um, so Maurice Strong, another figure, um, who was a co-founder and inspirer of Klaus Schwab. Then you have the big deal here, which is the August 15th, 1971 U.S. dollar is floated. Kissinger and Schultz running the Nixon administration, uh, orchestrate the removal of the dollar from the, the gold, the gold reserve, the, the gold exchange system or the, the, the fixed exchange rate system that was preventing speculation on currencies and commodities. So, you know, as long as you didn't have speculation, it was difficult to conduct the sorts of economic warfare against nations trying to develop their infrastructure and their industrial base, which has always been, even going back to the 19th century, a, a tool used by empire to keep nations destabilized is economic warfare. So the fixed exchange rate had to go. It, it guaranteed too much stability. You were able to think long-term. Five, 20-year projects could be conceptualized when you had relative stability of currencies. Um, and that was floated onto the, the floating markets. So all of a sudden, the markets became the determinant of the value of the dollar that became increasingly embedded again under Kissinger's lead, to the price of oil on the spot markets. So all of a sudden, this created a, a degree of very of, of uh, chaos. In So you could no longer really build or maintain or improve your infrastructure, your capital-intensive part of your economy that you need to always have as the basis of your economic value in the system. That became atrophied, and increasingly the age of deregulation, speculation was upon us. Uh, I mentioned here for good measure uh, the Trilateral Commission founded in 1973 under Brzezinski, Kissinger, and David Rockefeller. Um, again, the, the hand of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is, again, the roundtable movement, is always there, as well as the Bilderberger Group, which is always there. Many of these figures are overlapping with this other thing that I'm going to talk about on February 26th in more detail. So this is what takes over under Carter, the Trilateral Commission Nearly every member of Carter's cabinet is a member of the Trilateral, Trilateral Commission. People like Paul Volcker, who becomes the Fed chair, calls for a controlled disintegration of the U.S. economy in 1979, which is where the interest rates are raised to 20% or more for two years, destroying small and medium businesses and only leading 
these multi-behemoth multinational companies able to survive and thrive and gobble up under mergers and acquisitions. Um, Henry Kissinger delivers at this time a 1981 speech at Chatham House in the UK describing uh, the difference between Churchill and Roosevelt's views of the post-war age and describing, people can read this, it's an appendix in my volume two, uh, the full the full speech. Um, but he describes how he preferred the Churchill way of thinking about geopolitics over the Roosevelt idea, which he saw as obsolete and incompatible with reality. But in it, he also describes his time as Secretary of State under uh, Nixon, where he says the British were so matter-of-factly helpful that they became a participant in internal American deliberations to a degree probably never practiced between sovereign nations. In my White House incarnation then, I kept the British Foreign Office better informed and more closely engaged than I did the American State Department. It was symptomatic. Total admission. They don't even hide this as saying like, oh, he didn't really say that. No, they, they just admit it. They just, so they just assume that we're too dumb to put words and actions together. Um, Lord Jacob Rothschild in 1983 delivered a speech calling, saying that two broad types of giant, giant institutions, the worldwide financial services company and the international commercial bank with a global trading competence may converge to form the ultimate all-powerful, many-headed financial conglomerate. What he's referring to is the breakdown of the division of bank activities from commercial investment, trusts, insurance, all of these informally under Roosevelt originally been designed in separate compartments. So you couldn't speculate with people's savings. You couldn't legally do that. He was talking about taking that away so that you can create a new type of universal banking that does everything. What today we might call too big to fail. Um, this was done originally in, in Britain under Margaret Thatcher's big bang where the first wave of universal banking was created and London, again, sort of restored even more of its control than it had formerly enjoyed. Uh, you have a near total collapse of a speculative bubble that results in 25% collapse of the, 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 the stock exchange in New York. Um, as a response to avoiding the collapse, Alan Greenspan is brought in and immediately normalizes creative financial instruments, otherwise known as derivatives, that had formerly been illegal for the most part. Of that, that I mean, these were known as like junk bonds, securitized debts, and that were worthless, but that were still securitized and then gambled upon with insurance that became also securitized, so that people could. I'm, I'm, it's, it's complex, but it's insane. It's not a way that you make any value, and it became a, kind of like a cancerous tumor that grew up in the economy to the point that by 1992, when the Maastricht Treaty was was affected, creating the European Union as a new consolidation to get rid of nation states and get rid of the right of the nations to emit their own and control their own credit in Europe, um, there was about $2 trillion of derivatives. That same year, you have the Soviet Union dissolving. The end of history is being celebrated. George Bush says in 1990, uh, at the opening of the Kuwait War, that we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order where we are successful and we will be. We have a real chance at this new world order. Um so this is a point where Margaret Thatcher is bragging that she put the the steel in the, into the spine of Bush, who was wavering on the on the issue of Desert Storm. Um, but again, the idea was always it's the end of the nation state system. Now, finally, it's the end of the Cold War. It's a unipolar era of of what today might be called the uh, neoliberal world order. Um, Soviet Union is totally privatized, destroyed, targeted for destruction, overseen by Strobe Talbot, who is the point man on the ground, Road Scholar. Uh, working closely with the IMF, 
um, NAFTA is signed to again get rid of more powers of nation states in North America and move powers into the hands of private corporations above nations. World Trade Organization and then big time glass deal, the separation of U.S. banking commercial from speculation is broken down by Clinton, Rhodes Scholar, uh, last act in office. And then from that point forward, you have um, the ushering in of just the biggest cancer of derivatives going from two trillion in 1992 to 70 trillion in 1999. By that point, overlapping the U.S. global global GDP to the point that only 10 years later, you have the deregulation completely of over-the-counter derivatives because Glass-Steagall is now gone. Too big to fail has become bigger than God, or so they want us to believe. So we have to bail them out. It's like a gun to the head if they go bankrupt. And by 19, uh, 2007, when the, the next collapse hits, there's $708 trillion of derivatives weighing down the system, far outweighing the $15 trillion of the U.S. GDP. Stroke Talbot in 1992 made his manifesto saying um, all countries – are basically social arrangements, no matter how permanent or even sacred they may seem at any one time. In fact, they are all artificial and temporary. Perhaps national sovereignty was not such a great idea after all. But it has taken the events in our own wondrous and terrible century to clinch the case for world government. That's from his Birth of a Global Nation. Just uh, two last slides here, I'm done. Um, just to get clear... The, the, the takeover of financial services over the, and the collapse of the real economy, the real part that has value that sustains life, that has been the trend. You have the crossover of the, uh, uh, which, what you have there is the, uh, the real estate rental leasing finance speculation, uh, overlapping in 1987 with the physical manufacturing base. That's just one of many graphs, uh, put forward to, you know, and this is a real economy only works if you have the financial side always servicing and improving upon the real side, manufacturing, infrastructure, science. If, if the, the financial side is not servicing that, it's a fake, it's the bubble, and the bubble will pop. And that's why the bubble that was created today, which is popping, was a planned disintegration. It was always designed from 1971 to disintegrate. The question is, when would be the pinprick? The pinprick has happened. Point is, why is there an encirclement of China, of Russia, by the U.S. military, by the British? Why are there all these psyops? Why are these... There are so many um, different types of CIA-connected operations to destroy and destabilize Eurasia right now. And, I mean, I, I've talked about this in my last presentation, and there's, this is well-documented. What's going on? What are they afraid of? Um, I just, I'm going to end with this last quote by Putin. Uh, people might feel feelings of rage when they see Putin's face because they've been fed a lot of propaganda in the media. I don't care. But in a recent speech, Putin just said, only sovereign states can effectively respond to, to the challenges of the times and the demands of the citizens. Accordingly, any effective international order should take into account the interests and the capabilities of the state and proceed on that basis and not try to prove that they should not exist. Furthermore, it is impossible to impose anything on anyone, be it, in the, be it the principles underlying the sociopolitical structure or values that someone, for their own reasons, has called universal. After all, it is clear that when a real crisis strikes, there is only one universal value left, and that is human life, which each state decides for itself how to best protect based on its abilities, culture, and traditions. I went over my time. I'm really, really sorry I did that, but I really wanted to just drive home a few key lessons of world history, and uh, if there's any questions, if there's time for that, I'll, I'll happily answer them. Thank you, Matthew. Let me just... Um verify that I understand you correctly. The main point is that 
um, the British Empire has never ceased to exist. It is still there. Colonialism is still existing, except it's uh, it's existing under a different name. It has never stopped to um, try and pull the United States back in, um, but for some reason, it hasn't really been successful. Uh, is that is the outcome of, outcome of this? Is that what we're seeing with the um, with the uh, deep state idea is the deep state that part in the country that tries to uh, uh, reintroduce the United States into the Anglo-American system and uh, into well the city of London basically. I have no problem with what you just said. Um, yeah, I have no problem with that. Okay. Um, now it it has not, as far as I can tell from what you're telling us, it hasn't failed in Canada. Their attempt to keep Canada under control has been very successful. Uh, I mean, just from listening to how Justin Trudeau uh, uh, took his oath of office, he uh, swore allegiance to the British crown, to the, to the Queen of England. Um, doesn't, doesn't that bother the uh, Canadians? For those who know, it's a paradigm shifter. It's a, it's a big, but there's a big cognitive dissonance that's been put there by years and generations of conditioning. Um, of, I mean, here's the thing. I, I, in in one of the chapters, I go through the the creation of a synthetic nationalism in Canada, arranged by none other than Lord Milner himself, who ran the Rhodes Trust in 1909 and came to Canada with with Mackinder, who was at the time, I mean, he's the founder of, of geopolitics in its modern form. But at the time, he was the head of the, 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 the Fabian Society's London School of Economics. Now, he quit his job as the head of the, the London School based upon an offer made by Lord Milner, who was from the Round Table, right, which runs through Oxford. So you have the LSC and then the, and Oxford. So he quit his job to come to Canada with Milner to formulate a grand strategy to figure out how the hell do we keep Canada as a wedge between Russia and the U.S. and also with Germany, because at the time, Germany was still – uh, it is not, it wasn't, um, a fascist state at all. Like there was still a lot of anti-colonial, anti-fascist impulses in very high positions of power, um, around the Frederick List Society and, other, and others. So <clears throat> Milner actually, there's a quote where he says of the three greatest dangers to the British Empire, uh, the, the preferred thing is greater cohesion. So the, the first, the top three scenarios for the future regarding Canada is number one, be, greater cohesion and integration into the British Federation. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, you still have Wilfrid Laurier, Lincoln admirers, other things, right? So it's not going to happen. He said the greatest danger is greater cooperation with that United States of 1909. That's the greatest threat to the British Empire. Um, the, the, the middle ground is the growth of a Canadian nationalism. Um, and he says the, and he actually says the Canadians are so wonderfully ignorant to the longer forces of history. And they're even so, uh, they feel that they're superior to the, to the Americans in almost every way. It's bumptious and it's, it's fantastic. Those are his words. It's just fantastic how ignorant they are. And we should go with that angle and really craft a new, um, nationalism for them. And that is exactly what became the entire trend of the 20th century leading up to the creation of the artificial Canadian flag with a maple leaf that doesn't mean anything unlike other countries who have flags that mean something. It's literally just a maple leaf. Um, that's what it means. And uh, people like Vincent Massey, who was his uh, his prodigy, became our first Canadian governor general who ran and managed much of this. Uh, these were all eugenicists. 
Um, they created the Canadian Fabian Society as well, which is a whole story run by five Rhodes Scholars in 1931. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, Canada has been, there's a lot of, of uh, cognitive dissonance and um, myths that have been created that are sacred cows that are, our minds are afraid to walk to. But now that we actually see the system demonstrating its true tyrannical hand, which it always has had, right? It, we just didn't push on it, so we didn't get to feel it. But now as soon as you demand something human, like liberty, um, you actually see the, the mask coming off. Um, now people, I think, are much more receptive to figuring out, well, what the hell is really going on? What, what is this thing called Canada? Um, and I think that overall, the, um, the, the, the lessons of great patriots who were ousted in Canadian history. I mean, we had our last national government in 1963 that was ousted in a Rhodes Scholar run coup. Um, 1963, that was our last national government. So, um, you definitely have a hunger, and I think if the more people see and think about what Justin Trudeau just said in 2017 and look at what has happened, it'll piece, and it does piece a lot of things together. Um, the thing that's very important is a sense of, well, what should a true sovereign nation be? We know what it isn't now, but what should it actually do? Because we do have some serious objective crises, right? A breakdown of food production, supply chains, infrastructure. How do we actually manage coherently to make sure our children not only don't become slaves under this dystopic system, but that they actually have a life that can thrive, where we can invest in, in, in a national bank that serves the interests of the people with other nations organizing themselves in a common you know, way. Uh, that, that's a whole discussion that has to really take hold. And I think the current protests in Ottawa are a good start, spark plug. Like there's a hunger now like I've never seen for these bigger ideas. That is Canadian national... National, uh, nationalism, rather, asserting itself against the British crown, in essence, right? In essence. Okay. In essence. And I, I mean, it's based on something principled. It's of not quite official. It's really based on the right to feed our families, to work, to have a life. And, you know, the basic fundamental things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One, one final question. Um, the power of the city of London combined with its fifth column, Wall Street, is it really true did I understand correctly that all that money, all that power was capable of starting two world wars, World War One and World War Two, with these financial behemoths financing both sides? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, I feel like I've taken up too much time, but... Yeah. That's okay. That's that's. I just wanted to make sure that I didn't un, didn't misunderstand you. And uh, finally, um, the uh, two world you know wars. What? Anyone who can anyone who can start two world wars uh, probably has no problem because I wrote this down when you said it to create diseases like terrorism and drug uh, trade. So that, in essence, is also. Um, started or was started by this financial behemoth, uh, City of London plus Wall Street. Yeah, and I would just add one quick thing on that, which is that um, the British, I, I conducted an interview with Alex Craner uh, based on a, on a wonderful trilogy he wrote on um, the uh, the original British design for a new world order uh, under um, uh, people like Lord Halifax, the, uh, the appeasers of Britain uh, that were like people like Neville Chamberlain, who were part of an operation which all the way up until 1939, 1940, still wanted to have an Anglo-American fascist alliance with Hitler mm-hmm. um, and Mussolini and, and others to manage a, you know, the, the 
the world as, as a new world order and, and the enforcers of the eugenics policy of population control under a, a scientifically managed society from the top. That was a design all the way up until the ouster of Neville Chamberlain when Hitler became um, a Frankenstein monster that was no longer sort of behaving according to its commands and had bigger ambitions to be sort of at the head of the helm instead of a secondary you know, enforcer for the will of a banker, banking class. And they had to sort of change strategy and, and abort that plan. There's a whole story there, but yeah. The, the oligarchy, the lesson I carry out of, and I want everyone to carry out of this, is that the oligarchy, is, they screw up a lot. They're not as powerful as they want us to believe they are, which is a, 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 you know, an intimidation of the mind. Every time you, you look at what they're trying, the thing that they're trying to do today is not new. They've tried many times, and usually they, it blows up in their face and just like undermines them too. So then they have to reorganize and try something new. Um, I do understand now, however, that... Uh uh, Vera Sharaf, a Holocaust survivor, says that she can't believe that she's fighting the same people, the same structures again that she fought uh, 75 years ago, because it looks as though what happened then is happening again. Um, Matthew, I don't want to keep uh, my esteemed colleagues from asking any questions, so uh, please go ahead with your questions. Hi. Uh uh, you thank you so much for your evidence. Mitch, you at uh, the onset of uh, the statement, your evidence that you've given, you were talking about natural law. Um, as we all know, the substantive law that we are using in this grand jury is natural law. So I would like to find out from you, based on all the research that you've done, how important is natural law for humanity's survival, and most importantly, how is it related to constitutional law? Thank you. Dexter, that's an amazing question. That's, that's a very good question. Um, in my understanding, um, all of world history um, has been shaped by a battle between either artificial law. I mean, man, mankind is the only species that we know of that, that creates and improves upon the laws of the systems that we self-organize around. Other animals are... Um, ordained by their genetics, by their environments, and their wiring to be what they are, and that's great. But human beings are uniquely able to craft conceptions and apply those conceptions to manage willfully our own existence. And then, again, identify problems with the so-called invisible metaphysical machine of uh, statecraft and improve upon them. But upon what standard do we improve upon? What, upon what standard do we judge our man-made laws to say, okay, this one squares with something that is... Uh, designed by God and which ones are out of whack, out of harmony, uh, that we have to correct, that are illegitimate, or as Thomas Aquinas would say, forms of violence. So if a law can actually des destroys, deprives you of your innate ability to express your, your, uh, life, liberty, happiness, creative powers, if, if that's what a law is doing, it's not a law, it's a form of violence. It does not have to be respected, and that's what the founding fathers, from, if you read the writings of, of Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Paine, um, they, they were very sensitive to that fact that there is a, a higher law. It's, 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 it's not even separate from scientific law. That's why Benjamin Franklin was both the scientist who discovered principles of electricity that he shared. But in his mind, his discoveries of the laws of electricity were not separated from the metaphysical moral laws that became the foundation of his life's effort to create a republic of self-governance premised on the inalienable rights of the individual and not the hereditary institutions that had governed society for thousands of years. That was the first time it was done. And again, in his world, it was two sides of the same thing. 
real science is not mathematical description or trying to impose a, a formula onto the universe and expect the universe to abide by it. It's, it's about tuning our own creative reason in harmony with that universe that is always going to be more discoverable. And every time we transmit those new, new eurekas, uh, in any domain to our fellow mankind and then apply it to the trick, the, the productive process, the universe responds by giving us greater standards of living, right? We can sustain more people at a higher standard of life than we could have if we didn't have electricity, if we didn't have knowledge of fire, where we were like living kind of like, you know, whatever, cattle in caves. So, but it, this, this reciprocal nature of the universe having this quality that mankind is made in the image of that universe under certain conditions, if, if we, if we abide by those, those certain principles, as Benjamin Franklin and, and others understood, we will have greater emancipation. The empire, the oligarchical system of a hereditary elite will lose its, um, claw, places to put its claws, like a parasite that it is into the host. It won't have much to grab onto and it will lose its power and it will self implode, as I think we're seeing right now. May I add something very briefly? Um, what we are now seeing in the jurisdictions of the United Kingdom, there's the jurisdiction of England and Wales, jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, jurisdiction of Scotland, the court systems in all of these uh, realms, which are basically common law, are starting to uh, uh, arrogate to themselves at judicial level the power to decide mens rea. They are further ahead than any common law or civil law jurisdiction in our repeated findings now in asserting that even if there is a jury there for show and they are seem to be trying to get rid of them now under the spurious claim that international uh, treaty requirements require them to dwindle the use of juries, even if a jury is there for show, um, they, they reserve the right to de determine what was in the mind of the perpetrator. And very often now... It's a drafting which comes from the tax-exempt foundations, such as the Carnegie Foundation that I spoke about earlier, via the House of Commons Library, tells the legislators in Britain, which then will lead other countries in the same way, the legislators are told there is an ersatz version of the public good or the, the public welfare now. It's called collective well-being, collective welfare. That's what the foundations were doing all through the 20th century, creating enemies for that very purpose. And now the courts are saying, if you have offended against society, then there is no redress. You are guilty. And that is the, the furthest towards getting rid of natural law that I've seen anywhere. It's gone further than any European totalitarian state, any international court. It's now coming through that the British national level through legislation, ultimately from the think tanks, the abolition of uh, the concepts that natural law uh, decides whether you're guilty or not. Um, like your opinion, if, because we're seeing this not a 100% lockstep constellation right now. We have this like still very strict uh, regulations in Australia and in Canada and these places. But, but then sort of you're saying that in England, it's basically they're preparing it like from a different angle. So it's seemingly like uh, more relaxed at the moment, but I mean, they're preparing to to, uh, you know, finalize the totalitarian grab from through a different angle, basically. Yeah, I, I am absolutely convinced of that, that the United Kingdom is in the lead, the Anglo-Commonwealth is second, and the resistance to this will actually be largely in 
Central European countries because they uh, give more weight to the rule of law uh, and to the institutions of courts than they do to uh, juries, for example. Uh, they will show more uh, resistance, welcome resistance to this idea. It is definitely uh, Britain or British-based think tanks that are pushing on our legislators more than anywhere else in the world this idea that if someone meets the requirements in a code, they are convinced, they are convicted with with no defence possible. So it's this spurious idea idea behind it. Have you offended against the interests of the common good? That I'm afraid. And you could, from what Matt said, you understand, but I think now in some detail, who is saying that, why that, what they are afraid of. Uh, they don't want any threat to their narrative. Any further questions from Anna or Deepali or Dexter or Virginie? I, I have one question. Um, is it possible that not only in Europe but also in the United States there is a movement that, having understood what is going on, is trying to distance themselves? I'm talking about the United States, trying to distance themselves from the uh, Europeans and in particular from the city of London um, because we are simply buried under debt and we carry too much dead weight with us. Uh, I'm saying this in layman's terms. What do you think, Alex and, uh, and Matthew? For my part, absolutely. I mean, the, the recent testimony I gave to you, I spoke about that, that there is a, a large belt of uh, Heartland America that has woken up to this and now sees uh, what they regard as, the, as an Anglo or an Anglo-European problem steering them. And I think that they are getting heartily sick of it all because of the amount of treason involved. I mean, just as codicil to Matt's uh, testimony about 1971 when a financial coup was pulled off, one of the indications that the Americans were being used as hapless pawns in this is that that very year, Kissinger is said to have said that the military, by which he largely meant the U.S. military, were brute, dumb beasts sent to do others' biddings. Uh, and in that same year, being the new Secretary of State under the, the incoming Nixon administration, he got a Massachusetts-based manufacturer, the only manufacturer in, in the world that could produce precision ball bearings, Brian's chucking grinder, uh, to supply the ball bearings to the, United, to the Soviet Union to allow them to develop multiple independent re-entry vehicle warheads which I know that one of our uh, extra uh, testimonials uh, this evening from Jim Bush, uh, well, he, he personally was involved in the American side of that. So the, the amount of treason involved is such that where the United States had even a military or an economic lead, uh, the cabal we're talking about deliberately abolished that. And I get a very strong sense from my extensive U.S. contacts that a large swathe of the Americans do not wish to abolish their Anglo heritage, their common law heritage, but they have completely had it. Now, with British and European intellectual leadership, makes perfect sense. I, I don't want to say I don't want to speak too much because I know I've, I've gone. We're going far beyond schedule here, but just to say quickly, uh, there are fifth columns in 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 Russia. In, in every country has their own fifth columns. They've got their own battles between legitimate forces who represent these cultures versus these other parasitical penetrations. Um, I would say in Eurasia, you actually have had. Um, Serious, more serious pushback in a serious way to the point that there is um, a genuine, um, I don't think this is a game, I think there's an actual genuine alternative uh, strategy that has been deployed 
uh, outside of the framework of the cage of NATO that is imploding. And design, always, it was always designed to implode. Um, and I think you've got forces within the United States. I, I see it more currently on the state level um, that don't want to go down with the sinking ship. There's there's forces all over Europe. Um, unfortunately, the federal executive branches of most of the transatlantic governments have been in large measure captured, uh, not entirely always, but in, in a depressing level. Um, so I don't, I don't have a, 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 I'm not an expert in geopolitical planning. Um, and I do hope that the creative, uh, forces are able to utilize the self-contradictions, um, and insanity of the empire to their benefit. Um, since again, this empire is, is, it can only, once it succeeds, it can only destroy itself as well. Um, and I do see that there is, there are people that want to have a future that want to survive and that are organically organizing. And I just think they need to sharpen up their their game plan of what they understand the world to be. Because a lot of people still think, especially in America and, and a lot of the patriots who don't, don't like the Great Reset, um, they tend to have fallen for certain uh, traps that have put given them a narrative that it's the Cold War narrative, that the real enemy behind everything is not the British Empire, it's not the oligarchy, it's not that. It's, it's the Chinese commies that want to destroy your freedoms. That's who's behind everything. And and. You know, a lot of people fall into that. And I, I think that to the degree that they hold on to those uh, Cold War narratives, they're going to self-sabotage their overarching desires to have a successful battle against this oligarchical thing. Yeah, that's, that's what I threw out there. Thank you, Matthew. Any further questions from Anna or Dexter or Virginie or Deepari? No further questions from me. None from me either. Thank you. What a wonderful presentation. Yes, thank you, Matthew. If there are no further questions, then this concludes your testimony. Matthew, thank you very much. Now we will turn to Brian Garish and Debbie Evans for their presentation to us. Uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to uh, do this. Um, you asked for a little bit of an introduction, so I'm going to say that uh, uh, my first career was as a Royal British Royal Navy officer. Uh, I was specialised in anti-submarine warfare, so I spent a lot of my time uh, finding, tracking Russian nuclear submarines. That was at the hard height of the Cold War. And, of course, I'm going to say that uh, as time has moved on and as I got older and wiser, I realized that uh, much of what I believed at that time is incorrect. But just to give part of my experience was very much uh, within the military system during the Cold War time. And when I left the Navy in 1993, uh, I was to discover that uh, all was not as it seemed within society in UK. And uh, as a result of tracking mainly fraud and corruption in my own city and getting in contact with people who were seeing fraud and corruption in other major uh, UK cities, I then started to look at organisations which I could see were controlling events, but those organisations were not well known to the public. And uh, where did that take me? It took me ultimately meeting up with a great group of people. Uh, and uh, now we are running the UK. Okay. Well, we got to the end of our show tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was 
a considerable bite into the uh, day two. Um, um, all we are saying is thank you for witnessing uh, uh, this this work. Um, it's leading us to where we want to go to uh, mm. the Sahara now, everyone. <laughs> but, um, it is time today now to bid us, uh, all of us, adieu, if you will. And uh, Rama, uh, maybe we'll just will you pick, pick one. We just got time for one thing. Okay. <laughs> How long is... Pick the shortest one. It's very, very... The shortest one... Yeah. Um, is this... Okay, what does that have? What do you have there? A hundred thousand angels. A hundred thousand angels. Oh, that's perfect. All right, everybody. Let's <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Rainbird. Do we have Rainbird? Mm-hmm. Are you there, sister? Maybe we need Rainbird. <laughs> yes, I'm here, and it was yes. I think witnessing is is exactly what that is and it is important because we're midwifing too so thank you for that and thank you for the whole day and I'll give you that pass that uh, this talking stick Rama for all those thousand angels there we go yes let's do this come to the end here we go It takes all of us, everyone. And I know we can all feel it, that this is the most important moment that we're here, right here, this moment, right here, right now. So much love, everyone. And aloha to all you hundred thousand angels out there. Satnam. Satnam ki. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil, live long and prosper. Yes, we can, Asara, now. Namaste, everyone. Until we meet again, aloha.